It's time right now for the David Feldman Show. He's talking politics and comedy too. He'll tell a dirty joke if you want him to. He's just a lefty from way back. He's a union man with an Emmy for writing. Someday he's mad and he feels like fighting. It's time right now for the David Feldman Show. So get your ears on right, buckle in real tight. He's got a lot to say and he's coming your way. Welcome, welcome, welcome. I'm David Feldman. Welcome to the mop-up for March. 8th? Is it March 8th already? 2021? I'm David Feldman coming to you from an air shaft in Manhattan overlooking a parking garage. Last night, I got to see the Woody Allen documentary part three and the interview with Megan and Harry and Oprah. 17 million people watched Oprah and Megan and Harry talk it uh, got more viewers than the emmys and the golden globes combined and was a whole lot funnier i guess if you're from great britain you were shocked by the allegations of racism apparently according to megan they were very concerned the 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 firm the palace was very concerned as to what complexion archie would be when he was born very very surprising the queen has issued a statement saying that friends and family are are very important and apparently the the palace will will survive this i'm not so sure i will because i finally realize i'm completely full of shit i've been an apologist for the royal family all my life and at the same time i talk about a wealth tax and and going after inherited fortunes and i i I thought oh wait a second uh maybe it's not good to have an aristocracy in great britain either maybe this isn't healthy for the brits either so uh, i have to reevaluate everything i believe including woody allen i owe colleen worthman an apology she was on the show about four months ago and i was vociferously defending woody allen and it got a little uh heated and i i'm wrong i i i watched kirby dick's 
documentary I'm into part three now on HBO and uh, I think Woody Allen might be a monster I, I think it's uh, yeah yeah anyway I hope everybody got to see Prince Harry and Meghan and uh, it's a pretty sick family the uh, the Windsors it's pretty sick I gave him benefit of the doubt I gave Woody the benefit of the doubt there's nothing to believe in. Nothing to believe in. Well, let's go. There's one person to believe in, and that would be Dan Frankenberger in the newsroom. You're, you're, the, you're the only person I look up to, Dan. What about Glenn Costick? And Glenn Costick, do we have any updates on his, on his diet? Yes, we do. A few days ago, he made a rye, an artisanal bread. Um, with uh, bread flour, sesame, caraway, uh, and sunflower in the dough. And it's topped with pumpkin, chia, flax, and hemp hearts. And he baked it at 460 degrees for 25 minutes. Well, let's take a look at it because it All looks right. absolutely delicious. And this is something to believe in. When, when Woody and Prince Philip, who I think was behind the racist comments as to the complexion of Megan's baby... When there's nobody to believe, uh, you believe in this rye bread. I, I just want to say one thing in defense of the royal family. They were paring down. They, they were, but before Archie was born, they did announce that Prince Charles's plan, once he became king, was to strip the, the monarchy down and get rid of all the dead weight which means they would have gotten rid of everybody. But what they considered to be the dead weight, I don't think they were planning to keep Meghan and Harry and Archie around. I think they were top heavy with royals. The problem is that they were getting rid of Archie's security, and they also got rid of Prince Harry's security, which is outrageous. What kind of father is Charles? Then again, Harry may not be Diana's, uh, may not be Charles. Well, maybe not even Diana. He may not be Charles' real father. Isn't Hewitt, wasn't the, I think the horse, the guy with the horses who was training, the riding instructor. Right, Rorikey? Uh No, actually, uh, Hewitt was uh, her lover two years after Harry was born. And if you look at photos of um, him side by side with uh, Prince Philip, and that you can tell he's uh, he's from the blood. As such. He's got he's the, the he, of he's got the Windsor hairline. Yeah, he's got the Windsor. Okay. Yeah, but, and they're not so sure. They're, they're not so sure. Satchel Allen, who's now Ronan Farrow, is Woody's baby. They think it might be Frank Sinatra. And Nancy Sinatra Frank issued Sinatra. a statement saying we consider Ronan a part of the family. I'm sorry, Dan. I disrupted you. John John Hayes brought up the fact that it's a wry sense of humor. Mm. He can't help it. So what else is going on in the newsroom? We we, we looked at the rye bread. Um, Glenn also has uh, one more uh, concoction this week, and it's a wakami and mushroom soup. I see this. Let me share it. There wasn't a big f- description on it, but it looks delicious. Yes, it does. Let's look at that. That's a soup you can believe in. Yep. Yeah, that's nice. What else is going on in our community? 
Uh, next up, we have a couple more pictures from Joseph Britton, who makes the his own Joseph jewelry. Britton. Yep. He has a website, josephbrintonjewelry.com. And we have two pictures today uh, displaying his earrings. One of them is... Um, that would be Nancy Pelosi. Nancy Pelosi. Yep. You can, you can see the fine craftsmanships and the kind of wild designs on the earrings there. Looks like he's got some spirals and stars inside of diamonds and pretty awesome. And the second one is going to be Melania Trump. Mm-hmm. Very nice. JosephBrittonJewelry.com. Yes. Very nice. Um, next, I'm going to bring up Tom Weber. Once again, letting everyone know that on Tuesdays at 8, they do their half hour concert. And Tom is selling uh, his art on his website, TomWeberArt.com. And uh, I asked him permission to show a few pictures once in a while and he said sure but this looks like so, a photograph the one of leo tolstoy looks fantastic but this of the american eagle that, that looks like a photograph tom yeah, weber painted that it's amazing a lot of his technique is um drawing in pen and then digitally colorizing it i'm not sure if this is this is the case of i'm one of those but yeah he's wow. really really good a lot of talent a lot of talent yep what time did office hours go until well i'll ask you later go on what else in our yeah. community billboard um tom also wanted me to promote the next meeting for the spirituality and activism group that began last week on um, the time shifted a little bit it's going to be 8 30 to 10 on wednesdays but uh, that's again going to be on Zoom, and you can get the link to that on Discord, or you can email me at denfeldman at gmail.com, and I'll get it to you. Fantastic. Um, during office hours, we had two people uh, do presentations that are fans of the show and also have their own podcast I want to bring up because I haven't brought them up in a while. Arjun Hundle does mm -hmm. Deep Into History, so Google that up and check it out. It's, it's pretty awesome. And then Isaac Murdoch does Night Rule, and he, he did a presentation uh, – during office hours, Friday slash Saturday as well. So check those out. Uh, another situation in podcast news I wanted to bring up on the David Feldman show 10 years ago, the first week of March, we had Marga Gomez and Laura Neitlinger. And Marga was discussing growing up with her comedian father, and Laura was discussing her documentary at the time, 60 Spins Around the Sun. And that Randy Credico. That yep. would have been done live from San Francisco, I believe. It was Margot Gomez. Yep. And we did it live from San Francisco 10 years ago. I remember that. Wow. Yep. And the part of the description of that was that her father was a comedian. And I looked him up and I, I'm not sure how to pronounce his name, but he, he was Cuban. It's Willie Chevalier or Chevalier. Mm -hmm. C H. V-A-L-I-E-R. So I'm not really sure how to pronounce it, but uh, has some entertainment running in the running in the family there. Um, and also that episode opened up with a Charlie Sheen sketch where there was uh, questions written, but the responses were actually clips of Charlie Sheen. And it was pretty darn funny. Oh, um, 10 years ago. Well, it's all free. If you yep. can soldier through the, the volume, you can find every episode we've ever done of the David Feldman Show by going to davidfeldmanshow.com. Yep. Anything else two, in our community billboard? I got two more quick things. Okay. I, I just want to bring up that Dave has been working really hard the last few months making the show look nice with uh, interesting graphics and learning some some production software. So 
search for his YouTube channel, subscribe and hit the notification bell. And that for especially for the people that mostly listen to it as a podcast, once in a while, watch a live show on YouTube. It's, it's pretty cool to see all the guests and watch it live. So check that out. Um, this Friday, Valley Vox Theater has their, their next show going on. It's going to be at 4.30 this week, and it's going to be Alan Minsky talking about uh, Adam Curtis, where they're going to watch an episode of Can't Get You Out of My Head, plus a short film uh, by Curtis. And you can get some info at, uh, at Valley Vox on Twitter. Okay. If you, got, if you got anything else, you can send me a message at uh, dentfeldman at gmail.com, and we'll get it up there for you. Very good. Thank you, Dan Frankenberger in the newsroom. We're going to throw this over to Ricky Hutchinson. But, you know, before I throw it to you, Ricky, you have two guests, two returning guests. There's a lot of negativity on this show, but I would be remiss if I didn't celebrate the positives. Mackenzie Scott, who divorced Jeff Bezos, has married her kid's science teacher. Isn't that fantastic? That That's... True love. True it's, love. It's, it's true love. And of course, uh, the kids go to a private school and he's a private school science teacher. But still, that, that's good news that 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 she found love after Jeff Bezos and he wished her happiness. So that's sweet. And Amazon is reportedly the biggest corporate buyer of renewable energy. Isn't that good? Yeah. That's such good news. And uh, I believe they're worth about twice the value of um, the British monarchy, too. Well, he is. He's worth, yes, yes. And he looks about as inbred as the British monarchy. (laughs) And uh, David Tepper, a big uh, stock picker, said Amazon's stock looks more attractive than it's ever been before. So, you know, we have to give credit where credit's due. Let's go to Great Britain, where we're Ricky Hutchinson from Weekly Marks is standing by. And I see two friends you're about to introduce. I'm looking forward to this. Oh, thank you, David. And uh, happy International Women's Day. It's uh, it's a great day today for that reason. And also for the um, beautiful interview by uh, Ofer of uh, our Prince Harry and uh, our Princess uh, Meghan. Two lovely people. So, uh, are you being I sarcastic? Or? Two other lovely people who are doing a lot of the. No, I, I quite like them actually. Yeah, I me think. Too. Um, I think, and I hope that's all we're going to be discussing environment, today. I think. Oh, it's 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 all about Amazon and um, Megan. So, well, they're the you know the working royals. <laughs> um, where we're talking got, about the working people and. Go ahead. Yeah, please. well, you know, it's going to be a hard transition for Harry into the into the American aristocracy, and he'll have to, you know, kowtow to the to the um, god king that is Jeff Bezos. Yes, so, uh, the streaming giants. But, but yeah, but it's about finding the feet of clay and crushing them. So um, I'm bringing on two warriors for the uh, for that particular purpose. Um, Jacob Morrison, who we all know and love from uh, the Labor Valley Report down there in Alabama, and a brother and comrade, uh, Maximilian Alvarez, who's uh, uh, editor of the um, Real News, but also just nonstop uh, union man. So uh, I wanted to bring them on just so that we could keep the pressure, keep our community uh, focused on what's really important, and that's, um, you know, sort of bringing the 
bring in um, labour into uh, the the highest profile that we can. And Besom is the place where we're fighting the fight at the moment. So these two gentlemen are guys that can tell us more, tell us how to uh, motivate, how to show solidarity and, and what we need to do. So, um, yeah, I'm going to... Um, I'm going to uh, ask a few questions, but David, I know how excited you get when you get uh, union men on the show or union woman on the show. So just pipe up whenever you feel like it. Um, first off, I wanted to uh, thank both Maximilian and Jacob. Um, I'm going to ask uh, both of them because they're both, you know, obviously Jacob's resident down in Alabama, but Max has been down in um, Alabama supporting um the, the Bessemer workers. Um, so just, I'll start with uh, Maximilian because this this would have been a new experience for you getting down to Alabama. How did how did that uh, time go down amongst um, amongst the you know the the steelworks and stuff like that down in uh, in Bessemer? Hey, yeah, thanks for uh, having me back on. Always great to be back on the David Feldman show. Although uh, David, I'm missing your beard, my man, but you look good. Thank you. I. We'll discuss it later. You get to a certain age where it's no longer it. It looks uh, depressed as opposed to cool. It. Yeah, I'm older than it. you. Grooming becomes a little more important. As we you're looking age. good, you're looking Thank good, you. man. You're looking you sharp. Thank you. You too. Um, so yeah, um, you know, thanks again for for having me on. Great to be on with my man Jacob. Uh, I love the Valley Labor Report. They're doing incredible work down there. So if you uh, if you don't know, you better ask somebody, right? Go support their work. Go listen to their stuff, especially the really excellent live episode that Jacob and David did in Bessemer or actually from the RWDSU headquarters in Birmingham. Uh, that was really great. I actually listened to it while I was driving into Alabama uh, last week and I really enjoyed it. Um, so yeah, to, uh, to answer your question, um, it was a new experience. It was actually my first time being in Alabama. I had somehow always managed to just kind of drive around it in the past. Um, and so just from like a, a, a very basic kind of first experiences point of view, uh, I love Alabama. It's a beautiful state. Uh, the food was amazing. I got some of the best barbecue in Bessemer that I've had in a long time. And it was recommended to me by, uh, uh, the uh, local union president of the RWDSU South Council there, um, Randy Hadley, who's awesome. Um, and yeah, I mean, like it was just a really incredible experience, you know, to go there, to to feel the fervor, the excitement, the solidarity, um, you know, amongst the uh, Amazon workers there in Bessemer, uh, the community support uh, behind them the commitment, the, the relentless and heroic commitment of the RWDSU organizers who have been out there pretty much every day uh, at standing at their posts outside of the Amazon Fulfillment Center, um, asking, you know, answering questions that workers have when they're, they're leaving their shifts. So they're, they're posted up there uh, during every shift change, including the 3 a.m. shift change. Um, and it's, it's, they've been at that for months, you know, and, and, you know, I think that one of the things to underscore, right, like, like you were saying, Rariki, is like, you know, to keep this pressure up is important, 
not just to show support for, for these workers and because it's, you know, it's an important thing that concerns all of us, but also we know how relentless Amazon is with its union busting. We know how much Amazon is hitting its workers every day with union busting talking points, with scare tactics, putting doubt in their mind, doing everything that they can to scare and intimidate these workers um, out of voting for the union, which makes it all the more important, not just for the union organizers there, to make sure that they have a constant presence, to respond to concerns and questions, to answer phone calls at all hours of the night, um, but also, you know, for the rest of us, right, to kind of um, be making sure that the public is aware of what's going on, that the workers down there in Bessemer feel like supported and feel like we are investing in their struggle, not just in a sort of, um, you know, kind of armchair uh, kind of voyeuristic way, but from a really deeply uh, human sense of solidarity with working people who all deserve the protections of a union and who all deserve the kind of democratic security to have a say in the conditions that we live and work under that unionization provides. So it was, it was a really great experience. Yeah, I I felt it. I saw you a couple of times on uh, rising coming from a nice little uh, pokey uh, uh, hotel room there. So I, I figured you were enjoying yourself and, and getting out and, uh, and pressing the flesh with, with, with our brothers and sisters down in Bessemer. So that, that's fantastic. Hey, well, um, Jacob, I'm going to ask you that. Oh, yeah, go. Well, I was just going to say on that as maybe kind of as a way to lead up to, to Jacob, right, is one thing that's so encouraging about this, right? And we're, we're living it out right now, right? We're all here talking about this uh, this union drive on David Feldman's show, which is really great, really exciting. And one of the things that I really wanted to kind of shout out on the, on this, uh, this uh, episode, right, is that it really, one of the things that really touched me being down there, right, was the sense of solidarity that I had with, uh, with other labor journalists and media makers like Jacob, right? You know, like it was so great to be able to go down there and to refer to our comrades like Kim Kelly and Luis Feliz Leon, right? And and um, Michael Sinato and, and just like Lauren Gurley, all these great labor writers to refer to them in like the first person or by their first name and everyone knew who we were talking about, right? It, it really it really kind of energized me and made me feel like we were all kind of part of, a, of something really The question special. is though, where are our leaders? Where are the leaders of the Democratic Party? I know the Congress people, Andy Levin in Michigan, Jamal Bauman, Congressman Jamal Bauman in New York, Corey Bush, Terry Sewell of Alabama, and Nakima Williams of Georgia have gone down to Bessemer, Alabama. I know that Bernie and and uh, AOC have either sent pizza or go, gone down there too. Where are the other Democrats? I'll toss that to Jacob. <laughs> <laughs> nice, easy one for you, Jacob. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, I don't know. That's not, uh, <laughs> that's, uh, y- you know, I mean, if uh, folks that listen to David and I uh, uh, know that we're, we're, we're fairly pessimistic about kind of the, the avenue for Democrats to make change. And that's why we're so pro. That's why we're so pro union, because, of course, there are things that as uh, you know, as I've heard before, the things that you win at the bargaining table, you can lose at the ballot box. And so it's important to vote and it's important to recognize that there is a difference difference between Republicans and Democrats and vote accordingly and yada, yada, yada. But, you know, uh, David and I, and I think 
uh, Max as well. Um, you know, I don't think that this is a, this is a crazy view, uh, that, you know, working people are our best change agents. And I have much more hope in, uh, with the working people, uh, down in Bessemer making their own lives better than I do in, um, than I do in democratic politicians from even from Alabama or, you know, or, or Georgia or California or New York, making our lives better for us. And, uh, you know, on top of that, uh, you know, when, when we, when we come together and we organize, uh, we are better able to hold our politicians accountable and, and get them to work for us more. You know, I mean, there, there's been study, studies after studies have shown that, you know, uh, districts that have high union density rates have their, the legislators representing those districts uh, vote much more in line with an agenda that matches the will of the, the people in that district. So you're saying it's so what comes first is a union drive and then the influence over the political system right i mean i think that we can even see that we can even see that in uh in this drive specifically you know no there was not a single politician that was uh down here in bessemer is certainly not any of the local democrats in bessemer that you know they they would have been scared you know uh they would have been just too scared to, to come against this big new employer that's offering thousands of jobs. They weren't asking for a union drive. They weren't, they weren't trying to ensure that there were certain requirements met before we gave them millions of dollars in tax subsidies. It was the workers that were saying immediately after this facility opened up, no, screw this. We're not putting up with it. We're going to have a better life. And, and then after that, some politicians, you know, came out with uh, like Randall Woodfin, the ostensibly progressive mayor of Birmingham, who only won off of the back of the Working Families Party, Bernie Sanders endorsement, Nina Turner's endorsement, who beat an incumbent in a primary challenge. He came he, he didn't even issue a statement at all until about a month ago. And then and even then it was some wishy washy. I support all workers, whether they want to or not unionize, blah, 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 blah. And only after uh, he got backlash for that garbage statement, did he come out with a full-throated support of unionization efforts? And even then, just like Biden, it was only words. You know, he he has still not offered up any any policies to uh, to actually support unionization drives at Amazon or elsewhere. Um, you know, Biden today, immediately after DSA's uh, call for to mobilize for the Pro Act, came out with a statement in favor of the Pro Act, which is, in my view, much. That's much more significant, um, but but yeah, I think I, I do I do think and and you know Max, I'd be interested in hearing your thoughts on that. But yeah, I think I think that um, the the chicken versus the egg, uh, I think it's a lot more clear when you're talking about uh, worker organization and then political influence. Yeah, I mean, you know, uh, you know, we, we we know what we know, right? We know that most politicians are cowards, right? They're only going to go where they feel it's safe to go, right? And and one thing that I think uh, you know really proves Jacob's point, right, is that the more popular support that is built around this union drive, and and to be clear. We need to we need to emphasize where that popular support came from, right? It came from the workers there being brave enough to constantly speak out, to to give all these interviews. Like, you know, Jacob and I have interviewed some of these workers, uh, you know, in different times. I mean, they're doing it on their days off. They are they are working grueling shifts, um, you know, on their work days. 
They feel tired and broken down at the end of every day. But on their off days, they are going to the union hall. They are doing media appearances. They are speaking up even under the fear of retaliation in the workplace. And they're making sure that the word has gotten out. And that has brought in, again, like we said, kind of more uh, independent media coverage and then growing um, kind of mainstream media coverage and then kind of high profile support from, you know, freedom fighters like Danny Glover. I actually got to interview Danny Glover last week while I was in Bessemer and it was one of the highlights of my, my life, but you know, he came out of quarantine. He came all the way over to Bessemer, uh, you know, and, and Danny's, you know, he's not a spring chicken anymore. He's, um, you know, he's, he's seen a lot of winners, but he was out there showing his support for these workers, bringing more eyeballs to this struggle. And so the more that that kind of grassroots support has made it safer for politicians to say we support these workers. Right. That that actually has had an effect, I think. And, and you know, you even saw that with Biden. Right. It, it got to the point where it became a statement for Biden to not say anything. Right. <clears throat> and I think that that's really what he was hoping to do um, because I mean there's a lot here that we probably can't prove but there's a lot we can probably infer like the fact that Obama's former press secretary Jay Carney is now the senior vice president of like global corporate affairs for Amazon he's like their chief PR person I have to imagine that Carney's been in Biden's ear basically begging him don't say anything about this but then it got so he the, used the, to be the, Biden's press secretary as well Yeah. So, so you know, that they've been talking. Right. Right. And so, you know, I think that a lot of us could kind of read between the lines when Biden came out with that statement. He did not give a full throated endorsement of the workers in the union drive, but it was still a significant statement. Right. It was the subtext was clear. People appreciated it. But like Jacob said, up right now, that's still just words. Right. There are a lot of substantive things that Biden and Congress and local politicians can do to actually kind of give working people the support they need to have the voice they need in the workplace including kind of pushing something through like the PRO Act. Now, as the editor-in-chief of The Real News, I'm not allowed to endorse, you know, any political kind of legislation, but I can say that the PRO Act as it is uh, and as workers and organizers have told me, uh, we actually did a special Working People episode with the with the members of the Painters Union, the Union of Painters and Allied Trades, a couple months ago on the PRO Act. They've all told me, like, this would be a game changer in labor relations in this country. It would repeal right to work nationally, and it would have the effect of taking, like, union drives like the one in Bessemer and giving workers more of a level playing field um, to, to unionize, which right now they do not. All would it also, uh, favor. Would, the right, pro, well, it, would the PRO Act allow Lyft and Uber to uh, the, the employees to unionize? Yeah, that, that's another thing that it would do. It, it would end the misclassification of workers, which people always think nowadays they think of Uber and Lyft. But this is a huge problem in the construction industry currently. That You know, you when, when you hire somebody to do a job, build a house, build a subdivision, things like that, there are a million different ostensibly independent subcontractors that are just individuals working on on this job site uh but but yes, theoretically it would, it would bessemer also- could be turned over to a private corporation and not be amazon employees anymore they could be subcontractors and no well, longer working could, for amazon but, but doing work hire- for amazon 
Well, that's something that Luis Feliz Leon, like uh, Max said, that 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 he has report. He, I think he was he was the first person to report this out. You mentioned that you know uh, there are things. I don't know how 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 deeply they would go down this path but you know there are things that that amazon could do to subcontract out parts of the work that are that need to be done at that bessemer facility and there are currently things that they have already done uh that they have subcontracted out they currently have approximately 500 contract workers there that are ostensibly not employees of amazon right but we know that they are they're making less than the amazon minimum wage even though they work inside the amazon facility uh they make 13 dollars an hour um and they uh uh they are being used used basically as walking anti-union billboards. They are plastering these people with vote no propaganda and they can't vote in the election because they're not Amazon employees. And where did these people come from? These They're taking advantage of uh, very disadvantaged people, people right out of prison. Uh, one of the things that Luis said is that these people uh, you know, they were like, look, you know, this is $13 an hour and I just got out of prison like a month ago. Like, I can't not take this job and I don't know what vote no means. I don't know what a union is, but like $13, I've never, you know, that that's a game changer. That's a life changer for me. And they're taking advantage of these people's precarious situation. Uh, they're using them as billboards and it's, it's just really, really disgusting. But, you know, and another thing that the pro, just to really kind of emphasize how big the pro act would be, if the pro act was in place, they would already already have a union in Bessemer because what the pro act would do, it, it would, it would institute card check, uh, which would allow once 50% plus one of a workforce says, I want a union. Once they sign an authorization card saying authorizing the union to be, uh, their representative saying that we want to be a union here then they get a union. They don't have to go through a second election where you are subject to months and weeks of delay where you're subject to these anti-union campaigns by the boss. They would already have an election because more than 50% of the workers at the Amazon facility have already signed authorization cards. That's how they got the election in the first place. So instead of having two elections, they would have already had a union and they'd be working on writing a contract now instead of going through a second election. That's how big the PRO Act would be. How much of a dent into Amazon's profits would it be for Bessemer to go union? Probably not at all. I mean, like, this is one of the things that I've been... But they're already giving... uh, I think they're already getting benefits, aren't they? So... This is one of the things that I've been really, really trying to kind of um, emphasize for for people that I talk to. They're already getting $15 an hour, as I understand it, right? They are. But remember, why did Amazon raise its its wage to $15 an hour in the first place? It raised it because there were years worth of horror stories coming out about the conditions of their warehouses. They didn't want to to raise their minimum wage. They did it as a PR move um, because they were getting so much bad publicity uh, where, again, reporters like Michael Sinato at The Guardian and others were saying there are warehouse workers in the UK who have to piss in bottles because they literally will get fired if they go on a bathroom break because Amazon is surveilling workers down to the second to make sure that they don't have time off task. Right. Um, and, and so there's a number of like orders workers are expected to process every hour. Every okay. Minute. So, so just for our listeners who may not be as familiar with this as you, it seems to me that Amazon workers, if you're full time, you get health care. Is that correct? Already. 
Yes. Uh, so you, you do have benefits, you do have $15, uh, an hour, um, you know, but that still, you know, like is not, uh, you know, what workers in kind of warehouse industries, you know, like it's, it's below the industry standard. Okay. Um, and the thing that workers have been telling me about the benefits is that Amazon's entire business model, right. Actually kind of makes those benefits largely meaningless because you have workers who are, um, kind of working breakneck speeds uh, and you basically exhaust them and run them into the ground till they have such high turnover at these Amazon warehouses that a lot of workers end up leaving before those benefits can even be uh, enjoyed. In any and they sort of offer you $2,000 to quit. Right. Well, that's another way that. that so the Amazon business model in the warehouses is really to bring people in and then get rid of them. The business model of Amazon warehouses is basically, you, did you ever see that movie, World War Z? No. Max well, Brooks? I kind of forget who yeah, made go it. Ahead. But, um, but there's a there's a there's a scene in that right where a bunch of zombies are just piling uh, up against a wall and they're just bodies and and bodies piling up so that the zombies can make it over this wall. That is Amazon's business model is to just throw human beings as warm bodies into the gears of his, this machine until they have nothing left to give. And then when they're uh, uh, excreted out of the system, Amazon just brings in more people. Right. And it's easy, you know, and, and, and to add some more context to the, the benefits and wages thing, the um, uh, Joshua Brewer, the lead organizer on the campaign, he was on the majority report last week and they were in and they were talking about um, uh, they were talking about this. And, and he said that they're uh, not only like Max said, did um uh, do they have lower than standard industry wages when you compare them to like, you know, comparable employees, they, they are lower than the regional standard among, uh, low small businesses in the area that are like regional warehouses that supply local grocery stores, uh, who how who are unionized with RWDSU in Alabama. They start out at 18, 19, $20 an hour. Uh, when they negotiate, they open up the books, you know, obviously the CEOs of these small businesses, these small regional uh, warehouses, you know, they make more than the workers, but like they open up the books for uh, during the negotiations. They, you know, everybody knows how much everybody is making. They know the revenue coming in. They know the revenue going out. Is that something that Amazon is willing to do? No, of course not. They're, you know, they, um, so and, the case, Ricky, the case against a union drive, if you're, if you're on the floor, the argument against a union drive would be you don't want to pay an extra $500 in dues. Would that be a year? I guess that yeah. would be $500 a year in dues. But it's Alabama. You don't have to pay those dues. And exactly. And you're living in Alabama. They're going to say to you, $15 an hour is pretty good in Bessemer. What else can we have to, what, what else do you want from us? I guess it would be safety and security and as Maximilian just pointed out, this should not be a way station towards another job. There's no reason there shouldn't be dignity here so I can stay for a couple of years and, and not be completely burnt out. That's right. the business model for McDonald's. This shouldn't right. the, the business model, model for McDonald's is, well, this shouldn't yeah. be your full-time job. You should be doing this in addition to 
what turns out to be uh, your retirement. I mean, I, you know, you look, I, I see senior citizens working in McDonald's, but they always present it as a job you do after school. Yeah, when I was a kid, um, 15 and 16-year-olds used to work in McDonald's and we used to make, you know, good money for a 15, 16-year-old with nothing to spend their money on. But the reality which Jacob has done in the Valley Labor Report and reported on the actual people who work there who are 80% African-American, local Bessemer people, these people aren't 17, 18, 19 who are just wanting a bit of spare cash for the weekends. They're people who own homes, they have kids, they have grandchildren, and running around a, a warehouse being turned into the excrement of the capitalist system, as Max has just said, is not their goal. Their goal is to live a good life, and any worker should live a good life. And that's the whole point. That's why I get a union, because... One, it changes your working conditions day to day. If you're running around in Bessemer as a 49-year-old uh, woman who's just about, about to have a third grandchild, you know, the last thing you want to be doing is running a marathon every day. And that's what they're expected to do. You know, yeah. it's about yeah. a reasonable uh, workplace conditions. It's about reasonable and fair and a, a life that you can live and not be exploited to the point of death. Uh, Jacob, I'm going to let you take that over. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I, I just really recommend listening to Max's interview with uh, Jennifer Bates. We also talked to her on our program, but um, by the, you know, one of the things that, uh, you know, I love, I love having the show, but one of the things that I hate about um, being on the radio, as opposed to being on, on a podcast, which we, 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 uh, um, put it out as a podcast. But one of the things that I hate is that we're truncated. And even when we get to talk to people for a long time, we do have to make room for those breaks every nine, 10, 15 minutes or so. Um, Max was able to sit down with Jennifer for about an hour and a half or so and really just talk to her about her story and what it's like working in, in Amazon. And I mean, it, it was just, it was so much deeper than we were able to go to. And I, I learned so much about her and about the job that I, I, I didn't even know after, you know, having several calls into the facility uh, for our WDSU that I didn't know after talking to her or Daryl or Josh or, you know, just because just by the nature of not having had a one-on-one -on -one conversation for an hour and a half and it was really and you know Ricky the the turning it in turning a warehouse job I mean a warehouse job this is something that is like has historically been seen as like this is a career job this is something you can be on the warehouse floor and you ought to be able to support a family on even one income and turning it into a, a mick job we're saying even $15 an hour like you said uh, David that what else do you want from us? What else do you want from us? I mean, $15 an hour is $30,000 a year. That's not, you know, that's not like a middle-class life. That's like, that is a minimum wage. That's and right what, above the poverty line. Right. And one of the things that Jennifer pointed out in Max's episode with her was that as just kind of a worker bee shop floor person, you can't get very far above $15 an hour. You can only get to 16 or $17 an hour. And then you 
cap out after two or three years? And the answer that they give to that is like, well, you can you can have a promotion, but there are not five thousand eight hundred promotions to be had at this Bessemer facility. There just simply aren't. There, there, there is simply not enough for everybody in the facility to be promoted. And so that goes to show like what Max is saying is, is, is the turnover is so high and they rely on the turnover so that people don't get stuck as a worker bee for years and years and, and realize like, oh, wow, I have given the best years of my life to this company that doesn't give a damn about me and I'm still making $17 an hour. I mean, that's and, and, and that's why having a union, doing collective bargaining, um, you know, bringing the full force, the full power of the workforce there is so important to extract these concessions because they're not going to get it through, you know, the benevolence of the boss. The well, malleable workforce, you say a lot of ex-cons. Is that permissible, that term, ex-cons, convicts? I don't know. Sounds pejorative. You'd say formerly incarcerated people. The formerly incarcerated people. It's hard for them to get work, isn't it? It's hard for them to get credit. It's hard for them to be rented to. Mm-hmm. Returning citizens, that's right. Someone pointed out that's that's the one we use at The Real News, returning citizens. Returning citizens. Oh, okay. And so this is probably their first and possibly only job available to them. And Amazon knows that, right? And I, you know... I used to at the warehouse that I worked at, um, one of them, it was uh, over 75 percent of us were temps um, and over 80 percent. What warehouse did you work in? I worked in a number uh, like this time, 10 years ago, I was working in factories and warehouses in Southern California. I was working as for a temp agency that would send me to a number of different warehouses. Um, There was one in particular that I worked at for the longest amount of time. And at that facility, which was not, it was nowhere near as big as these Amazon fulfillment centers. Like Rariki mentioned this, but I wanted to emphasize, you know, when, when, when we say that these workers are basically running a marathon on every shift, we mean it because these facilities are like multiple football fields stacked on top of each other and workers are walking up stairs they're walking downstairs they're going like uh they're and being timed they're being, they're being timed every step of the way. Exactly. The warehouses that I worked at, they were big. They were nowhere near that big. Um, but a lot of the temps that I worked with, uh, you know, were, were um, returning citizens, right? They, they, they would, this was their first job out of prison. Um, and the thing is, is that a lot of us were quote unquote temps but we had been there for years, right? And so it kind of dilutes uh, or it gives lie to the the name temp because you're not temporary. You can be there, you can be a permanent temporary employee the real uh, emphasis that the bosses are trying to make by categorizing you this way is that you are expendable, right? That you, at any moment, you could be dropped like a bad habit. And that is that that lives in your mind every time you go to work. If I mess up, if, I, if the manager looks at me funny, like I could be out of a job tomorrow. And because I am a quote unquote temp, I'll have really no recourse whatsoever. Isn't it true that the, the biggest employer in America our temp agencies, they always say Walmart, Amazon are the biggest I- employers, but it, it really is the temp agencies, which is kind of like using subcontractors. I would have to 
check the uh, I would have to check on that. But now that you mentioned that, I really want to look into it. But it, I mean, I, I wouldn't be surprised if that was the case, because like Jacob said, this is like with, through misclassification. Right. And through abusing. Right. The temp model. Right. Because, you know, you can see why having like temp uh, as a category like is perhaps necessary in some uh, industries, right? If you don't need a full-time employee, you maybe need them for like a certain job. I've talked to a lot of folks in construction who have kind of talked through this with me. Like, sure, I can understand why kind of like having um, subcontracted employees like may work for certain instances, but corporations like Amazon have abused the hell out of this system to essentially like, again, give people the roles of full-time employees, but none of the protections of, of full-time employment. Um, okay, so Jay, Jacob, let's say Maximilian were interviewing Jay Carney, the spokesman for Biden, the spokesman for Obama then, now the spokesman for Jeff Bezos. If he were here, he would say, I, I'm for unions, unions, the, the middle class. There'd be no middle class with out unions. I'm pro-union from my belt buckle down to my toes. We just feel that they don't need a union there in Bessemer. That's what he's going to say, right, Jacob? He's going to say they don't need a union there. But, if, say, but, but they're free to vote. I recognize their right to vote. Right. Well, I mean, he's, he's going to say um, he's going to say we don't need a union in Bessemer. But honestly, I don't even know that he would say the first thing. I mean, back in uh, um, during the Obama administration, when we had Act 10 going through Wisconsin, we didn't even get that kind of, uh, you know, there was a statement floating around from the Obama spokesperson about that. And there wasn't even in any kind of that worthless dribble before the ultimate, well, you know, they've got to make budget cuts and it's important that we be fiscally responsible. And blah, well, blah, Act blah, 10 blah, was going know. after the uh, public sector union. Right. That's in correct. Wisconsin. That's correct. Right. And then yes. it became and that led to Wisconsin becoming a right to work state. Uh, it led to the uh, precipitous decline in union membership. I'm not. I, I, are, are they a right to work state? Maybe I, I don't actually know about that. But I, I know one of the one of the material impacts uh, that you can actually see is the. Uh, decrease in uh, an 11 percent decrease in teacher pay since Act 10 passed in Wisconsin. And additionally, you can see an 11 percent uh, wage gap come out, uh, uh, be created between male and female teachers where previously none existed. Everybody got a pay cut and women got more of a pay cut than men after Act 10 was passed and collective bargaining uh, was was attacked in the public sector in Wisconsin. And, and you know, the Obama administration, they uh, you know, I, in that statement, at least, there wasn't any of the like, oh, I support unions. Unions built the middle class. It was all like we've got to be fiscally responsible and tighten our belt buckles and nonsense like that. Well, I don't even know that he would say that. I don't even, I don't even know that he would give the platitudes honestly, but he would definitely say we don't need a union in Bessemer. That's, that's right. Yeah. He, he, he definitely, yeah, he definitely would not. I would agree with that. And like, I guess, you know, David, if, if, uh, if, if that shithead Carney was here and we got a chance to talk to him, you know, how can I, I can swear on here, right? <laughs> sure. 
Okay. Well, first of all, I would say, fuck you, you big fucking sellout. And secondly, I would say, you know, it is. <laughs> please, please, we have limited time. Please. Sorry. <laughs> Here's what, here's what I would also say, and I am not saying this for me, I'm saying this by way of the workers and the organizers who have told me this time and again. It is no one else's uh, place. It is no boss's place. It is no politician's place to tell workers when they need a union and when they don't. That belong that right belongs to the workers themselves, and it is the workers who have a democratic uh, and human right to organize in their workplace and to have a say in the conditions they live and work under. I mean, think about it. We spend most of our lives at work, but yet the the kind of uh, capitalist ideology in this country has beaten out of us any sense that we have a right to have a say in our working conditions. We feel like we're asking too much if we are doing that. Uh, but the bosses don't feel that way. They feel perfectly entitled to um, to impose whatever conditions they desire upon us and to punish us if we don't go along with the program. And so the thing that I really was so inspired by when I talked to Randy Hadley, to Joshua Brewer, to Big Mike down there at the RWDSU is they actually spend most of their time focusing on not the wages or the benefits. They focus on the human uh, side of this and they focus on the side of this is a human right for workers to have a say in their workplace um, and 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 it is up to them to to take that step it is not the boss's place to tell them when they need that or when they don't and if you even expand that to think about the rest of us the people who don't work at Amazon right you asked earlier, David, like how how much would this hurt Amazon's profits? Not at all. Jeff Bezos made over $70 billion with a B in 2020 alone, right? I mean, like Amazon, the pandemic has been a boon to Amazon and Amazon is not just e-commerce. Amazon is surveillance technology that it is selling to law enforcement. It is cloud storage. It is international. It is massive. It Amazon as an entity has more control over our lives than most government or private entities and yet we have practically zero say in what Amazon does or how it does it but if workers at Amazon had a union they would actually have that sort of voice in Amazon's operations and thus this is an issue of democracy this is an right. issue of us expanding what it means to have a democratic say in the world that we're a part of and that is really like what the workers in Bessemer are fighting for right I mean in defense of Jeff Bezos in his mind in his mind he's 30 billion dollars away from being able to maintain an erection so he's got his own issues that we're talking with and i do think that's true we're talking with maximilian alvarez editor-in-chief of the real news and jacob morrison from valley labor report and oh, of david course, uh, and christians we, uh, just on the um oh in the audience if you can bring oh okay yes yes Christian and Ricky. Hutchinson from Weekly Marks, and let's bring the the very important Christian Smalls. Can you raise your hands, Christian, while uh, I'm bringing you in? Let me ask uh, Rorickie a question, and then the other two gentlemen can chime in as we wait for Christian to... So uh, I was reading uh, City of Quartz. Who who wrote City of Quartz? Uh, Mike Davis. Hey, Christian. Yeah. Hey, Christian. Good to see you. And uh, 
uh, Mike Davis, I was reading something he wrote about a month ago. He said in Europe, the the masses have a have a loyalty to unions because there wouldn't be democracy had it not been for unions. There wouldn't be an end to slavery had it not been for unions. But our founding fathers did a disservice to the labor movement because we came into being, if you were a white man and had property, you had your vote. They they, they kind of jump-started democracy without a labor movement. Isn't it harder in the United States for Americans? I keep saying, where's the outrage? Don't, you know, what, wouldn't Jeff Bezos be ashamed to be this anti-union? But I wonder if... Oh, yeah, um, hey, I... I, I just think if I was born in Flint, Michigan, and the stories in the um, 1920s, 1930s of organization, which were the founding of a lot of what you take for granted as a democratic state, uh, we're all union based. You know, if, if I was brought up in Detroit in Michigan, if I was brought up in the Upper Peninsula, which Henry's told us all about the cooperative movements, the communist movements in that area, you know, you have a history of labor organization. If I was brought up in Bessemer in Alabama with the miners and the uh, steelworkers, I would be a unionist. Um, the key thing is, for the last 70 years, you, you've been hammered. You've been hammered hard. But as long as there's the seed, as long as there's the spark, doesn't matter where you are in the world, the whole point of um, capitalism from that Marxist perspective is it centralizes power into one area and it tries, like uh, Maximilian said, put you all to be the excretion. You know, you're just to be used up. The whole point of unions is that when you're under that pressure, as humans, you come together, you socialize. You we, have, we have, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to cut you off because we have Christian Smalls here. And sure. our listeners should know that Exactly a month ago, Letitia James, who's New York's attorney general, sued Amazon, saying that Jeff Bezos did not provide enough safety protection during the the COVID pandemic for his workers here in New York City, and that he retaliated against an employee who raised concerns about the, the, the conditions. That employee is Christian Smalls. Please welcome Christian Smalls. It's good to see you again. It's good to are, are you back from Alabama? Oh, yeah. I've been back for a week now. So, yeah, over a little over a week now, probably a week and a half I've been back. Tell us about what it's like uh, being part of a, a, a lawsuit against Amazon. Now, Letitia James, the state attorney general, filed this lawsuit how much of your time is taken up assisting her and being deposed and being attacked by well, Amazon? Uh, yeah, not a surprise. I mean, I've been working with her while her office, uh, so to speak, the entire time. So it's new to the public, but not to me. I knew that the lawsuit was going to come out. Um, it wasn't supposed to come out no time soon, not to my knowledge. Amazon kind of poked the sleeping giant when they sued her first that Friday, that Friday that she doesn't and have jurisdiction over a warehouse in her own state. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. They, they, their tactic is to you know get it dismissed or refer to OSHA, who OSHA hasn't done shit the entire time during the pandemic. So that's their that's their tactic uh, to defer it to a a company or organization or corporation that doesn't do anything, you know, whatever you want to call them, OSHA, that, that hasn't done anything for workers, essential workers. They actually fined Amazon, um, I think a total of about $1,800 in the state of California. That's it. The entire pandemic um, from a worker's complaint. But other than that, they haven't done nothing virtually. So um, that's their plan, you know, saying that Letitia James doesn't have authority or jurisdiction to, to, investigate warehouse grievances in her own state, which is ridiculous. So um, the lawyer, as I understand it, there is a liberal law think tank that's run by the former senator from Wisconsin, uh, Feingold, and they they got rid of the attorney who attacked you. Is that correct? There was an attorney for Amazon who called you names and they threw them well, out they, of. Yeah, they 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 uh they never used him to, they, obviously not to fight back against me. Uh, especially, they definitely hired uh, another attorney for my case specifically, and her name is uh I believe her name is Grace Waters, and she's from D.C. And they're playing chess right now, and she actually was a mentor at one point in time to my lawyer, C.K. Hoffler. So they went and got the mentor of my lawyer trying to fight back. She's also a black woman. So they're, they're playing chess. That's what Amazon do. They knew they did some research and then they found her. Then they retained her. Um, I don't know how much they're paying her, but she's been retained for quite a while, at least six, six months now by Amazon, uh, specifically for my case. Right. Um, so, so you have a class action suit that that's separate from the state attorney general's suit. Is yes. that correct? Yes. So I, that's what I believe they retain her for, which is right. the class action. But I think that they also using her. Well, I know for a fact they're using her for, you know, their P, their PR and their propaganda as well. You know, she's advising them on what how to clean up their their mess. Ever since then, ever since they retained her, you've seen. Uh, the the strategy they've been using, uh, donating. As soon as they retain it, Jeff Bezos started donating billions of dollars to like, you know, uh, climate control or climate organizations. Then the propaganda commercials, every one of them that I've seen for the last year since I've been fired, almost a year now, um, they have, uh, you know, a black or a person of color. You know, so they're trying to do all of this stuff, but just to make it look like they're the good guy at, at all times by any means. And I'm pretty sure she advised them as well. And I'm pretty sure she advised Jeff Bezos to step down uh, because of the lawsuits that are pending and the ones that are still to come. But there's a right. lot more that's still. You that worked, I can't speak on. You you worked at a warehouse. I want to say Staten Island. Is that where it was, or Queens? Staten Island. In Staten Island. What would have happened had you belonged to a union? If you if you had oh, looked would, around, you were a supervisor there, and you saw that the people underneath you were not being provided with the protective equipment they needed to protect them from COVID. Who yeah, would we, you have called if you belonged to a union? 
the union. I wouldn't I wouldn't be having this conversation right now. Uh, for sure, hundred percent. You know, we that's what they're for. They the unions represent the workers, and and you, you could know, have complained, and you wouldn't be fired because they wouldn't know that you were complaining. Absolutely, they would. They would have went to management on my behalf, and that's the beauty of being in a union. You know, I worked for a union prior to Amazon, and I went through that process. I had some grievances with management, and they we had the arbitration. It's like a you know deposition, so to speak. You know, they get your side, and they get the management side, and but they side with the workers. The, the, the ultimate goal is to keep you employed, mm-hmm. and. That's the beauty of it. I would be able to express my grievance and still be employed no matter what, not even fearing or even have a doubt that I'm going to lose my life for speaking up. Um, but obviously that's not the case with Amazon. So here we are. You, you know, were you know. were a manager at this facility in Staten Island. Just manager, yeah. You were what? Assistant. I was you were assistant manager. manager. You were responsible for how many employees over at Amazon? Hundreds. Hundreds. The pandemic starts, and what did you witness when the pandemic started? One by one, people were getting sick. Flu-like symptoms, dizziness, fatigue, not even showing up for work, some vomiting. I seen it all. Okay. Um, it, it, was, it was horrible. And what months are we talking about? Exactly one year to the date, this is when it started. I, I It's funny because I was looking at um, uh, my social media Snapchat videos from last year and like a week ago, I was like in a club partying and then after that, the shit hit the fan. You okay, know, what I, kind of guidance, what kind of protocols did Amazon Institute, let's nothing. say by April 1st? I was going, so I don't know. <laughs> but I can tell you from what I heard, um, I was fired on March 30th, the same day. But March 30th, April, because you did what? Because I held the protest outside of the facility for not protecting us. So I can tell you, while I was employed in March last year, we had nothing. We had no facial mask. This is New York City being the epicenter. You had no masks in the warehouse? None. None provided by Amazon. People who had masks, if you were lucky to find one. You remember inventories... Last year, if you was going going to your local store and trying to get Lysol, you couldn't find it. Were you, were you told to social distance? No, we no. They put some signs up, or you, they were doing bare minimum. They didn't even know what they were doing. They were telling us wrong information. They were they, their signs were saying like we need to be three feet apart, and I'm like watching the news, and it says six feet apart in small groups of ten, and here we are sitting shoulder to shoulder in a cafeteria with three hundred people. So people um, are getting sick. And who did you speak to first? HR, directly to HR. And I what did HR say? HR was like, you know, if you don't feel safe, stay home with no pay. With no pay. Yeah, no pay. Right. And, and Jay Carney went on the record last year saying, if people don't feel safe, they can stay home and not get paid. And yeah, what, what did you do? They furloughed the whole corporate side from late February all the way into just recently. They just now started going back. So I'm telling that's that was was really blew my mind is that the fact that you're allowing your people that sit on the ass and corporate side and, you know, behind the computers to stay safe with their families. 
but the warehouse workers got to continue to go to work. And so now you were fired because you exercised your First Amendment right to protest. They said you should, if you took a furlough, you you should have been home and you should not have left your, that's the argument Amazon made. You, you returned to work even though you were furloughed. That's why they fired you, right? Right. That's what they're saying, um, which is... Once and they should pay you for striking, because if you showed up, you should be paid for. Well, uh, well, actually, in the lawsuit, referring back to the lawsuit with Letitia James, the, the, the new evidence that I didn't know, the head of HR, Christine Hernandez, um, and the BP, the business partner of HR, they said the same day that I should have never been fired because my termination wasn't justified and the quarantine policy wasn't provided to me um, with justification, clear clarity on what are the stipulations of it. Because if I'm quarantined, right, do that mean I stay home or am I allowed to drop off a coworker if I'm their source of ride or whatever ride share to work? What does that mean? They never explained that to me. It was literally like, arm over the shoulder conversation like, hey, Smalls, you got to go home today. All right. We have limited time. Any, Ricky, Max, Jacob, would you like to ask some questions? I would love to just uh, introduce everybody just in case we haven't. Christian, um, do you know Jacob from Valley Labor Report and Maximilian from uh, The Real News? The Real News, yeah. I've definitely seen them on Twitter. Absolutely. You know, it's a small world now on the left. <laughs> and Zoom made the world well, a lot. I, hey, it's a, it's a small world. <laughs> I would podcast. love you, way, you guys along with David too. Right, it's a smalls world is the name oh. of his podcast. You got to get it out there, brother. <laughs> right. You got. You guys have to share this opportunity. It's all about creating solidarity. David gives us this great um, format to talk uh, nationally and internationally. Um, you know, my only thing I want to say is that the fight in Bessemer, the fight against Amazon, the fight to unionize is the fight for this year, maybe for this whole presidential term. So you three guys and David are very important because you get the message out there and breaking that message into the everyday person is, is when uh, the union starts to work. Um, so uh, get on Jacob's show. Jacob, get on uh, um, Christian, share the love. That's all I want to say. Right. Maximilian, do you know Christian? Oh, I, I, well, we, we recently connected uh, on Twitter and I've known of Christian for, for the past year, um, you know, but, but we haven't had a chance to kind of uh, connect. Until and, now. and he was down in Bessemer as well. Yeah, we might have been in Bessemer at the same time, man. <laughs> um, yep. yep. So yeah, what, what are we right looking at? Danny Glover was there. Uh, but we, we, we have to wrap this up. But before you guys go, and I hope, please, all of you, please come back. Thank you for this. What are we looking at? Joe Biden finally kind of sort of spoke out in favor of unions. But what percentage of the Amazon workers already cast their ballot? By the time Joe Biden said people are voting whether or not to unionize, how many have already had already cast their vote? Um, I could tell you from the workers I spoke to, I spoke to quite a few when I was down there. And to be honest with you, I don't know. Uh, it was probably a 50-50 chance. 
to be honest with you. And it's only because of you got to put yourself in the Amazon worker's shoe. They work 10, 11, 12 hours a day. They're not coming home and turning on any media. I don't care what they do. So if the union isn't their lines of communication already, um, a lot of the workers are still being, they're, they're fairly new. A lot of them just got hired two, three weeks and they don't even know shit was going on. A lot of them haven't received their ballots yet in the mail. I've talked to several workers who haven't received their ballots yet. Other workers are, they just don't care about the vote at all. Um, So we're dealing with a lot. And then you got Amazon that's putting them in four classes a day, breaking them down into groups of 20 and even smaller groups of that drilling union busting tactics. They got a website website called do it without dues. They handing out pamphlets. They handing out pens. I got copies of all of that. I have the actual stuff that they handed to these workers, the pens that they're giving them, stickers, bumpers on it, everything they're doing. Jeff Bezos was actually in Bessemer, I think, a few days ago. He had the workers put out this big LED sign when the Congress was there saying support $15 minimum wage. So they're brainwashing the shit out of the workers. They got them doing Brady Bunch commercials. I don't know if y'all seen on Twitter. They got them in these colorful squares talking about how they don't need a union. They brainwashed them. They giving them. They gave the the GM million dollars, millions of dollars of incentive money, and they're giving them workers probably birthday cakes every day over there. So they're uh, as far as uh, as far as uh, where we stand with the voting, even with the president. You know, I still believe it's a, it's going to be a fifty fifty all the way to the last day, which is March 29th. And you probably have you have to have your ballot in the mail by March twentieth. Uh, if you're a worker of Alabama, they get there on time by March 29th. I don't recommend dropping your ballot off at the mailboxes that Amazon has on their sites. They have a, they're not even supposed to be doing that, but somehow, some way, they got a mailbox for workers to drop their ballots in. Don't do that at all. Mail them in um, by March 20th, so they'll be there by the 29th. Okay, and very quickly, Maximilian, if Bessemer goes union... What does that mean? I mean, I think it's going to be huge, right? I mean, not only obviously for these workers there in Bessemer, their families, their community, right? This is something Danny Glover told to me. He's like, you know, you unionization is a way of this community actually having the ability to take all those resources that are being concentrated in Amazon and, and in Jeff Bezos' bank account and try to bring them back to this community, right? A community that is majority black, a workforce that is majority black, and I think majority women, right? I mean, so, you know, it would mean a lot for the workers there in Bessemer, of course, but it could also mean a, a whole hell of a lot for the labor movement in general and especially in the South, right? I mean, like, there there are a lot of people who are watching this very closely. And and I just to um kind of make the the point that Jacob was making earlier, right, about kind of how much the deck is stacked in favor of the bosses and how hard workers and unions have to work just to get a union in, right? They're actually, uh, I think it's the Teamsters in Iowa are currently trying another tactic because they see in places like Bessemer, you have to go through this almost year-long rigmarole just to get uh, the union vote going and Amazon has months and months to uh, badger workers with this anti-union propaganda. And so what the Teamsters are trying to do is basically 
strike to force the company's hand to recognize the union instead of going through the NLRB. So that's a really interesting thing to watch. But I think the point I would end on as far as what this could mean, right, is 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 the question of international solidarity, right? Amazon, like I said, is not only a behemoth here in the United States, it is an international behemoth. It's, it's network, it's power, it's influence are so vast that we can hardly really wrap our heads around it. And like I said, we have virtually no democratic say in what it does, but there are unionized facilities in places like Western Europe. And if there were unionized facilities in other parts of the world, workers would actually have more of an equal playing field to take on this behemoth because if we are going to fight an international company, we need international coordination and solidarity, not just, you know, with workers here in the States, but with workers everywhere so that we can actually fight Amazon on a global terrain. We're, we're out of time. Thank you so much. Christian Smalls, the name of your organization, I believe is stop Amazon now. Is that correct? Mine's uh, TCOEW, the Congress of essential workers. Right. And you're and you're still calling for a boycott of Amazon, correct? All all the time. Twenty four seven. It's a Smalls World is the name of your podcast. Maximilian Alvarez is the editor in chief of the Real News, where Ricky Hutchinson hosts Weekly Marks, and Jacob Morrison hosts Valley Labor Report. We've been talking about Bessemer, Alabama and the Amazon workers. And we urge all the Amazon workers to unionize. And we urge all our listeners to find alternatives to Amazon until they do. Thank you, Jacob, Christian, Maximilian, Rorecki. Great job. Thank you. Absolutely. Well, speaking of solidarity, maybe we can learn from Myanmar. There's a general strike to protest the military takeover of Myanmar, and the military has responded to the general strike by storming universities and hospitals and revoking press licenses. And uh, we can't even talk, we can't even cover, can't even get MSNBC to talk about Bessemer, Alabama. And meanwhile, people are putting their lives on the line in Myanmar. Let's turn to Henry Huckamaki, who's in the Upper Peninsula, Peninsula, of Michigan and Grace Jackson, who comes to us from Great Britain. You have a returning guest to talk to us about Myanmar. Indeed, we're bringing back Carlos Sardinia Galache, who is the author of The Burmese Labyrinth uh, from Verso Books. Everybody should pick it up. It's a great book. I see Grace has her copy as well. Uh, we actually both planned on bringing Carlos on independently and then found out that I had already scheduled him. So we're just going to uh, collaborate on this. But as you so said, did David, Jackie, the joke man, Martling, by the way, uh, yeah, that's the, no surprise there. We, we know that, you know, the deep dives into uh, world politics are what Jackie really specializes on. Mm. Um, yeah. So we last brought on Carlos on, I believe, February 18th. And uh, a lot has happened since then. The protests that were going on in the country have only escalated further and the crackdown by the military has only increased since then. As of the last count, last I've seen, there's at least 55 deaths that have been recorded uh, due to the military killing protesters. At least 1,800 individuals have been arrested and at least 1,500 of which are still in prison, haven't been released yet. So 
Carlos, I'm going to, I'll ask the first question and then I'll I'll let Grace uh, come on in since she wasn't able to join last time when you were here. But can you take us up to speed of what's been happening in the last, uh, just under a month since we last brought you on to talk about the situation in Myanmar? The the people of Burma organized this uh, very widespread and very massive uh, civil disobedience movement uh, which was initially organized by doctors and I'm sorry. Uh, do you, uh, I'm sorry. Do you mind bringing your volume up just a tad? Oh, okay. Okay. Uh, sorry, it's a new thing. Can you hear me well now? Yeah. Yeah. Although yeah. it's uh, that's kind of a humming. Yeah. Sound. Oh. I mean, well, oh. we can make. Where, where are you t- tonight? I'm in Salamanca, in my hometown in Spain, actually. I see. Okay. I'm not in Bangkok. I love so, Salamanca, by the way. Ah, you know Salamanca. Whoa. <laughs> Amazing city. Yeah, yeah it is. Oh, okay. Uh, is now okay, the sound? Yes, I think it's good. Yes. Okay. Um, yeah, this, uh, this civil disobedience movement, which basically uh, cuts across ethnic lines, class lines, everybody seems to be involved, uh, it has been gaining strength in the last uh, month or so. And the more uh, strong the civil disobedience movement, the more brutal is the response of the military junta and the police. So what we are seeing now is a very, very violent response from the, both the military and the police, and basically mindless violence to try to instill terror on the protesters. And the protesters, they, they don't want to go back to, to, to military dictatorship, to military rule. And I think they are not going to stop protesting anytime soon. And uh, thank you, Carlos. Yeah, um, I just wanted to follow up with a question. You mentioned that the protests have been kind of across class lines and ethnic lines. Is there any, um, who, is there a kind of core group of protesters who are doing most of the organizing or is a lot of this coming up spontaneously across the country? It seems to be quite spontaneous, and it seems to be organized by many different people. Uh, trade unions are um, very much involved in organizing uh, workers and, and uh, healthcare personnel and, so, uh, and teachers and so on. Also, civil servants are, are, are joining the protests. And in many of the outlying areas, in, in many of the regions in the periphery of uh, Burma, where, use, where, where the majority of the population belong to these ethnic minorities that had been uh, at war with the central state for decades, uh, in most of them, uh, many people have joined. The only exception seems to be Rakhine. Uh, in, in, uh, in Rakhine, except for the south, uh, we are not seeing big protests in the Kalo Rakhine from, from, from the Rakhine uh, Buddhist majority. But otherwise, right. in Kachin, in, in Chin, in Karen, uh, all people, everybody's joining in, in this protest, it seems. So, having read your book, 
I, I, I think I have an inkling as to why it would be that the Rakhine may not be joining in this protest, but can you kind of give us your take on why that might be and perhaps also provide some context on, you know, what's, what's been happening with the Rakhine, especially in relation to anti-Muslim violence in, in Burma in recent years? Yeah. Uh, well, in Rakhine State, basically, you have the Buddhist majority, the Rakhine themselves, uh, around 2 million people. And then you have the Rohingya. Uh, before the ethnic cleansing in 2017, it was around a little bit more than 1 million people. Now it's 400,000 or so. Uh, the Rakhine are... Um, the, I, I, I don't want to say the Rakhine. I want to say the Rakhine nationalists uh, are strongly anti-Muslim, but they are also strongly anti-Bamar, the, the, the dominant ethnic group in Burma and, and, and the group that controls the state, the central state. So uh, once the, 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 the most of the Rohingya were expelled from, from Burma to, to Bangladesh, uh, after one year, uh, a new group a new arm, a new Rakhine armed group, which existed actually since 2009, but uh, around one year later, uh, they enter into Rakhine and they have uh, uh, waged an insurgency against the Burmese army for two years. A very, a very, in a very, very violent and very cruel war. So, the Rakhine, I think, they are not participating in the protests because they were Rakhine nationalists were not happy with uh, Aung San Suu Kyi. Uh, Aung San Suu Kyi uh, didn't win. Aung San Suu Kyi's party, the National League for Democracy, didn't win in Rakhine in 2015. It was the Arakan National Party, a Rakhine Nationalist Party. And according to the Constitution, it's the uh, president, the central government, who has to, to choose... Uh, the, to appoint the uh, chief minister in each state. And Aung San Suu Kyi, instead of saying, uh, instead of going to the Arakan National Party and tell them, who do you want me to uh, appoint as your chief minister, she just appointed an NLD chief minister. So the Rakhine are not happy with the NLD. And there is a very, very tense relationship with the NLD and the, and, and, and the Rakhine Nationalist Parties. So right now, when the, Bur when, when the Burmese army took control in, in first, uh, February, they basically gave uh, a lot of positions uh, to Rakhine nationalists. They uh, released uh, a very, very important uh, Rakhine nationalist leader who was in jail for uh, uh, the crime of sedition under Aung San Suu Kyi. So basically, the, 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 the Burmese army is trying to gain the trust of the Rakhine. Right. And right now, it seems to be working. The Arakan army, this insurgent group that has been fighting the uh, army for two years, and which signed a ceasefire in November, uh, an informal ceasefire, is kind of sitting on the fence, not, uh, not taking any position on this. And the Rakhine nationalists are just quiet. So right now, I would say that the Rakhine are probably the only exception to this, uh, you know, 
indirectly solidarity against the coup and against the military junta for the reasons given. Great, thank you. Yeah. I'm, I'm just going to clarify something for the listeners who haven't read the book yet, and, and you should, listen, uh, listeners, read the book, The Burmese Labyrinth. And also note, we're going to get more into the, the history of Burma and the Rohingya tragedy in the episode of Guerrilla History set to come out next month that we're going to be recording with Carlos. But just to clarify one point. Uh, when Carlos is talking about the Rakhine nationalists, those are the Buddhists in Rakhine State, which is the same state that the Rohingya Muslim minority is from. So you've probably heard about the basically a lot of people have called it a genocide. Whether or not we use that term is debatable. Uh, in any case, the the Rohingya are from certainly Rohingya. an ethnic cleansing. Seven hundred thousand people. At the very least. Yes. Uh, yeah, exactly. And Carlos lays it out very well in his book. At the very least, it's ethnic cleansing, if not outright genocide. Um, but it's just important to note that the the majority of that uh, that state, Rakhine state, is this Buddhist group. And interestingly, and I'm just going to say this as an aside before I ask my next question to Carlos, is that as you lay out in your book, it, it's very interesting that when the Rohingya were in Rakhine State, the Arakan army, the uh, nationalist Buddhist, uh, Rakhine nationalist Buddhist Arab militia in the state, and the military of the government were more or less united in their loathing of the Rohingya. They, they almost cooperated in a way until the Rohingya uh, were ethnically cleansed and forced out of the, out of the state. And then immediately afterwards, the Arakan army started fighting with the military. It was, they were united against the Rohingya, but once the Rohingya were gone, they turned on each other. And only after uh, this uh, military takeover really have things quieted down between those groups. So it's interesting. And, and folks, you should listen or should read the Burmese Labyrinth for more on that. But Carlos, uh, I, I'd like to get back to talking about the recent events. So the military has been running the country ever since this coup. And the coup happened at a very interesting time, uh, temporally. It was the week before the new parliament was due to be sworn in, which was one of the, the, very, the, very, the very same day, actually. The yeah. Very same day. yeah. Yeah. Which is a, maybe you can talk about why that's important, but also what has the military done from a governing perspective in that time? Because a, people have to realize it's not just the military that's uh, in the streets right now running things. They're also in the seats of power in the government. So what has the, the military been doing in terms of policy in these last few weeks? And, and I know that we've talked last time, listeners go back if you didn't listen to the first conversation, but the ideology of the military and Aung, Aung San Suu Kyi's party are not really that different. So it might be an interesting conversation to have in terms of what they've actually been doing now that they're in power. Well, uh, ever since they are in power, they 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 don't seem to have been doing too much, actually. Uh, it doesn't seem that, that uh, they have plans. They say that they are going to uh, you know, to organize new elections in one year. They are uh, they established a new election commission because they were complaining about uh, uh, election irregularities uh, in November. And basically they are appointing new, their own guys in, in, in the central bank and so on and so forth. But there is something that makes me think that, that the coup was not uh, long in the making, which is that many uh, uh, diplomats 
are not recognizing the new government. They are not recognizing the junta. We have the, the representative in the United Nations, and now we have uh, several diplomats in Washington, in and today in London, uh, denouncing the, the military junta. And it seems to me that if they had been planning this for one year or so, they would have made sure that they would have their own people in these important positions, isn't it? But it seems that no, that that, that uh, many people are not happy with, with this coup because, um, as you say, there is no ideological, there is no, I mean, the, let's say that the ideological difference between the Tatmadaw and the NLD and Sensuchi's party is very small. So this is ultimately, I think, about power. It's just about uh, the generals uh, getting angry at uh, probably a slides by Aung San Suu Kyi at the fact that she uh, keeps winning elections. And they just decided to do this coup, I think, in the last minute, maybe one month before, uh, two months before, or something like that. But I think w- w- the, the feeling one, one has, and it's, it's difficult to say because... Uh, there is very little information coming up from the country, is that they are basically right now on the defensive and trying to consolidate the coup itself. And then let's see what they do. But in terms of policy, I wouldn't expect uh, much of a difference between the military junta and San Suu Kyi, honestly. Right. That's great. Thanks, Henry. Um, So I... Yeah, I just want to touch on that again, Carlos. Um, I think for a lot of people who've been paying sort of a bit of attention to this story, it's been really disorientating because um, for a long time, as you talk about in your book, I think people in the West, partly due to the media, Hollywood depictions of her or whatever, the Nobel Peace Prize, all of these things, we've invested Aung San Suu Kyi with this... um, aura of kind of infallibility and we see her as a as a fighter for justice you know someone who's really in it for the long haul and yet i feel like only recently have we kind of let go of a lot of those fantasies and we've started to kind of see her in more realistic terms as as someone who um has real limitations and is perhaps not you know what we thought she was and so this this coup is just kind of, for me personally, really hard to understand because I was thinking like, you know, she's basically collaborating with the military already at a really, really high level. And so why, you know, why is it that they want to kind of uh, push her aside at this point? And if you can just hazard any guesses you might have or any insights you can you can bring to that, that would be great. Well, I, I must say that I'm, I'm as surprised as you uh, with this coup, and virtually no one saw this coup coming. Uh, this doesn't make any sense because the, the military already had considerable power, and uh, Aung San Suu Kyi had uh, amply demonstrated in her first in her first term that she was not a threat to the interests of the military. Right. So. What I think here, and this is all a speculation, and I, I, I always repeat that because because it's uh, uh, because it's true. It's like nobody knows what is going on in the higher echelons of the of the military. We are talking about a very an extremely opaque uh, organization, 
and their thought process is uh, difficult to, to follow. What I think is that these guys have been ruling the country for uh, 50 years, for five decades. They have this strong sense of entitlement that they are the only ones who are uh, who have the right, who are the rightful rulers of the country, and they are somehow uh, isolated from the rest of society. They form some kind of caste apart. I, I'm talking especially about the the, the, the officers, not, not, not the not the rank and file soldiers. So uh, I think that what happened is that. Okay, uh, Aung San Suu Kyi uh, wasn't doing anything to threaten their interests, wasn't doing anything that went against what we might call their core values, but she was getting too much powerful. And she was getting, in their view, uh, too arrogant, not consulting with them, not, uh, uh, not, 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 keep, not keeping open a channel of communication with them and not giving them what uh, they regarded as their due. Mm. And, and I think that's, and, and I think in a way this is a, 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 an error of interpretation of Ansel Suchi herself, because she is always repeating that this is the, the, the army of my father, the army of my father. As you know, uh, her father is the uh, hero of national independence and the founder of the Tatmado, the, the Burmese army. But his father died a few months before the uh, the independence day, and actually the architect of the the, the architect of the modern Burmese army was not his father, was Nguyen, the dictator that ruled the country from 1962 to 1998, and he created a very different Tatmado. He created a very different army, which is a sort of uh, upper caste in the social order, and which is uh, which is completely cut off from the rest of society. They have their own uh, companies, they have their own healthcare system, they have their own education system. So they don't really they don't really care about the rest of society. And I think that Ansel Suchi trusted these guys. Uh, thinking that it was the the military of uh, her father, but it's not the military of her father. It's the military of Nguyen and Thang Sue, the, the, the next dictator who ruled from 1992 to 2011. Right. And and these guys don't like, especially a woman, uh, a, a civilian and a woman civilian, to be too powerful and to challenge their uh, position. So in, in a way, it's probably a little bit of pride and a little bit of, you know, just sheer power. Mm. And for the average kind of protester on the street, just given, given what we know about how Aung San Suu Kyi's actual government and governance of the country wasn't that different from the military, what is really at stake for the protester on the street? I mean, if... You know, if there's really no difference between them, why do people care so much? Are they still invested in the idea of Aung San Suu Kyi as as the national leader, or is is there like a real deeper kind of hunger for change in Burma? Uh, I think invested in Aung San Suu Kyi because uh, what, what you see is people demanding uh, Aung San Suu Kyi's release. But th- there is more than that. I think that people 
many people were disappointed with Aung Suu Kyi, but not for the reasons that we in the West might have been disappointed, namely the Rohingya issue, because most of, of people in Burma don't like the Rohingya and share these assumptions of the Rohingya's illegal immigrants from Bangladesh. Uh, it's, it's, it's about uh, uh, they are disappointed because the, the economy didn't really took off and uh, you, you know, th there was not a more democratic, there, there were no democratic uh, reforms with uncertainty and so on. But I think that people were quite willing to give her the benefit of the doubt, thinking that she doesn't have enough power because in that system, uh, before the coup, the, the military had uh, still had considerable power. So I think that people were trusting her, trusting that she would do something but that she couldn't do more because the, the military still had the Trump cars. So, but I think that what people want, and, and, and protesters seem to be very clear on this, they don't want to go back to the, to the constitution that they had before that gave total autonomy to the military, that gave, that gave it uh, so much power. They want a new constitution uh, in which the military is under a civilian government. And I think that if there were some kind of uh, victory from the protest, uh, for the protesters and Aung San Suu Kyi were released, I think she might change a little bit in the sense that she wouldn't feel the pressure, she wouldn't feel so much the pressure from the military, but she would feel, feel the pressure from the streets. Uh, still, she would be a Pamar nationalist. Uh, she's not going to change her position on the Rohingya and, and so on and so forth. But in terms of uh, creating a democratic space, I think she would do it if, the, if, if this revolution uh, wins, which is something that is impossible to predict anyway. Carlos, would you mind if I close this out with a quote from your book and have you give just a, a brief, uh, you know, expansion on it? I think that this will flow well into the episode of Guerrilla History that we're going to be doing, if you don't mind. Okay. Yeah. Okay. This is listeners. This is, uh, I'm trying to convince you to buy this book. It really is, uh, very interesting. As you can see, I have a, uh, a lot of note viewers on YouTube will see that I have a lot of notes in this book and this is just one of them. So talking about how there's really not much separating, uh, Aung San Suu Kyi from the military in terms of ideology and even in terms of their view of the Rohingya and this is how this is going to relate. So this is uh, after 430,000 Rohingya had already fled to Bangladesh, Aung San Suu Kyi gave a speech to diplomats and uh, foreign media. And I'll pick up from your book now where she says, more than 50% of the villages of Muslims are intact. They are as they were before the attacks took place. We would like to know why. This is what I think we have to work towards, not just looking at the problems, but also looking at the areas where there are no problems. Why have we been able to avoid these problems in certain areas? For this reason, we would like to invite the members of our diplomatic community to join us in our endeavor to learn more from the Muslims who have integrated successfully into Rakhine State. The implication was clear. The Rohingya who had fled had done so because they had not integrated successfully, a convoluted argument that amounted to victim blaming in its purest form. Of course, the number of refugees would almost double over the next few months. So she was not directly responsible for the clearance operations overseen by the commander in chief, Min Ong Hlaing, but she tried hard to cover up these atrocities committed by the Tatmadaw. 
and you carry on from there. I, I think that that is a pretty telling episode and perhaps you want to just have the final word on this before we wrap up. Well, I, I, I would just say that the, the ideas of François Soutier about national belonging, about who is entitled to be Burmese, what it means to be Burmese, and the, ra the racial hierarchy that has been working in Burma for so many years, uh, the ideas of François Soutier on all that are not very different from the military. And... Uh, I think the only point of divergence uh, between them was should the military be under uh, civilian control or not. And that was not something that the military was willing to accept. And that's what she wanted. But I think that ultimately uh, her vision for the country is not so different. I have a quick question. I know we're out of time. Thank Go you for ahead. this. Thank you, Carlos, Grace and Henry. If you're in the Situation Room advising Joe Biden, he's going to say, what's in it for America? Circle back to the beginning of this interview. What, why would the American military, why would Joe Biden care about Burma strategically? And what kind of resources are there that we want to get our hands on? Well, it's especially about curtailing the power of China in the region. Uh, China is a strong... Uh, Ch Ch Burma is in many respects uh, a dependent of China. And I, I, I think otherwise America doesn't have a big stake in, in Burma. But there no, uh, there's no rare earth. There is there an opium is trade? Is there heroin? Well, there is a lot of opium trade. <laughs> that, 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 that's for sure. I'm, so I'm the CIA sure. would be interested in that. I'm being uh, serious. CIA, I'm not trying to make a joke. The CIA was very interested in that uh, back in the 60s, actually. And, and, and they were the ones who, uh, in a very convoluted way, uh, promoted this uh, opium, opium trade in Burma, in Laos, and, 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 and Vietnam, actually. Hey, these but, wars don't pay themselves. You got to... Yeah, yeah, yeah. You, you, you have to. How, how do you pay these these uh, tribes uh, fighting the communists, the Hmong, and, and so on? Right. So, I, I think that uh, what Joe, if if I if I if Joe Biden asked me for advice, I would tell him uh, support the civil disobedience movement and don't recognize the government. Otherwise, let them do it for themselves. David, that, let me. Uh, sorry, Carlos, you can you can finish. Yeah, like um, uh, uh, there's some military intervention. It's not going to happen, and I don't think it's even desirable. But there are other ways to support the civil disobedience movement, and of course, never recognize this uh, military junta. Fantastic, David. Let me let me advertise one piece of a former guest of ours who is also going to be this month's guest on Guerrilla History, Professor Alexander Avina. So, talking about the opium and the CIA, uh, mm -hmm. Alex wrote a piece for NACLA titled "A History of Inconvenient Allies and Convenient Enemies," talking about how the U.S. Empire used drugs to advance its geopolitical goals. Highly recommended piece, and it ties. Uh, the next two episodes of Guerrilla History together with Professor Avini at the end of March and Carlos at the end of April. Thank you so much. Carlos Sardina Galash is the author of The Burmese Labyrinth, Henry Hakamaki, 
Huckamacki is the host of Guerrilla History. Subscribe to his newsletter by going to patreon.com forward slash Huck1995. And Grace Jackson is coming to us from Great Britain, and she is the co-host of Literary Hangover. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Please come back. Thanks, Carlos. Thank you. That's my pleasure. Thank you. Great job, all of you. It's a privilege. It really is. Well, let us now go to Toronto, where the founder and president of Yuck Yucks, Mark Breslin, is standing by. Yuck Yucks is the largest comedy club chain in North America, if not the world. And we have time to talk about two things that are very important to me. Woody Allen and Megan. What, what do you want to start with? Well, first of all, I wanted, I, I, there's just a little factoid I wanted to get out. Okay. Um, something about me I probably never told you. And I was thinking about it the other day, um, which is that, do you know about 20, I, I don't know, must have been 25 years ago, I had dinner with Ayn Rand. Did you know this? The Ayn Rand. Well, yeah, not an imitation. The objectivist. Yes. And so I, Alan Greenspan, the, the woman Alan Greenspan had an affair with. I, I gather. So, um, and he wasn't the only one. And I don't know whether she was interested in me for anything. But I will say this. She said, take me out. I love seafood. So I took her to a great seafood restaurant and she ordered the selfish. <laughs> which I, I thought was... You know, and you, with a nice and, lemon burr. Uh-huh. And you said, <laughs> so how I was it? That with you. And she shrugged. Okay. She went, eh. Yeah, she shrugged. I shrugged, actually. When right. the bill came, I, I didn't shrug. So you didn't date Ayn Rosenbaum or Rosenberg? No, I never. No, we never dated. We never dated. Although, and this is this is the true part of the story. Um, uh, I don't know how long ago I got a call from the president of the Ayn Rand Canada Society, and they said we have chosen you man of the year. The I am giving you the Ayn Rand Award, and I turned it down. Good for you. What they did was they took one tiny thread of what I believe in and what I stand for, and then they made that the the most important part. So you know, yeah. So I said thanks, but no thanks. So I never got the award. I never took the award. Anne Rosenbaum came to us from from Russia. I just looked it up. It was Rosenbaum. Yeah. And she changed her name because she was working in Hollywood as a screenwriter. She was a playwright on Broadway. Failed. Wasn't good yeah. at it. Yeah. So, you know, L. Ron was a failed science fiction writer. He created a religion. And uh, Ayn created a, a philosophy behind greed, behind selfishness, that launched an entire generation of economic thinking that's stripped this country of everything well, it all goes also, back to her and she, and also, she also influenced an enormous number of teenagers who were just starting to read serious books i mean you know when you were 17 everybody had a copy of atlas shrugged in their pocket um so um and you go through that iron man phase i never went through the phase i read the books but i never went through the phase the idea is i i I was told not to read it but the idea is that either in the fountainhead or atlas shrugged the great industrialists go on strike they decide that's the fountainhead no sorry that's atlas shrugged that's atlas shrugged 
So they, they say, that's it. We're, we're, we're un, underappreciated, overtaxed. You're on your own. To which it I was, say, goodbye. Well, her idea was like they formed a genius union, right? <laughs> and they went on strike. Uh-huh. Now, many years later, um, uh, what's his name? Uh, the guy who ran for pre- uh, president, Ralph Nader. Yes. Ralph Nader wrote a book, a novel, which was the obverse of of that book, where the uh, uh, all the uh, industrialists and uh, brilliant entrepreneurs get together to save the world. Only the rich, only the rich can save us. That's right. Which right. I thought was a, a, a satire, but evidently he didn't mean it as a satire. No, I think he thinks that there's a billionaire out there with a conscience. Uh, you know, behind every fortune is a series of crimes and you don't get to be Balzac. a billionaire. I'm sorry. That's Balzac. I I'll get some. My, what is what is my uh, ball sack have to do with anything? Your ball sack um, said that. that Who was, was ball sack? Who was he? Balzac, which is the most, one of the more unfortunate names. It is the Gentile French version of Lipschitz, um, <laughs> which is a terrible name as well. And you know what interests me about people named Lipschitz is when they change their name to Lifschitz, as if it makes any difference. <laughs> like once you change the name, change the name. We'll call it Lifschitz. What's the difference? Hey, um, by anyway, the way, uh, uh, yeah. Proust. Yes. What was his first name? Mar- Marcel Proust? No, Lenny. Lenny, Lenny Proust. Proust. He was brilliant. <laughs> Brilliant, brilliant. Changed the field of comedy. And I do have a joke about that and a story about that if you want me to go. But did you know Marcel Proust was Jewish? Yes. Did you know he was gay? Did you know that he didn't really bite into a Madeline? It was arugula? Didn't know that part. But he couldn't have said that in the, I don't think it would have sold. I don't think that would have sold um, in in the books. Gay and Jewish. Do you know anybody who's read Proust in the original? In the original Yiddish? The original French. You did. Nope. Probably my mother. Read, my, my mother. Pro- knows, my mother probably. Somebody who read who read all thirteen volumes in the original French, and they're not French. I don't know anybody who did that. Yeah, that's commitment. Right, but I know my mother was studying French, and uh, anyway, so you have a. a you were going to tell me something about Marcel Proust or Balzac. Well, first, ball, the the quote you you um, the quote you used about at the heart of every uh, at the heart of every fortune lies a crime is Balzac. Balzac said that. And who was he? Balzac was a great French novelist who was kind of the Tom, excuse me, the Tom Wolfe of his day, um, in that his novels were um, he would take um, society and all its levels and all its classes apart. Um, he's a great novelist. The stuff is. Well worth reading. Balzac is fantastic. Now, is it true uh, that read him in- when, when it was cold outside, Balzac was very, uh, you could barely see him, but when it was warm, he kind of was droopy. And he, he, I like this. But let's, I like let's talk this. about Woody Allen and Megan or Megan. Or did okay. you have something else you wanted to talk sure. about? No, 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 no. These are, these are good topics for sure. Should we start? Let's start with Meghan and Harry. Okay. I saw it last night. Did you see it? I guess you did. Yes, I did. It was riveting. Oprah did a great job. Oprah did a great job. But really, I was shocked. Shocked 
to find out that there was racism in the British royal family. <laughs> I just couldn't believe it. It was such a bombshell to me. Um, you know, I, I, I also thought the suicide stuff felt like a, like a, I, I wasn't so sure she was just not looking for some pity there. I'm not sure. I mean, we all have suicidal thoughts, but to bring them to the forefront, was she really seriously suicidal? I don't know. It just sort of made you, you know, want to it create a vulnerability in her that I don't really know whether she really has. Well, I was I this is what I thought, because I knew I was going to watch the Woody Allen thing afterwards because it's Sunday night. I was thinking when she said she had to turn over her passport and her keys and her wallet when she married Harry, I thought of Mia Farrow and Rosemary's Baby, that she was marrying in to a demonic cult mm. where there was no way out. And whether or not I think she was, I do think, I do think she got seduced by the firm and you're on your own. You, you, you think you're going to be taken care of and they, they don't let you out of the palace out of their purview and I could see it being suffocating. I mean, could you handle that? I doubt it. I doubt it. I'm not, I'm, you know, you know that um, if you're the son or the daughter of the Royal family, you have to curtsy or bow every time you see your parents, whether they're people in the room or not. Um, you know that you travel with your own toilet seat uh, when you go around. Well, that I already do. But that well, I hang mine around my neck and <laughs> I cover it with flowers like I just won the Kentucky Derby. <laughs> so, um, but uh, if yeah, I, I'm not I'm not big on protocol. I'm not big on tradition. So none of these things would be good for me. I don't think I would last very long. And who do you think was the? I know who was concerned about the complexion, Archie's complexion. Who do you think it was? Philip. Of course not it was Philip. Not the queen. I get, I don't get that, that vibe from her. I get an accepting vibe from, from Queen Elizabeth. Um, and also, you know, if they're smart, they know that the world is changing. Um, you go to the UK, it's as multiracial as the United States or Canada now. Um, and they're going to have to make some changes and allow some people into the royal family if they want to keep this idiocy going and i call it idiocy because you know tell me if i was saying i was talking to my wife about this tell me if you agree with this that jews don't understand a monarchy i, I just don't understand it in my house we never when i was growing up we never talked about it the royal family meant nothing to us even but, though but, but royalty royalty goes all the way back to the old testament king david know, but it's been a while since we had kings since solomon and david it's been it's been quite a while i mean i know netanyahu would like to think of himself in this kingly role but i just don't understand the idea of a monarchy i know i know what political function it serves but it's just of no interest to me these people are not interesting to me there Never are happened. if you look at the old testament it's kind of interesting I think you, I haven't read the Old Testament in a couple of years, but you had judges like Samuel saying to the Israelis, okay, you got me, but you want a king? Let's go find a king then. Oh, there, here's David. Now, so there's something baked into our DNA. There, we, we want a political system 
But at times we also want the son of God to lead us. I mean, that's basically what the, the queen and the king, you know, other than uh, Jesus. I'm asking, I'm asking a simpler question. Do how Jews understand Jewish, this? Yes. How many I, Jewish people do you know? Uh, me. Really? I'm really a prince. I was raised as a prince. I was raised to listen to Prince, which is not <laughs> the same thing. But Sign of the Times is one amazing album. But weren't anyway. you, I'm, I'm being serious, and I'm not trying to perpetuate a stereotype. I'm a prince. I don't have any money. I don't have a title. I don't have any land. But my mother and father just wanted me to read. That's it. They wanted just me wanted to you see. to what? Sorry? I was raised to read. Oh, to read. Okay. If, if, I, if I was reading, then all was well. With the, it, I could have been a serial killer, but as long as I was, you know, it didn't matter. As long as, yeah, so I do mother, understand. I my, my mother went even further. She would say, you shouldn't do anything. You should just read and talk. Read and talk, <laughs> but you shouldn't do anything. That's right. how she talked, by the way. That was a good impression. Right. So I do understand. Uh, I think but there... You're not, yeah, but you're not answering my question. Okay, what's the you question? You grew up with a lot of Jewish people. Yes. Well, the question is simple. Some would say I grew up question. with too many Jewish people. You can never have enough Jews in your life. Sorry. It's just the way it is. More <laughs> Gentiles should have more Jews in their lives. Yes. But the problem with Jews is that Jews hog other Jews. <laughs> and the word hog is in that. <laughs> so, um, no, when you were growing up, did people, did the people in your world, your friends, your pals, your parents, uh, your friends' parents, did they follow what was happening with the royal family? Yes. Because in my world, no one cared. No because, one because cared the, all. Because you're part of the Commonwealth. You're from Canada. We still didn't care. The Jews didn't care. They did not care. We couldn't understand what the fuss was all about. And that was true for all my friends and all my friends' parents, who were all probably from the same sort of world that you grew up in, to a kind of, you know, professional class, uh, aspirational group, not immigrants. Were your parents immigrants? I'm the uh, grandson of immigrants. Yeah. So, so yeah, like me. So it's uh, we just didn't care. But anyway, I watched the I watched the I watched the interview. Um, Prince Charles is problematic. Yeah, I never got not a good to talk to Harry. He, his son is in crisis, well, and he's not taking calls from his own son. Uh, and worse, they take away the, the they take away his security detail. Okay, I can kind of understand that he's not part of the family anymore. He says, "I don't want to work." But why are we using taxpayers' money to? Well, it's his father. Why doesn't his father, who is very, 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 very rich, fork out the three million a year that it would probably cost to have proper security for his son, for his son, and who save us? His mother. I mean, so we have. I mean, save us from his effing Netflix and Spotify deals. Why do we have to listen to this crap? To subsidize their security. Well, his father should be paying for it. Yes. And that tells you everything about, you know, what what comes first, family or, or this, this crazy lineage. And I would still marry into it. In a second. Right. I want the jewels. <laughs> That's all I care about. 
Well, it goes to show you that you, if you're part of the royal family, you don't get the jewels. You really belong to the country. You're either a working royal or mm -hmm. you're a non-person. Yeah. I, it's, a pretty, it's a pretty stupid job when you think about it. It's a pretty stupid job. I think it's so selfless. I don't know whether you heard this, but I think today or last week, Barbados said that they were going to sever all um, ties with Britain. I didn't know that. Yeah. So uh, Barbados will be the first of all those Caribbean islands that have that are going to say, forget it. We're we want to be complete. We don't want to be part of the Commonwealth anymore. And that's her thing. The Queen built the Commonwealth once the empire broke apart. After yes. World War II, she built yeah. the Commonwealth. I think Meghan came to Bal Balmoral for Christmas in 2019. And Prince Andrew had been named in the Epstein case by then. He was walking around Balmoral for Christmas, drinking. He was obviously out of his mind, and he's a child molester. Meghan looked at him and said, this is a third-tier royal. I don't want my son Archie to, to have his destiny. I don't want my kid ending up like Prince Andrew. We're getting out of here. Yeah, I, I don't feel I don't feel any bad feelings about them about them leaving at all. But well, yeah, I, I hope they do better. Yeah. But generally, I don't care. This is what I'm trying to say to you, David. I don't care what happens to this clique of, of you know, bog worshippers. I, I, I don't need them in my life. I do. Okay. They're a distraction. You and I need to, to I need to be reminded that people who are prettier, sharper, wealthier than I am are human beings and have the same fears and regrets that I do. I found it very nourishing. Well, I would feel that way if I felt that way about Megan, but let's face it, she was a third-rate actress <laughs> that, you know, at best was going to have, you know, Carrie Ann Moss's career. <laughs> <laughs> at best. You know, she'd find one role that was emblematic and she would play that on as long as she could. I don't see a lot of specialness there, although I liked the way she talked. I didn't believe a lot of it. But what about an emotional investment in Harry? He's, he's Princess Di's son. She was like neglected him. by the royal family. Prince Charles abandoned her, left her to die with Dodie. A pox on all their houses, but, as Shakespeare once said. But, but it's Prince Harry. He served in Afghanistan, the Invictus Games. Well, who has he ever hurt? He's tried his best. He deserves our support. I still say, I don't care. And sometimes that's a position well worth taking. Well, you're un-American. You I'm, bet. <laughs> all right. I'm let's, really un-Canadian, though. We're still part of the Commonwealth. You're un-Canadian. Does anybody ever say you're un-Canadian? Is that a term? No, not really. Yeah. Not really. They just tell me I'm an asshole. But um, <laughs> it's on an individual rather than a uh, group basis that I'm rejected. Right. So let's turn to Woody Allen. This was it number three last night on it's number three. It was number three. Yeah. Okay. It was number three. If you were to design a documentary to take somebody like me who viewed Woody the same way he viewed the royal family. I mean, he's Jewish royalty. Is that fair to say? 
Yes. Yeah, I'd go even further, but sure. I found myself shouting at the screen, you monster. You mon-. I mean, it really is stacked against him, isn't it? It is. I wouldn't scream, you monster, because I just feel if this really did happen the way it happened, it's more like, you sad, sad individual. I feel so sorry for you that this is who you really are. And you've worked so hard to make people believe that it isn't who you are and that it's all a game and it's all a character and it's all these different things. Nobody could have been, and I said this last week, nobody could have been a bigger fan of Woody than myself. There's Woody Allen, there's Leonard Cohen, and there's Bob Dylan in my, in my world. That's my holy trinity. And I always, when, I always wanted to be like them, depending on what the situation was. Sometimes I would pull out a Woody. Well, no, that doesn't sound good at all. Um, uh, that's what he did, actually. Yes. He pulled out a Woody. Yeah. Um, look, the very fact that he calls himself Woody, doesn't that suggest something? Uh-huh. That there's yeah. some sexual issue going on with him, you know? Yes. His name, his nickname wasn't Flash <laughs> or, or something. Flash, right. You know, Flash Allen. Um, right. Sometimes it was, it was Leonard Cohen. Sometimes, it, and, you know, I'd be with a, with a woman and I wanted to impress her, so I'd speak in a really low voice. And I would talk like this and I would say things like, I know if I stroke your hair, a thousand vermilion butterflies. <laughs> uh, stuff like that. Hey, hey, when I was in, when I was in college, that was a good line. Mm-hmm. That was my line. Um, and then sometimes it would be Bob Dylan where, you know, I would just sort of hunch my shoulders and <laughs> sort of, you know, say something really cynical out of the side of my mouth because that's what they deserve. (laughs) So those three men, those three Jewish men were my, that's how I learned to be a man. Ironically, Cohen is the only one who changed his name for show business. So yes, that's right. (laughs) (laughs) So yeah, I found it very upsetting and, and, uh, it, he's an actor. Woody Allen. We, we think of him as a writer and he created this character who we thought was the was the actual Woody Allen. But he's a predator. At least that's what Kirby Dick, by the way, nice name for a documentarian. Yeah. Dick is making a uh, is making a film about Woody. Uh, really now. <laughs> by the way, did you ever see uh, Kirby Dick had a, had a movie? I think it was this, one of his first documentaries about the guy who is a performance artist who nails his penis to a board. Do you know about this? No, but I've had Kirby on the show. So are you doing a joke? Go ahead. Yes. And what is the name of it? It's not a joke. It? No, no, it's not a joke. It was one of his first films. It's really interesting. Um, I just can't remember what it's this called. This is about a performance artist yeah. who nails his... He nails his dick to a board. That's his thing. Hmm. And you see, like, it's, it's, it, you know, you see it explicitly on camera. It's a very interesting Picasso, document. I believe, is his... No, I didn't have it. The guy's first name is Bob, but I can't remember the guy's last name. But look it up. I'm sure you can find it somewhere. He, he literally nails. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. Wow. Wow is right. That, that, you know, when that's happened to me, it hasn't happened because I wanted it to. <laughs> it happened because I was in the wrong place at the wrong time. <laughs> 
Hey, are you reading? This is yes. This is, I but that book arrived and I've started it. The Cliff Nesterov uh, book. The Cliff. Yes, and I well, we'll have it finished by the end of the week, and I can review it for you next week if you'd like. Well, this is this is exciting because I've been very concerned that you have not been reading. And by the way, I have had a problem reading in uh, in the past week. Uh, just nothing is getting, I, I feel, but you know, you see, but I still read. read, but I still read. You read newspapers. I, I skim. I just sit. I, I, because I was never a great reader like you. I, I read I, newspapers. I still read the newspapers. Yeah. So it's not like I'm not reading. I read magazines. I have a magazine fetish. In fact, I buy so many magazines and it's kind of sad to see what's happened to the magazine business in the last five years. Um, you know, the weeklies have become bi-weeklies. The bi-weeklies have become monthlies. The monthlies have become bi-monthlies. Entertainment Weekly is a monthly. That tells you everything you need to know. Right. And, and bi is for heterosexuals now. Yes, the magazine buy. It's just they don't have enough money for both. (laughs) What's uh, hold it? I came up with a title for your segment last week. Oh, something happened in Canada. Oh, yeah. Except that that's (laughs) never true. So I don't know whether you can really do. I guess it would be ironic. So sure. But didn't something happen in Canada? (laughs) There was something uh, because I read. Did happen? I can't remember what it was. (laughs) Come on. There was. I I missed it. Uh, no, there was something with Trudeau. What what did Trudeau do? He did something. I can't remember what it was. You mean this week? Yeah, there was something that was outrageous. I I don't remember that. Okay, I don't, I can't remember what it was. So you're reading, how many hours a day are you able to sit? Two. I have a child, remember, and he is at home and needs most of my attention. Right. Right. You're going to miss it. You're going to miss it. What am I going to miss? When the police take him away. Take him away? That's what I hope. For his own good. I, my daughter. I called the police on my parents when I was four years old. Really? Truly. And they came to the house. And they said, what's going on here? And I said, oh, my parents won't give me, my mother won't give me whatever I want, and I can't remember what it was. Uh, and they had a good laugh, and they left. But I called, I knew how to call, my, I knew how to call the police. And what happened when they left? Did, did your parents get mad at you? Or? Then they beat me, and then I called the police again, <laughs> and it was like the boy who cried wolf, they wouldn't come. It was pointless. I only hurt myself in the long run. My daughter showed up for, we do office hours. It, it must have gone, it, it was supposed to be 26 hours. And then my daughter came on the last two hours and took it over for a couple of hours. And uh, it was, it, it's interesting to see, she's, like, she's 30 years old. Can you imagine your son being 30? Being, no. No, I uh, remember I, I never wanted a family and I never wanted a child. And all of this is all very new for me. And it's all a late start. And, and you said you said to your wife, uh, go have a kid. I, I, I just don't want to have to raise it. You live on one side of Toronto. I'll live on the other side. So, no, what, you didn't have the Woody Allen arrangement. With no, it didn't, it didn't work. Out. No, we were living together. And it, 
I was uncomfortable about the idea right from the start, but eventually I just gave in. And I'm glad I did because yeah. he is, it's one of the best relationships I've ever been in in my life. And I've been in a lot of good relationships right. of all kinds, business relationships, uh, romantic relationships, friendship relationships. So I, I know what a good relationship is. And right. this is one of the best, if not the best. Right. So long may it run. One, one of the gifts, to, I haven't smoked dope in 30 years, but one of the, one of the, the sense memories, then we'll wrap it up. One of the sense memories I have for marijuana was being able to take myself out of my head and look at something objectively and go, wow. So like, and I've had the, two experiences like this, uh, watching Donald Trump speak reminds me of when I was stoned. Like I watch when, when Trump was president and I watched him on C-SPAN, it was like I was, I could step back and just see how incredible it is that this guy was president of the United States. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the other night I was watching my daughter, who's 30 years old, on the screen at office hours. And I would, it was like I was stoned. I went, oh my God, this is somebody. It, it was just breathtaking uh, to see somebody. And I could, I just remember her one way and now she's a, you know, uh, fully formed human being. It, it's uh, breathtaking. Yeah, I mean, I hope I'm alive to see that since, you know, my age is advanced, but one never knows. You know, when I was born, my father was 53 and he cried because he said, I'll never live to see my son's bar mitzvah. But he was 91 when he died and he got to see a lot. So, Oh, so he had to pay back. for it. Sorry? Yes, he had to pay for it. Oh, that's too bad. Continuously. But I just want to say, you know, it's funny you say you haven't smoked dope in 30 years. Um, I still like smoking dope. Um, I don't do it excessively, but I, I never do it. Um, during the day, uh, and uh, certainly not one of what I call on duty with my my son, but I did it once uh, when he was an infant. I smoked a joint and changed his diaper. And let me tell you that shit never seemed so shitty. <laughs> it was unbelievable. I was just looking at it. I was, just like and it, it all came out from, from, from little ass. How is that possible? And I just kept wiping, and there was more, and it was more, and it felt like and I was high as a kite. And I thought it's just going to keep coming. It's going to be there's going to be a stream of it. I got to get a bucket or something. What am I going to do? It's the only time that I ever got high and was around my son. Right. And you called your dealer and said, "That's some good shit." I said, yes, that's right. Well, no, I sold it uh, later on I, uh, on, on eBay um, as really good, yeah, powerful stuff. My, you just brought back, I remember, I, you know, I, I didn't know how to change a diaper. And after, like within 24 hours, you become a world-class, you have a black belt in changing diapers. Yeah. It, it just, and then you forget, when, then they get to a certain age and like you lose the ability, but I can remember changing somebody's diaper and then uh, uh, making a <laughs> making a sandwich and then picking up. The, I'm, I'm ashamed to tell you this. And my, my mother calls, my mother calls and she goes, what are you doing? I said, well, I just changed so and so. And now I'm eating a sandwich and I picked up the phone. She goes, did you wash your hands? And I and I said, uh, wow, 
That's what fatherhood does to somebody with OCD. I'm a, a compulsive hand washer. And for a brief, for about like a year, never. Anyway, I think I embarrassed myself just now. No, you didn't. You revealed something of yourself. So let me just say, probably to end this uh, session today, that one yeah, of the yes, advantages—yes, one of—one of the advantages of having a child so late in your life is that you change their diaper for years, knowing that many years later they will be returning the favor. <laughs> I love you. Thank you. you Mark Breslin, I'll talk to you next week. Next week sounds Thank good. Thank you so much. Okay. Let Be us well. now go to California 30, uh, 30th Congressional District, where Brad Sherman is their congressman, but Shervin Azami wants to replace him. Welcome back to the show, Shervin. Thanks for having me on, David. Lots to talk about. You, I should mention that everybody should go to ShervinForTheValley.com, S-H-E-R-V-I-N, the number four, TheValley.com, and support this man. He is running for Congress to take uh, Brad Sherman, uh, mm -hmm. put him out to pasture. Retire him. Yeah. So I have done nothing but crap on Pelosi and Biden and Schumer in the past two months. Mm -hmm. But the $2 trillion, $1.9 trillion stimulus package, do you have to give them some credit? Doesn't this delineate the, 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 the fine points between Republicans and Democrats where it was the, the, in the first year of Trump's presidency, in the first year of Reagan, the first year of W. It was tax cuts for the, the wealthiest, a top-down approach to the economy. This stimulus package falls short in many ways, but it is a bottom-up approach to fixing the economy, isn't it? it? It does say something about who the Democrats could be. Well, it, it says something about the type of leaders, in quotes, Republicans are when you had the Obamas come in and have to start their presidency with a stimulus package. And now Biden, the same thing after inheriting the mess from Trump. Right. But the fact of the matter is that no two crises are the same. And the situation that we are in now is much more dire because it's not just a, a strictly economic issue. It's also a public health pandemic. And that pandemic undergirds the pain that people are feeling. And our rigged capitalist system has further exposed those injustices and led people on the margins to be even more disproportionately impacted by the fallout of the pandemic. And... You know, are there are there good things in the package? Yes. Billions for vaccines, billions for schools to safely reopen, cutting child poverty in half. We've even heard Bernie talk about these things. These are I'm not saying there aren't good items in the package. Well, well, well let me just well, let me just let me just give credit where credit's due, because people have said to me 
you know, who do you like? And, you know, if you hate, you know, I love Bernie. There are Easter eggs in the stimulus package that mm -hmm. that may be transformative, like this uh, monthly allowance, this child tax credit, where each child in America gets something like 300 some odd dollars a month that gets sent Cutting to them. Child poverty in half is fantastic. But why does the wealthiest nation on earth have child poverty to begin with? Right. I, I, again, though, again, again, I, I just so my audience gets news before they get the criticism. Uh, sending $300 a month, it may become permanent. Mm -hmm. uh, subsidizing child care, as I understand it, is built into this package. Uh, you got to give Biden some credit here, making it easier to pay for Obamacare. I mean, you got you got to stop and say, okay, this. Well, that, that's an important one, though. Make it easier to pay for Obamacare, not health care. Health care should be free. I'm sorry. Taxpayers, billions upon billions. Of, I think it was forty-six billion, if I remember correctly. Don't cite me on that number exactly. Okay. But in terms of bailouts for the health insurance industry, the way, but it's coded as subsidies because those funds are used to pay for the cost of care for the American people. Right. Well, Anthem, Blue Cross, Humana, they all posted record second quarter earnings, doubling their already billions in profit during the pandemic as millions lost their employer-based healthcare coverage. So us stepping in again during this crisis and again, bailing out the insurance companies to make sure that the American people have health care, uh, in my mind, is not a solution. It's a palliative measure. It's a stopgap measure. And again and again, during these crises, we celebrate the stopgap measures because they're necessary, but we always stop there. We don't push for the structural reforms to prevent these crises from happening or to at least mitigate the worst of their impacts. And you know, we already know, and your viewers already know, that there's nothing moderate about having 32 million people live on starvation wages. There's nothing moderate about not including the extension of the eviction moratorium in this package. There's nothing moderate about having to choose between paying for food and paying for rent. What is so infuriating. But they are subsidizing. Is, there is they are subsidizing people's rent now. There is there is there is funding for it. But when you look at the funding formulas, you have smaller population states, rural states, predominantly white states getting a higher share in proportion than New York or California or other states. So okay. there are issues with the formula itself that need to be addressed. And you don't you don't hear about that kind of stuff and the talking points and the sound bites, which right. I think um, is. Uh, an issue. Um, so you're saying and, you know, that once again, people who live in sparsely populated states are overrepresented right. and they're getting right. a bigger share of the pie. Correct. Okay. Correct. Correct. And states like California and others where the issues uh, are disproportionately placed. Okay. Um, and like, look, like, like I was saying earlier, there, there's nothing 
moderate about allowing folks to stay on starvation wages. I, I wish we got to the point where the, the moderate position was saying that we need to tax the wealthy. The moderate position is that no one in the wealthiest nation on earth should not have health care, should not have housing, should not have their basic necessities met. And it's really infuriating that again and again, it's always a question of process over outcome. You know, we saw Kirsten Cinema vote no on a $15 minimum wage that leaves behind 839,000 Arizonans and 32 million people nationally. And her response was, well, because I don't think it should go through budget reconciliation. The American people don't care about the process. They care about the outcome. Right. They care about their bottom line. Well, do I have to choose between food and housing? Do I have to go bankrupt because of a medical procedure to put my kid through college? Those are the things that matter. We need to stop focusing on process and start focusing more on outcomes and delivering for the American people and not being afraid of sticking our neck out there for the structural reforms they're demanding us to fight for. So if you're going to go down, if you're going to die on a hill, you die because something's right to die for. Dying for Mm -hmm. process Mm -hmm. is not where you stake your... Why, Why would you stake your political claim on process? It's completely ridiculous. And Joe Manchin, whose daughter jacked up the price of EpiPens mm-hmm. and, and made close to $100 million as a pharmaceutical CEO, he's saying that if you raise unemployment benefits beyond $300 a month, that people won't want to go back to work. While his daughter, while he got his daughter a job at Mylar or Mylan, and uh, she went on to earn millions and millions of dollars. You know, on, on, on the topic of price gouging with pharmaceuticals, um, I think I may have shared this on a previous uh, uh, episode with, with you all, but how there's been a huge increase in fentanyl related opioid overdose deaths among our unhoused here in LA. And our campaign stepped in and purchased uh, 5,000 worth of naloxone kits. Uh, naloxone called Narcan. Um, it's a nasal spray that revives someone who's experienced an opioid-related overdose, whether it's heroin, whether it's fentanyl, whether it's synthetic opioids, prescription opioids, what have you. Well, naloxone was first manufactured in 1961. It came off patent in the 90s. It used to cost $1, $1, up until the opioid crisis. And as soon as people started dying, the company started profiting off of death. It cost us 150 bucks per naloxone kit. So with that five grand investment, if it was 20 years ago, think about how much we would have gotten. Now we were able to purchase 30 kits, only 30 kits with five grand worth of money. Now, and now the head of Pfizer and now the head of Pfizer is lobbying Biden not to allow third world countries to develop the vaccine without paying royalties to Pfizer. They they won't allow it to be open source, even though. And on COVID again, too, Gilead, who manufactured remdesivir, 
they received 6.5 milligrams, remdesivir being the drug that's used to treat COVID-19, one of the drugs. Um, Gilead received 6.5 billion in taxpayer subsidies for their R&D. And they started charging people over 3,000 a pop for the regimen, even though their R&D costs were subsidized by us and they're profiting now on the back end on our end as well. And yet still claim that the reason why they have to increase their prices is because of the high cost of R&D. Well, your R&D is literally subsidized by the taxpayer. We're paying for it. You're claiming those costs as the reason why you increase the cost of your products, even though you're not financing it. And then you still feel entitled to then eat us on the back end and charge us as much as you want for that same product. It's ridiculous. It's egregious. And we just, we keep accepting it because we say, well, that's the way the system works. That's the way the healthcare system works. That's the way capitalism works. And we never question it. And I am sick and tired of not questioning it, of our politicians not questioning it or throwing their hands up in the air, whether it's because they're financed by those same companies or because they don't have the courage to use your analogy, die on the hill of what's right. Well, Biden, who, you know, I'm a Bernie, Bernie supporter. Uh, it is conceivable that he's going to put some serious numbers up on the board before January 1st of next year. It is conceivable. I mean, this, this stimulus package is going to pass. It mm-hmm. is conceivable that... It will pass, but I do hope, I do, if I can interrupt you really fast, progressives at this moment need to unite. Because it still has to go back to the House. They got to go conference it. They got to reconcile the differences. The progressives cannot take their foot off the gas of including a $15 minimum wage. Right. And that it cannot looks like that's not going to happen. It looks like that's not going to happen. Well, then, if it's not going to get into budget reconciliation, then where's the standalone bill? Why aren't Schumer, Pelosi, and Biden saying we're going to get into a standalone bill? Which even that, as we know, is an empty promise. We'll believe it when we see it. But why are they at least changing the narrative to that? Saying, all right, fine, because of process, we don't want to get into budget reconciliation, but we commit to doing it as standalone. That's a statement you can make right. to demonstrate you're still committed to the outcome and want to go through another process to achieve it. Right. And, and, and the moderates in the Democratic Party, I agree with you about the $15 minimum wage. It's unconscionable. But the moderates, the Joe Mansions of West Virginia, where it's the poorest state in the union, and he's fighting a $15 an hour minimum wage. But they're going to say that this stimulus package is going to light the economy on fire. That in six months, this is what the Democrats are saying. This is what the, the moderates in the Democratic Party. And a lot of Democrats believe this, that this stimulus package is twice as large as Obama's stimulus package from 11 years ago. And, and it, smaller than the one that was passed by the Republicans in March of last year, the CARES Act. That was okay. $2.2 trillion. But this one is going directly to the people. You know, the CARES Act was a bailout for businesses. A lot of that money went to the Federal Reserve. Yep. The, yep. the Democrats, yep. Schumer is going to say to you, this is $1.9 trillion that's going directly to the 
the bottom half of this country. That's what they're going to say. And then you have Democrats like Larry Summers, who should rot, rot in hell, who says this is too much and it's going to light the economy on fire. It's going to overheat. And no. Right. I agree with you. But they're going to say we're either going to get inflation or what's going to happen. The reason you don't have to raise the minimum wage is if the economy is on fire, employers have no choice but to raise the minimum wage, that the the market will they'll have to define employees. The, the, the argument from neoliberals is always that the market will figure it out. Uh, if the market wanted a $15 minimum wage, the market would give a $15 minimum wage. If the market wanted a $30 minimum wage, it would give it. Well, the fact of the matter is, for the past several decades, as wages have stagnated, profits for corporations in top 1% have exploded. We all know this. The market will not solve the problem because the market is rigged to maximize benefits and profits for the wealthiest among us. That will not happen. As, as I said at the outset, are there a lot of good things in this package? Absolutely. From cutting child poverty in half to billions for vaccinations to ensure every American is vaccinated, we can get back to a, a post-pandemic world to providing billions for schools to make sure our teachers and our administrators are vaccinated. There are a lot of uh, teacher labor unions out here in LA that even though the state of California is pushing for reopening schools, they're saying, no, we wanna be vaccinated first. And I stand in total solidarity with them. Everyone deserves a safe workplace. And we already talked about cutting child poverty in half as well. I, I am not in any way saying there aren't a lot of fantastic things in this package. There are, but there are even. By the way, more I just important. just to just to clarify, I agree with everything you're saying. But I'm hosting a show, and 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 I can't be an echo chamber. And the reason I bring up these issues is because the closer we get to Biden signing the stimulus package, the more prone we are to going back to brunch because the mainstream media is going to put us we'll move up. They're going to move we'll on move and they're going to start saying they're going to convince enough Americans that this is the best we can do, given yep. the Republicans yep. and given who Cinema and Joe Manchin are. And this is the, this is pretty good. We're going to be told this is pretty good it's enough that we're willing to do. I'm sorry, because we're not willing. It's enough that we're willing to do. Right. Because we're not willing to end the filibuster. Right. We're not willing to abolish the bird rule. We're not willing to abolish PAYGO. What is the bird rule? The bird rule is a very complicated rule that's part of budget reconciliation that's been in place for decades that dictates what kinds of policies and provisions can be put into a budget reconciliation bill. The bird rule is why budget reconciliation really has to try to be deficit and budget neutral. Can't raise or increase taxes. It's kind of thing that all relates back to the bird rule. And the bird rule is one of the main features that has uh, been an obstacle for Senator Sanders in pushing his $15 minimum wage as part of budget reconciliation. So these kinds of procedural things are there and they limit the structural reforms we can push for. But then the talking points back to the American people are that, well, we just can't keep doing more. The answer is we're not willing to do more. 
The government, our Congress controls the process. They create their own rules. They can then break their own rules and establish new ones that directly bail out the working people of this country the way they deserve to be bailed out. We can change the rules when we create them. It's a matter of political will. Here's what here's what I think is going to happen and what we're up against. Uh, I think he's going to pass. He may actually can he pass infrastructure through reconciliation? You can. There are limits on the amount of budget reconciliation bills he can do each congressional term. Uh, but yes, he, he can do infrastructure through budget reconciliation. Here's what and I'm on worried. the point. Of political will, I'm sorry. Political will. On the point of political will, Biden can initiate a transition to Medicare for all. Now he has that authority under the Affordable Care Act. He can cancel up to 50 care, even more of student debt. Now he doesn't even need Congress for either of those things. But while we've deported over 26,000 people under the Biden administration, starting from inauguration, over 26,000 people have been deported. So that, that still remains the priority. But making sure everyone has health care, why are we not putting our focus on that? Why is, he, focus separating, again on, is he separating yeah, families? Is he separating families the way Trump did? From what we've been hearing, the, the issue is not resolved. And opening new detention centers under a new name, under new guys, and the media is overlooking it. ICE is a rogue agency. ICE needs to be abolished. Amen. The focus is militarism. The focus is exploitation and incarceration, not a humanitarian immigration system. Right. Right. Is there a wave of new immigrants heading for America because Biden was elected? I, I thought I read that there seems to be since the election more children coming, being sent by their parents, that the problem has gotten worse. I think the problem, again, stems from a or the opportunity or, or the it's not a problem, an opportunity to welcome the men the way they welcome my grandparents. Well, I, I don't think it's still welcoming. I, I don't think ICE deporting 26,000 people is welcoming. No, no, I'm saying to frame it as an opportunity as opposed to a problem. I'm not following. I said the pro I. I misspoke by saying uh, referring to the children fling Guatemala and Honduras and Central America as a problem that's why do we have so many social issues in so many Central American countries what is it about American foreign policy and the war on drugs that has destabilized so many Central American countries that has led to an exodus of community members coming to the United States Again, it goes back to our decisions as an imperialist nation, how we finance the war on drugs. How we how train we train the generals here exactly. in the United States, here in Virginia. Exactly. And how we depose democratically elected leaders in those countries, impose puppet regimes that are pro-capitalist, that are pro-imperialist, and how those decisions undergird the massive migration to our borders. Again, taking a, a root cause approach, looking at how our decisions, our foreign policy mistakes have exacerbated the issue. Right. Right. I am. Uh, I, I think we're out of time. I, I know that Howie Klein is about. Howie, are you there? 
I am here. And your guest, uh, say hello to uh, Shervin. Hey, how are hey, you? Hey, Shervin, how are you doing? We, doing well. How about yourself? I'm rocking. We love him. L- let me tell everybody to go to ShervinForTheValley.com and support this man. He needs to represent the 30th Congressional District of California. If you know anybody who lives in the San Fernando Valley of California, tell them to volunteer for Shervin. And if you're an American citizen, send him money. Thank you, Shervin. You'll come back next week. You got it. Thanks for having me on, David. Thank you. Thank you so much. Good hearing your voice, Howie. Same. Let us now go to Los Angeles, California, where the founder and treasurer of the Blue America Pack is standing by. Howie Klein writes Down with Tyranny. And you have a guest for us, as I understand it. I do. And it's our first uh, U.S. Senate guest uh, of, of the cycle. Uh, someone who uh, I'm really, really excited about, Erica Smith. So Erica was a state senator, and now she's running for an open U.S. Senate seat. Um, uh, as you know, Burr is retiring, and there is there is not going to be an incumbent in this race. So it's going to be very, very important that we make sure that Chuck Schumer doesn't get an opportunity to uh, handpick some conservative loser candidate like he did last time. Well, let me introduce... Who you're going to inter- who you're going to interview? She is a minister, an educator, a former three-time state senator, mother of four. Erica Smith. She is a candidate for U.S. Senate in the battleground state of North Carolina, despite being outspent fifteen to one in 2020, going up against the DSCC back Cal Cunningham. She won more than four hundred and 30,000 votes. Please welcome Erica Smith, Senator Erica Smith. Good evening. I'm so glad to be here with you, David. Thank you. And and you know Howie Klein, and he will... Oh, absolutely. Hey, Howie, good to talk to you. Hey, Erica, how are you? I'm doing great. Good. So, Erica, let me just start off by uh, asking you a question that that I've been wondering about. Um, your district uh, was was a, a kind of a rural district, right? Not not an urban district. Am I correct there? Right. My district was 100% rural, and I was actually the first African-American woman and the first woman to serve my district in the 242 years that this district has been drawn. So, I mean, usually uh, Democrats... Uh, um, offer candidates from uh, big cities, and here and here you're saying no. Let's let's have a rural or someone who can can represent rural interests <clears throat> as well as urban interests. As the urban so that, that's absolutely. It's kind of a new take on things. That is a new take on things, but we've definitely seen how that worked in Georgia. 
Georgia is rural, just like North Carolina, and it was beating the bushes, going out to everybody, going everywhere, registering rural voters and building that new electorate that it takes to flip a state blue. And so that's what puts us in the best position to do that, because we have lived in, worked in, served in and represented rural parts of the state of North Carolina. And that's so important as you look to closing that rural and urban divide, but also so offering up candidates who have an agenda that addresses the concerns in the urban centers as well as in the rural parts of the state. So, so Erica, you know, obviously I know the answer to this question, but I think it's important for uh, our listeners to understand as well. What, what, are, you, what are you running on there? I, I noticed that last, in the last election, the uh, Senate candidate who lost uh, wasn't didn't seem to be running on much of anything, just running like an, against Trump or something like that. Uh, I know that you're much more of a, a policy oriented uh, campaigner. What, what are the policies that you're running on that you think are going to uh, win this election for you and increase uh, the number of uh, Democratic seats in the U.S. Senate? That is a a great question. Um, First, let me acknowledge that we did not have a strong agenda other than running against the other guy. And this time around, people are tired of those who run off of platitudes. We want progressive candidates with an agenda, with a survivor's agenda. Um, You want to know what issues I'm running on? I'm running on the issues that affect working families all across the state and all across this nation. I'm running off of addressing income inequality and we best address income inequality with a guaranteed or basic income or UBI. We also close the pay gap across genders and across ethnicities. Um, As a black woman, I only earn 65 cents on the dollar of a white male and other black and brown women earn less than that on the dollar of a white male, but yet we're taxed at one-to-one. And so we've got to have equal pay for equal work. And then we must also respect the dignity of work with a livable wage, $15 an hour. Those are the issues that I care about. Those are the issues that are creating challenges for working people all across the state. I also support a clean environment. I know that it is high time that we address our climate crisis, and we do that by creating millions of good paying jobs. And then thirdly, um, I also am running off of Medicare for All. This pandemic has shown just how broken our healthcare system is. Um, in, in a pandemic, when people can't get access to healthcare or equitable distribution of the vaccinations, and so the challenge for us is to hey, let's put an end to the days where a family goes bankrupt because somebody got sick. Now, those are just a few of the issues that I'm running off of, but I will be remiss if I didn't share that as a black woman running in the South, racial justice is very important to me. When I ran last time, I knew that black lives matter and we've got to address the systemic discrimination throughout our systems in this country. Uh, Those are a few reasons, but as we put it all together, we're building a North Carolina that works for all of us, not just some of us, not just for the wealthy or the well-connected. You, you know, Erica, um, I know this is probably not a, a, an issue that most people have foremost on their minds, like the issues that you just named, but it's going to be very, very hard for the Democrats in the Senate 
to pass any of the bills that Biden is going to ask for and that the House passes because of the, um, the, the Republicans filibustering them. And then you get like someone like either Manchin or Cinema saying, hey, you know, uh, you know, we don't agree. And and the chances of a filibuster uh, being reformed or done away with completely are very, very slight the way they are now. Where would you be if you were in the Senate? If you get to the Senate, where are you on the filibuster? I'm not in the Senate yet, and I'm already get rid of the Jim Crow filibuster. It has been used as a tool of obstruction against um, opportunities for civil rights in this nation. We have no place in 2021 for the filibuster. We must put an end to the filibuster. So, you know, I I think that... uh, You know, I want to add to that. Go ahead. Senator, go ahead. I'm sorry for the delay on my end. No, you're doing great. This is what happens when you have rural broadband. (laughs) (laughs) Very weak broadband. And so, um, you know, I also want to stress the importance is that we have to have more Democrats to get anything done in Washington, D.C. We are so fortunate that Vice President Harris can break the tie. But for many of these votes and to get this aggressive agenda that we need after being set back decades by the Trump administration, it is time for us to send true solid Democrats who are not afraid to fight and represent the people who send them there. You know, that's why I don't take a dime of corporate PAC money or fossil fuel money. Those people have enough guys working for them in Washington, D.C. Like Shirley Chisholm, I'm unbought and I'm unbossed and my priority is to represent the people and serve the people who hired me by their vote. Awesome. David, I don't want to, uh, you know, hog all the questions. But you're you're doing great, and this is fantastic. You are a minister. Senator? Can you hear me, Senator? Yes, I can hear you. You, not me. Yes, Senator, Howie is not a minister. Uh, But uh, you, you are a minister, is that correct? I am. I am an ordained uh, minister. I have been so for the last 20 years um, under the General Baptist State Convention in North Carolina. And are are you reluctant to run on Christian values? Because it sure feels like, you know, this is the argument that needs to be had, especially with a rural population how the Republicans can somehow seize the moral high ground and call themselves Christians. Why, why, why are the Democrats so reluctant? I'm sorry. I, I don't understand. I don't understand that dynamic because we, you know, must stop conceding or ceding the moral right or the faith and value system to the Republican Party, especially after they have thrown it all to the wind in this last administration. I am a person of faith. Um, My my faith and my religious belief is not going to interfere with anyone else's faith and religious beliefs. I firmly use my faith to inform me to build a more just, to build a more equitable 
to build a more accessible system um, and opportunities for all of us, black, white, brown, rich, poor, um, geographic, different locations, rural parts versus urban parts. And we're building a movement. This is about basic human rights like healthcare. This is about not, you know, something that's a basic utility and not a luxury like universal broadband. This is about the opportunity a man, you know, doesn't work, a man doesn't and eat, but the Bible tells us that a servant is worthy of their hire. And we have to raise the wage to a livable wage. It is untenable to think that we can live off of $7.25 an hour. It needs to be raised. Going back to my original question, feel free, Howie, to jump back in. Do you get... Okay, well, I just wanted to... I just want to follow up. Let me just follow up on this, because, Howie, you and I have talked about this for years, and I'm just wondering if the senator gets pushback from a, a certain segment of the left or the Democratic Party that doesn't want you, that might be ashamed that you're a minister, that you may lose votes for being a minister, that there's a, a, a secular element of the left that doesn't want well, you... It certainly didn't hurt uh, Reverend uh, Raphael Warnock uh, right next door in Georgia. Uh, he, he wound up, uh, you know, drawing more votes than uh, than Osroff did, who's kind of a secular kind of guy. And he he was from Dr. King's church, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. Ebenezer Baptist Church. Yeah. Do you get pushback from the left for being a no, minister? From, from the black community. The civil rights movement was led by by ministers, um, Baptist ministers, ministers of all faith and denominations. And so for me, it's not about my particular religious practice. It's about working as a woman of honor, integrity and character who is going to elevate the plight and the lives of people. Um, Whenever I do get pushback, I make it very clear that it is my faith that informs me to work so hard and do the right thing. You know, our faith, a basic tenet of our faith is that we were all created equal and that God is no respecter of persons, so neither should we. And it is far too long that the wealthy have continued to triple and quadruple their earnings in this pandemic while the poor are getting more poor and paying the burden of a broken economic system. So I look at um, what how we just said with Reverend Raphael Warnock. He was a man of faith. He was an ordained clergyman and he carried that ticket in Georgia. And so what I get is welcome and open arms from from Democrats and from even those within the party who have longed for the time that we can talk about our faith and use our faith to inform us of how to make solid political decisions that work for everyone and not just a few. What, one, one other question, Howie. I'm sorry to dominate. No, but, no, no, please. Just go right ahead. I'm oh, uh, preparing here anyway. Okay. Uh, well, that was my question. What are you making for dinner? No. Uh, so Howie and I have talked about this, That it's, and I think most of my listeners are infuriated that the Republicans have taken religion and, and, and try to present themselves as 
as the avatars of uh, Christianity, they're anything but. Uh, one of the things that uh, surprised me about the African-American community was when Congressman Clyburn put his thumb on the scale for Joe Biden in the primaries. And it, it turns out that we were told that there's a conservative streak in the African-American community. And now I'm reading that more Hispanics are, especially uh, male Hispanics, are turning to Trumpism, to turning to, uh, to the Republican Party. Is there a, a, a conservative streak among the African-American community in uh, North Carolina when it comes to economic issues? Well, <clears throat> the studies in the statistics show, I, my major was religious studies, Christian ethics, and political theology. That's what I wrote my dissertation on um, when I was at Howard University Divinity School. And what the studies have shown us is that African Americans are are in the South are more religiously conservative in their beliefs and what they support. And there's definitely, in my strong Judeo-Christian perspective, there has always been the teaching that there is a corollary between casting your cares at the altar on a Sunday morning and then going and casting your vote to realize those cares in the here and now. And so uh, fundamentally in the social justice, the liberation theology that we practice in the black church in the South is that we don't have to wait until the after a while we can have heaven here on earth, but there is responsibility. And so I would not necessarily say when it comes to the economy that we are more religiously conservative and thereby um, that informs our political votes, but definitely we understand the, the component of putting in a hard day's work. That's why I'm running for working people, for working families. That's why my platform addresses the issues that working families face every day. Um, and this is a platform that speaks to um, black, white, and brown. It speaks to the Latino community. Um, it definitely speaks to a broader perspective of who we are as a Democratic Party. Right, right. Americans don't feel safe right now, do they? And that, that, that's the primary responsibility, <clears throat> whether you're a libertarian or a socialist, you want your government, at the very least, to keep you safe. And Americans do yes. not feel safe right now. And, and how really? can we feel as safe as we need to feel when basically 500,000 people have died um, and unnecessarily if the administration had taken better action when COVID-19 first hit our country and it's the inaction in this past administration that we have to overcome and make people feel safe again. The, the, the Capitol insurrection certainly did not help and I would like to live in a community where Black Lives Matter, where innocent people are not being shot down um, in the street, where we have that protection in our communities, but we also have protection from a pandemic uh, by making sure we have equitable distribution of vaccinations, particularly in the communities who are most impacted by COVID-19. 
And that's interesting that you brought that, that up, Erica, because um, there's, there's been a lot of talk lately, or a lot of writing anyway, about how there are going to be green passports. If you want to go into, if you want to take a flight, you, if you want to get into another country, but even if you want to use a gym or go to a restaurant or a cinema, they're going to be asking people, let's say you have a passport that shows that you've been vaccinated. Now, I, I like that idea, except for one thing, which is what you just brought up. Is there equitable distribution of the vaccine? And, and, and I know, you know, that, that here the kind of is in L.A., but I'm wondering about North Carolina. I'm wondering about nor- rural parts of North Carolina. Is there equitable distribution? There or, is. I got Howie here in New York City. In New York City, you can't get a vaccine. I mean, forget the rural America. Can't right, get one here right. in Manhattan. Go ahead, Senator. There are, there are challenges and problems with the distribution of the vaccine. And so, yes, I agree with you. If we have to show a vaccine passport to be able to access public services, to be able to um, go to a theater or anywhere or to a gymnasium or wherever we want to go, we certainly need to make sure that we are not further disenfranchising people, um, particularly those people who live in urban centers and can't get access or people who live in rural centers and still cannot get access. I am a public school educator. And so um, unfortunately, I did suffer from COVID. I had COVID in January. It took a lot out of me. I was very, very concerned. And it took me a while to um, get back at 100 uh, percent with my health. And so I excuse me for a second. You had it last month. Uh, two months ago. Yeah, January 15th, yes, I, I had COVID. Um, I came into contact during a teacher training, and so all of us have to work. And so for the people who have to work, who are essential employees, frontline employees, we don't necessarily have a choice. Right. And so um, we want to make sure people are protected. And the only fairness is in that is to do a better job. Um, I don't know about New York, but I definitely know the statistics for our state in North Carolina. And the first um, couple of weeks, well, we could say two months of the vaccine distribution, um, 80% of those vaccines went to um, white um, white citizens and citizens who lived in more affluent areas. And we were most disenfranchised in the rural areas and the high poverty areas. Supposedly, they were going to prioritize. They were supposed to prioritize, but the logistics, I understand logistics is a problem where you don't have public transportation and where you don't have good Internet access to be able to sign up and you don't have locations where you can get those shots. But we definitely need to do a better job, particularly if we're going to require people to show this vaccine just to be able to participate in commerce. Here in New York, the governor uh, will give you a jab, but... uh, it won't be the vaccine he wants to. Sorry. So, we, have a, we have a problem with our governor here in uh, New York, and he won't resign. What, what about, yeah, everyone knows that. What about your, what about your governor, Erica? Um, uh, you have a Democratic governor, uh, luckily, for the people of North Carolina. Is, is that making a difference? And, and how is that going to make a difference in, in, your, in your campaign? We do have a Democratic governor and um, 
I've worked with Governor Cooper on many initiatives addressing equity. We are doing a better job. Secretary Mandy Cohen with the Department of Health and Human Services, um, they have been giving wonderful updates in terms of with the numbers of the COVID, um, how many people were getting tested, where we had our hot spots, and now um, they are increasing the opportunities based on you know being able to realize that logistically they were not getting vaccines out where it needed to be. But with the release of more vaccinations last week, Governor Cooper has worked with Biden, um, President Biden's administration to make sure we can get those vaccines all across the state of North Carolina. In terms of my run, um, Governor Cooper was running for re-election in 2020 um, when I was also running um, in my primary. And so I'm just excited that we have learned um, many, many lessons from 2020. And after all that our state and our nation has been through, it's time for us to galvanize and pull together so that we can flip North Carolina blue. Roy Cooper, the governor, when he was first elected, the assembly tried to strip him of all his powers, right? The the lame duck session. Uh, well, the Republicans in the assembly, of course. Did they succeed? Right. And, and and did they succeed at stripping the powers of, of the governor? And why can't the Democrats play hardball the way the Republicans do? I mean, the Republicans, they, they will do anything to get what they want. Why can't our side do that? By the way, how powerful now is the governor? Did they succeed in stripping him of his powers? They took away a lot of the governor's powers. And so I was serving in the North Carolina General Assembly um, that term. Um, I've served for the last three terms as a state senator. And it was very, very disheartening that we had a, you know, lame duck session three weeks after the general election, when Governor Cooper was elected, the Republican now majority, they were a super majority, but they were holding on to a majority. They came in, they took away about 1,500 appointments, reducing that down to about 342. Um, they took away the governor's powers across the board. He has fought back and through um, litigation, he's been able to get some of those powers back, but they look every day to figure out either how they can limit the governor even more or how they can suppress voters in North Carolina. Um, As you know, we had that monster voting law. Uh, It was the worst um, with surgical precision. Black and brown people were cut out of opportunities to vote. And so we're further working on that because when you give people the power of the ballot, you see what they are able to do. Republicans still hold the majority. We lost seats in the House, but guess what? This is a new day and North Carolina is starting to understand we need to do things a new way and they have that baked in leadership because of those gerrymandered districts and so the system politically has been rigged against us and you're right we've got to have a whole lot more fight because it's time for this foolishness to end Um, Congress needs to passed the John Lewis Voting Rights Act, but also in North Carolina, we need to fight against redistricting and then have a nonpartisan independent process for drawing those districts so that people will have the right to their constitutional right for one person, one vote, and be able to choose who represents them instead of their representatives choosing who they want to represent. But, uh, uh, Howie, you can wrap this up. I have a, a request, uh, Senator 
I, I was watching a Mark Green, who we have on the show all the time. He was debating William F. Buckley. This was like in the 90s. It was mm -hmm. shocking uh, how disgusting William F. Buckley was. And Buckley pretty much said he doesn't believe everyone should vote, that he believes in literacy tests. And he says only the intelligent should vote. And it's a conversation that I think our side figures is beneath us. But when you're in a debate, would you ask your opponent point blank, do you think everybody should vote? What what kind of enfranchisement do you do you believe in? Because I don't think Americans have had this discussion openly. I don't think Americans are willing to address whether or not they think not just you know not just felons, which I, I happen to think people behind, like in Maine and Vermont, if you're in prison, you should be allowed to vote. It's a uh, I believe that is well. Yeah, I think. That conversation, but also just should people who are illiterate be allowed to vote? Should people who didn't graduate from high school be allowed to vote? This is a conversation that I think we have to have out in the open in America, because once once we, as you said earlier, allow everyone to vote. Yes. Then everybody becomes a stakeholder in this country. Yes, but we're absolutely. not having this conversation. I can't tell you the number of a-holes on our side. When you ask them, do you think everybody should vote? They go, everyone? Well, the hyper, these hyper-educated liberals, they don't necessarily believe everyone should vote. I think we need to have this conversation. and We do. Howie, do you, you know think what? everybody should vote? I'm sorry. Do you think everybody should be allowed to vote, even uh, pe people who, you know, may not be as smart as you? Howie? Oh, me? Uh, uh, well, let me <laughs> turn that around on you. Do you think people who participated in the... Uh, in the attempted coup yes. on uh, January 6th should be allowed to vote. Yes. As a matter of fact, I, I think they didn't vote. As I think the studies have shown that a lot of them weren't. Re I think everybody should be allowed to vote. Over 18, everybody votes. Then everybody. I think it should be mandatory. Everybody should vote. I would. I agree with you. I certainly educate my students on the hundreds of students I've taught over the last 17, 18 years. We must vote. We must participate this in this. We are stakeholders. And you bring up another issue, David, about voter suppression. Those who are behind bars waiting for their trial, they have not been convicted. And those who, who don't have those serious felonies, why can't they vote? Even though they're in prison, why can't they vote? We all should have a constitutional right to vote. And that's everyone 18 years or over. So, yes, I'm with you. Everyone should vote, regardless of your intellectual ability or capacity. You are an American and you deserve to vote. Right. And and if you can't explain your position, if you can't explain a bill to a five year old, then you don't have a bill. You don't have a plan. But Albert Einstein said, if you can't explain your theory to a five-year-old, you don't have a theory. If you can't explain your bill 
or the issue mm-hmm. to a five-year-old, then it's an, then it's not a bill and it's probably not an issue, but they make it seem harder to understand so people don't pay attention. Right. They, they need to simplify the conversation so everybody understands it. Otherwise, don't, it, it's, it's not an issue. It shouldn't be voted upon. It's not that complicated. They make it complicated. Howie, why don't you wrap this up so I shut up? Uh, well, I think we've co- we've covered the bases. Although, let me ask you, uh, Erica, if there's anything else that you think is important for you to get out to to our listeners that you think that they need to to, uh, to hear about you that we didn't cover. Um. No, I'm just. <clears throat> I just want to let everybody know that as an engineer former engineer, as an educator, as an ordained clergywoman, I've spent my life uh, serving North Carolinians and making our community a better place, a better place to live. And so people ask, what makes you different from the other candidates? So what makes you different from the other 99 senators? Well, the first thing that'll make me different is that I'll be the only black woman. We currently have no black women in the United States Senate. In the last 242 years of the election of senators, we've only had two black women to serve. And so there are that we expect this field to be crowded, but we know beyond a shadow of a doubt that we are the only campaign that is not running off of platitudes. We're running off of policies that are bold, that are bold enough, big enough, and progressive enough to address the issues that working families face every day. Um, As a former labor, uh, a member of a labor union, I have fought hard for the dignity of work. And so the challenge for us as progressives is to come together and support those candidates who are not going to get to Washington, D.C. and forget who sent them there. Those who are going to be fearless and who are going to be committed to advancing this agenda to make this country work for all of us and not just the wealthy and the well-connected. So that's what makes me different from everyone else in this field. I have the policy work to prove it. I've been organizing across the state for the last 12 years, and we are ready to join everybody else, join hands, and send a fighter to Washington, D.C., who's ready to deliver our agenda. It's a survivor's agenda, but it's an agenda that we deserve. All right, Howie, you have to cover your ears because you're going to get embarrassed, so cover your ears. Go to ericaforus.com. She's endorsed by Howie Klein and the Blue America Pack. That's all you need to know. If Howie Klein says Erica is worthy of your vote or your donation, go to ericaforus.com and give her money. She doesn't take any corporate money. And if you live in North Carolina, go to Erica for us and either donate or volunteer for Erica, if you are an American citizen, or if you're, uh, I think if you have a visa, you can donate. What? How does it work, Howie? You, green. A green card, you can donate to Erica. EricaForUs.com. She's endorsed by Howie Klein. That's all you need to know. Will you come back, Erica? Absolutely. I would love for you to have me back. Okay. Thank, thank you. you. 
Thank you. And uh, Howie Klein is the founder and treasurer of the Blue America Pack. He also writes Down With Tyranny, which is must reading. And we need to spend time with just you soon, I hope. Well, we did last week and we will next week. Okay. Thank you, Howie Klein. Thanks, David. Thank you. Well, let us now go to Brooklyn, where show business royalty is standing by. This is so exciting. We, we have a, 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 a big shot in comedy. This is very exciting. He hasn't been here for a while because he's, he's in such demand. Look at him smiling. He's so happy. Let's all say hello to Dave Cyrus. Hello, Dave Cyrus. Oh, look at that. Are, are you frozen? No. Oh, you you seem you seem pissed off, but you are the uh, you you write for SNL. You write for uh, you wrote uh, the King of Staten Island. You're constantly. I think you have a new animated series. You're working on it. It'll be a little while. Sure. You're one of the busiest men in show business. Thank you for finding time, taking just slicing out, carving out just a. A, a fragment re- of your busy schedule. It, it really is the busiest I've ever been. It I know. actually is. I, I really uh, appreciate it. it. Thank you for ridiculous. slumming it. Thank you for Thank slumming you. it, as they say. I, that is what they say about the show. Yes. Um, we're honored to have you here. I'm honored to be wanted here. You are, and, you are uh, loved here. It's been a while because, I mean, I do I not have a lot of free time these days. What's it but, like uh, to be in demand? What's it like? I mean, to- it's weird. You have to understand, David. And as I've explained before, see, you don't know what it's like to be like someone like me. Successful. You, right. At, no, no, no. Right. As soon as you started doing comedy, you were getting checks. You were getting insurance. You were in guilds. You were on MTV. You were a giant star. I was right away. cute. I was cute. I had to work really hard. <laughs> I had to work for years and years. I had everything to handed to me. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. You were on stage with Robin Williams at 21. You were doing everything you wanted. But Mm -hmm. in reality, no, I really like I've said this before. I don't know anyone who fails as long as me. And so, like, I do think there's a really weird kind of dynamic that comes where I'm like the homeless guy at like the at like the, the nine course dinner kind of thing where it's like you you want to have that. You don't want to be famous, you know, as a child, I think. You want to learn to appreciate it. And I'm like that. I'm on that level of like, I'm constantly thinking I am one mistake and back to the gutter. Right. So I think that and being busy, you can't really say no to anything. You know, right. you know, the industry, you can't because you're going to go a year with nothing. You know, I spent look how much how long we spent in the pandemic doing nothing. And suddenly I've got I'm basically juggling multiple jobs. I'm just trying not to screw up at once. So, so, so the difference between you and me is I, I think you under, uh, as I think what you're trying to say is it took you 20 years in the business. To, I mean, not 20 years, but yeah, it how took long? me longer than anyone. I would say if I'm being, if I'm being fair, the, from the first time I got on stage and tried to do comedy until I was by any measure successful at it was, 18 years. It took you 18 years. That, and so you cherish every moment of your success. Whereas I, yeah. I decided, I think I'll do stand-up. And I walked on stage and people said, where have you been all our lives? This man is so adorable, so gifted. Let's mm-hmm. give him the keys to the kingdom. And it was handed to me. And I 
got to pick and choose whatever projects I wanted. And I mean, just the fact that you're a baby boomer, yet you were one of the main writers on your show of shows means you were then <laughs> as a kid, basically, you were already a success. So I always you were sitting just there assume, with Carl Reiner and Woody Allen yeah. and just banging out jokes with Mel Brooks, kibitzing with Buckminster Fuller. You you were there right off the bat. So because, you know, my attitude has always been if I need work. I'll go out and find it. It's just a phone call away. I don't need to worry about anything is what. Yeah. That's the difference between you and me. And that yeah. really is. I've always had that attitude when it came to show business that it's easy. And uh, but I'm cute and lovable. And Jesus Christ, you know, it took me 20 years to get on The Tonight Show, Cyrus. Right. But that 20 years, you were also like working as a comedian. You were you were at clubs. You were doing TV. Do you, you know what writing. my father said to me? What I, I finally I had been punching it out in the clubs for twelve years, and I, and I got hired by Tom Arnold to work on Roseanne. My father said, "I'm gonna," and then I got fired. And my father said to me, "That's too bad." I go, "Why?" He said, "Well, I shouldn't tell you this, but it's the first time." In 12 years, I could brag about you. Yeah, well, there you go. I mean, I, and, uh, I, sl I was 12 years. That's not bad. That's 12 not, years know. it took me to, uh, to uh, break through. What was Doc Severinsen like? Very flamboyant dresser. Yeah, yeah. Did I tell you the, the story about what I, what? I was... Did I tell you the story about Doc Severinsen? I found something very funny about him recently. They, they don't want to hear about it. First of all, he he was he was not a medical doctor. He was oh. he was an orthopedic surgeon. I don't consider them to be. Uh, well, it's a funny anecdote. I was watching an old episode Doc of Johnny. Sever People don't know who Doc Severinsen is. Well, I was watching an old episode of Johnny Carson. Everyone knows who he is. And no, they Doc don't. Severinsen, no, they don't. Doc Severinsen was Johnny's band leader, and he was filling in for. Uh, for the usual sidekick, Ed McMahon. And it was the 80s, it was the early 80s, I guess, or late 70s. And Johnny Carson goes, yeah, I've seen this thing called uh, singles bars. Did I tell you the story? No. Uh, singles bars. There's this new thing called singles bars where single people go to, uh, to meet each other. And Doc Severinsen goes, oh, yeah, you mean uh, hostesses. And, and the way Johnny went, no, 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 no. Nice places, normal people. I was like, oh, well, I just learned what they called prostitutes in the 70s and that Doc Severinsen liked them. OK, I just thought that was funny. It was just the way that Doc accidentally outed himself. Did <laughs> you know that? Did you know that Ed McMahon never said you're correct, sir? Really? Well, that was just something that, that was uh, Smigel. Phil, Smigel came up with that for the uh, Phil Hartman said. Yeah. Yeah. You are correct. And then you Phil Hartman, correct. he wrote that for Phil Hartman. That's yeah. great. Yeah. All right. So are you, wow. uh, I, I've spent today defending, not defending, but making the case for the Democrats just because I've done nothing but crap on them. I, I've well, look, I've been look, David, I think it's very important that when talking about the Democrats, you don't let whether or not what they're doing is right or wrong interfere with the importance of maintaining your brand. That's what's important here. You have to. Hate What's my them. brand? Uh, Anti-liberal leftist. And it's really important that you don't give him uh, credit for something Hang on. That, could, you know, that you might have to explain for later. And uh, look, we have a stimulus package. It's not everything we wanted, but it's certainly 
a much, much better one than the one Trump gave us. Uh, it's the it's it's essentially the reverse. I, I, I don't know how much you've read about the, the, the package, but uh, the one point nine trillion is mostly designed for poor people and middle class, not just poor, but middle class. But too. you for you, middle class is poor. You're a very oh, no, su- I don't get I, you're yeah, very I successful. Man. I will not get anything of direct payments. And I, I shouldn't because because I you live off residuals. A you're a very successful, powerful Hollywood I mean, I got paid for my first movie this year, last year. So obviously I, I would not want to be on the list of people who get it. I think that the $80,000 cutoff is a pretty reasonable one. Cause you're um, out of touch with the, the working man you live in. Your- after, yes. After, after 15 straight years of making an amount of money that a janitor would kill himself for, I now make real money. And you live you know? at UN Plaza. And maybe I might even continue to, who knows? You, you live in UN Plaza doorman department you have well, uh, three bedrooms 16 bathrooms which i don't understand but well first of all you know that i live uh in my in the in the, the apartment my great-grandmother died in so that is really yes we've talked about that yeah i don't know you great i didn't even change the sheets i just moved in the second she was gone i got you know it, it's not easy to get an apartment in original original holes in the white sheets well, she's a Jew. So, uh, and tell me, how are the orthos yes, yes. in Brooklyn? Well, you know, it's things haven't really changed here. No, they um, haven't. All that's changed is that a lot of them have gotten sick and recovered, hopefully. And, uh, you know, I, I, I just hear so many people talk about New York, how everyone wears masks. And I'm just like, not my part of New York. Right. Um, but it's not just the Orthodox. You know, I live around Russian immigrants who don't seem to wear them very often either. I live around regular old Americans who don't want to wear them just because I, the area here, a lot of people don't. Um, you know, I, I, I'm hearing from people in, in England that even people in England aren't wearing masks in the street, a place that's essentially what the worst on, in the, on the planet when it comes to infections right now. You yeah. just can't teach some people. And uh, and look, this is not an Orthodox Jewish problem. This is a well, it, 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 well, it is an Orthodox Jewish problem. Anybody, say, maybe a, it was, maybe you could identify that early on in the pandemic as one of the people who was known for not wearing masks. But now it is an. It, I mean, red states essentially are just anti-mask. There had to, there were mask burnings in Idaho. Did you see these children being applauded for burning their mask because there was something written on it? No, that was no big. surgical masks. Yeah, I yeah. No, yeah, no, not a good joke, but, you know, it'd be great if this was a year from now and they're burning the mask to say, oh, we don't need these anymore. No, no. These are people with signs that said, stop suffocating us. And they're burning masks just to say, we don't believe in science. Then they shouldn't get the vaccine. I mean, it's a, I mean, well, they probably don't want that either. That's the problem. Anyone who would burn their mask, but then wants the vaccine is honestly just one of those hypocrites like Trump who got the vaccine, but got it in secret because right. he didn't want people to see him getting the vaccine. That's the kind of cravenness that really is dangerous. So how do you think you win these uh, people over? Do you, do you tell them? Because like, I've had conversations. With- well, when you say these people, we are talking about two camps right now, which is the psychotic conspiracy theorists and the other half, I mean half, which are the I would say crotchety Republicans who just don't who just the sort of anti PC armchair Republicans. 
Well, let's right? talk about the Orthodox Jews because okay. Uh, well, Orthodox Jews are just, it's not the Orthodox Jews. It's all fundamentalists. Yeah. All fundamentalists do not like listening to science because if they listen too hard, it might screw up their lifestyle. You know, they, these are people who generally for a fundamentalist religious person and you listen to everything a scientist tells you, that's going to tell you that you know, evolution is real and being gay is how you're born and all these things that they can't really listen to. So I think part of it is just a sort of rejection of the slippery slope of trusting scientists. Well, w- w- would you say that these rabbis who the Orthodox Jews turn to, that these rabbis are, are stupid? I don't know. I will. I yes, they are stupid. stupid. I think they are ignorant. They are ignorant. They I are ignorant they rabbis. It's, they are ignorant rabbis. You know, you're absolutely right there, that there are definitely some people who are literally ignorant of this, but there are a lot of other people that are simply terrified of breaking traditions. And they think that tradition is the only thing holding their entire society apart. And that if you break it for a pandemic, next you'll break it for love. Right. There are, there are, there are men, Orthodox, and they are men, Orthodox rabbis, whose job it is to read the Torah and the Talmud all day. Now, I would love a job like that. Literally, your job is to read all day. Yeah. And they knock on your door and say, uh, can I get a circumcision after four days instead of three? And he'll go, three and a half, I'm reading. And they pay him money to say that. And he just reads the rest of the day. Uh, these guys... Uh, are limited if you just read the same two books over and over again to the exclusion of everything else, then you're going to be stupid enough to think that masks are sacrilege. But Um, these are stupid men. I I think they're not learned men. If you've only read two, if you've only read two books, rabbi, you're not a learned man. You're an ignoramus. And you shouldn't well, be and you shouldn't be giving medical advice to to your No, no one should be giving medical advice if they didn't go to medical school. And even then you shouldn't be giving advice if it's not if it's outside of your area of expertise. You know, two uh Hasidim men came to my door in October because they're asking people to vote for the Republicans. Yes. And I just remember thinking, this is why you're not getting the vote. Because you're knocking on a door without a mask in October. What's wrong with you? And of course, that's how stupid it just and how stupid can you be to be Hasidic and vote for Trump to to support the the man who wants you dead? The the most anti-Semitic president we've ever had. Because fundamentalists of all religions cling to authoritarians. They cling to people like Trump. They don't fundamentalists don't tend to really examine things on that many levels. They, they really look at it as I want a daddy to tell me what to do because I want everyone else to be told what to do. And that's why I think, I think extreme religiosity of every religion is never really about the religion itself because I mean, let's be fair. Let's be fair. No evangelical could possibly think Trump is not a bad person. 
If you are an evangelical and you believe what evangelicals believe, Donald Trump is a cartoonish embodiment of the devil. So clearly it's not just the scripture they're basing this on. It's about authority and it's about a sky daddy. And Trump is, and they look at Trump as just a, another uh, godlike person that they can worship and that they can cede all their decision-making to. I think it's a, it's, it's a, it's a basic problem. What happens when people hand their entire psyche over to just a religion, secular people can have religion in their lives and they can get good things out of it and they can believe without it making them uh, a puppet. But when your religion that's why the vast majority of Jewish people are, do not support this. But when your religion, a lot of religious ones too. When your religion uh, harms other people, uh, yeah, then there's that is the line that that needs to be addressed because we had that exact problem in Israel where the ultra orthodox, uh, specifically the small sect of ultra orthodox, were uh, rebelling against all these. Uh, these 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 provisions that were supposed to protect people they were coffee i saw i showed you a video of them you know children coughing on people throwing rocks and it's just sort of what happens generally in these isolated communities of any religion and it's uh it's bad right they get very entrenched in the idea that they must be right and that unity and tradition is all that matters now we can talk about that all you want. We have a few minutes left. Um, I would. I was really hoping to slander some people. Go ahead, please, just, by all means. Oh no, no, no I was going to say we can talk about whatever you want. We please can talk slander about Woody Allen. We can talk about slander. Johnston. Slander. We can talk about whoever uh, you want. I don't know. If, I don't know if these are things you want to get into. I saw the Woody Allen documentary. You know, I don't know if you've changed at all about how you feel about that. I think it's a very complicated issue. I don't think I don't it's if complicated. Saw. After watching, oh, so the, you're you're you are now more on my side. That he's what? A sex maniac? Yes. A, a, a perverted maniac? Yeah, okay, good, good. I'm glad to. Yeah. yeah, no, I mean, and look, I don't blame anybody for not knowing all the details, but uh, yeah, it's really hard to watch that documentary and hear those recordings and not think, Jesus Christ, what is wrong with you, Woody? Also, Mia specifically, I'm not trying to be funny, Mia specifically said, Keep an eye on my kid. I don't want her alone with Woody Allen. I have to go away for 20 minutes. And the girl who was supposed to be watching over the daughter didn't keep an eye. She speci- if somebody says to me, listen, I don't want my daughter alone with Woody Allen. Can you keep an eye? I would keep an eye on the girl. The- yeah. Yeah, no, it's a, it's a horrible situation. And here's the thing about what, it. What, what, of, what was more, what is more important than keeping a child away from a, by that time he was a predator. He had had naked pictures of the stepdaughter. You're told yeah. to keep, you're the babysitter and, and you allowed the, Woody here, to go up into the attic with, why don't we blame the learned, babysitter as well? Here's what I've learned in my old age about these kinds of people, these, you know, deviance. Uh, The reason Woody Allen was able to uh, not get charged for uh, the accusation against him uh, with his daughter is that people said, are you really expecting me to believe that a man in his 50s would be so insane that he would he, he had 10 minutes, a brief, tiny window of time that he would grab his own daughter, run 
heroin addict and molest her and then whisk her back before anyone came back. And they said, do you really think someone would do that? And you know what? That's exactly what molesters do. They are opportunistic maniacs and they will look for exact situations where you can say, oh, my God, this is the craziest thing you've ever even imagined a person doing. And that's exactly how they operate. They operate under the auspices of I of looking for those moments, those seconds. And I happen to know of a second story I won't get into of a non-famous example of someone being molested, almost identical to this where it was literally waited for the mother to turn her back for a second and the person abused a child because that's how people like that operate. And that's where it became more gelled for me the, with Woody, the idea that, no, that's exactly, they're like, do you really think he would do this after being accused, knowing that wife hates him, everyone's looking for him, and he only had 15 minutes? Yeah, I do. Unfortunately, the more I learn about predators, the more that sounds like one. Yeah. And, very uh, very you know sad. Let's, let's not get into Jay Johnston at all, by the way. No, we don't want to talk about I have no Jay. Idea is what's it going true? That. Is it true? Well, I don't know. Snopes says, Snope says they're not sure. It says unproven. All I can tell you is. But I've heard. There is a. I can't sit here and say I know for a fact that Jay, just a background, people are accusing actor Jay Johnston, comedian, of being an insurrectionist because the FBI tweeted a photo and said that we were looking for someone specifically who, I guess, I, I believe, specifically committed act of violence at the Capitol. And the, and the photo, to me and a lot of people, was instant. Like, that is clearly Jay Johnston. Can't be sure. Could be a lookalike. And then a lot of other people in the industry who know him personally also came out and allegedly said it was him or said, well, if that's not him, he did tell me he was there. And we don't know. All I can tell you is pay very close attention to if Jimmy Pesto comes back on Bob's Burgers. He put, he put, yeah, he's on Bob's Burgers. Um, I heard Chris D'Elia is going to get that part. I love, I love Jay Johnston and I sincerely hope it is not him, but if it is, you know, God knows why, but all I can tell you is it's, there are a lot of people who uh, in the industry know better and still publicly alluded that they believe it was him. So it's a very weird situation. I'm not, I'm not going to come out and say it's definitely him, but people much more famous than me have. And uh, you know, this is a misunderstanding it's going to be the most hilarious one ever. And a guy as funny as Jay will have lots of fun with it. So I'm not, I'm not that worried about it. Cause if it's well, not did, him, did he actually hurt somebody? The FBI has not released what specific crime they believe he committed. Only that they put his picture up specifically saying we are looking. And that I believe that it said something along the lines of uh, looking for people who committed, who committed violence at the Capitol. So it sounds like he wasn't just there or doing a bit or something. It's, it's, it's just a crazy thing to even imagine that this beloved comedian has devolved into a conspiracy addled insurrectionist, but it's, and it's been days and no one knows if it's him or if it's not, you know, if what comedian wouldn't come out and make a hilarious statement about this, if it wasn't them. Right. Right. And then what comedian wouldn't have a single one of their friends saying it wasn't him. Right. Hey, before you go, Crystalia, 
Have you been following yeah. him? I did not see the video because I have better things in my life to do. Right. But uh, Chris D'Elia, yeah, he put out the video and then immediately got in more trouble. Right. Because there were new accusations that he uh, was with a girl who was 17. He was, I guess, in his 30s. He would have crossed state lines. It would have been flat out a crime, is my understanding. Seven, 17 year to have sex with a 17 year old, especially if you cross state lines or if, if you you're asking for pictures, yeah. you know, there's yeah, it's it sounds like he's in a lot of trouble. I'll, I'll and tell it you, sounds uh, like he's a creep. Yeah, we have to wrap it up. I'll tell you, I, w- I was thinking about him watching the Woody Allen thing last night because Woody in a classic uh, predatory manner sued for custody of the children. That's part of the go play- big or go home. Yeah, yeah exactly. Playbook. So he had to pay more than a million dollars in legal fees for Mia Farrow. And this was 30 years ago. Right. So mm-hmm. in today's dollars, that's like, what, four million dollars yeah, two, two and a half, two and a half million dollars. If Chris D'Elia is facing what I think he's facing the the lawyers are taking are going to take every penny. He, oh yeah, they are going to yeah. take, and you know that I hate lawyers. Yes, I do. They are they're going they because if it's a civil trial in, in federal court, they're the, the he's being sued for money. No lawyer is going to take that case unless they get paid first. And that he has to show everything to them. He has to do complete disclosure on his assets. And they are lo- and they're going, we'll take this, this, this. And the lawyers, they will t- he will be he will owe money t- by the time this is over, he will owe to the government. He, he will have nothing left. Nothing. Yeah. And that's and you know what? As much as we can enjoy that happening to him, it is an indictment of the system because obviously someone is going to be innocent and accused of something and is going to still end up poor anyway. I, I just I, I haven't gone saying, through a divorce. For him. I, I don't feel I, sorry for him. But, yeah, it sucks that if you're accused of first something. First of all, he may he may you're guilty till you're innocent till proven guilty in this country right but a civil a civil court is a bit different civil right. court is simply uh you know it's simply a preponderance of evidence it's not re- beyond a reasonable doubt right i, I just so, thought of i just thought of divorce and how the divorce attorneys work and they they see and they go well we're getting the, the lawyers say we're getting this first before. yeah no the lawyers get everything that's why i did my parents divorce settlement yeah, he's uh, i, I because the lawyers would have taken everything if we didn't, if I didn't just do it. Dave Cyrus, follow yeah, I, him. I, yeah, on he'll Twitter. probably get away with it, but at le- he'll probably get away with it, but at least he'll be broke. Yeah. I don't think he's going to get away with it. Dave Cyrus. I hope not. Dave Cyrus. Right. Thank you. I'll talk to you tomorrow. I hope. Yeah. If you will. Yeah. Let us now go to somewhere 
in New York. I think it's Manhattan, where Dr. Harriet Fraud is standing by. Sorry to keep you waiting. We're five minutes behind, but I'm I'm actually doing a good job keeping the show moving in on time. You're the host. If you are just joining us, Dr. Harriet Fraud is, is the host of When Capitalism Hits Home. And it's not just in your head. Welcome, Dr. Fraud. Let's talk about Andrew Cuomo and uh, Woody Allen, power, and uh, I guess, you know, is Andrew, is Andrew, was that sex? I don't even know. What, what I'm reading about Andrew Cuomo is he's lonely. He tells these women he's lonely, but he also wants to establish dominance uh, I don't, you have to unmute yourself, doctor. Yeah. I mean, they always say rape is not about sex. It's about power. This harassment, is it, what is your sense that he, he really wasn't trying to need a woman? He, he wants to dominate everyone. One of the things about Cuomo is his father was the nice guy, Mario. He was the enforcer and he didn't give that role up when he got in. Andrew was his enforcer. Right, right, he was. And Andrew is unbridled, aggressive, domineering, and fo- aggressively seeking power. You know, they had a report in Harper's Magazine, the career, that uh, the number one career attracting psychopaths in the United States is to be a CEO, Right. To be the head. And that's, you know, they're being doing a studious job of it. But he wants aggressively, he wants power, he wants domination, he wants position. And I think these women felt okay to come out for several reasons. One is he was caught down blatantly lying about the, the nursing home deaths and cutting them in half. And I think he did because he was pushing to get his book out to establish himself as the great leader, Andrew Cuomo, because he reduced cases in New York so dramatically. Well, if they doubled in terms of the nursing home population, maybe he doesn't look quite so marvelous. Mm-hmm. That's, that was one reason to lie and insist on it and to tell people he would ruin anyone who questioned it. And so another one was that his big donor, one of his biggest donors, owned chains of nursing homes. So it was killing two birds with one stone. And he has gotten away with an abusive, domineering style at his operation there of yelling and screaming at his employees and demeaning them publicly, including the women. He has enemies all over because he's the most powerful person in Albany, or he was, and as long as there was a little cabal of older men, of him and Silver and the other guy at the head of Albany, they could let go of all sorts of corruption. And Cuomo's operation was to find people corrupt, never to actually charge them, but have them under his control. Wow. So when um, the controller, what was his name? I think it was, was it Hevesy, I think, was found to be taking big bribes in order to invest the city's billions 
with this hedge fund or another. He didn't report him. He just had him. He had him. When the group of rogue cops was caught, he didn't report them either. He had them. He had them to work for him. And he was known to be an iron-fisted and abusive boss. So when the chink in the armor is there, people can't wait to get him back. Also, now that little cozy male cabal is replaced. Andrea Stewart Cousins is the majority leader in the New York Senate. Silver is in jail. Whoa, big change. And so that the power dynamics have changed. And I think he has gotten away with outrageous muscling and corruption. He promised the Satmar at Curious UL their own public school where they don't have to teach evolution. They don't have to teach proper English. They can do the whole thing in Yiddish. You know, they could set out ignorant kids. They don't teach evolution, but they got their public school. That kind of crap is really grotesque. And he pushed it through because he had the muscle. And then he got their votes, of course, because whatever the rabbi tells them, they do it. So he wielded enormous power in a bullying manner and dominated everyone in his path. And so when he was caught with the nursing home scandal, it empowered those abused women to come forward. Not because he raped them like our past president did. We didn't do that. But because part of his domination was a sexually embarrassing and moving on these women. Because I think the main point of sexual harassment is domination. And I think that people who need to dominate other people are attracted to dominating women by making it very clear that what you are to them is just a set of sex organs. And that is a way to dominate and intimidate women. And people at the top, like Lester Mundes or Trump, have that in common with the foremen who um, sexually coerce the campesinas in the fields because they decide where you are working that day in the grueling sun or not. And it's a way of adding to your domination and adding to your power and using sex to dominate. And so I think what happened when there was a chink in this monster's armor, whoa, everyone could pile on. And we can't forget that it was Cuomo who asked Schneiderman to step down because four women complained in 20. He was the attorney general. He was the attorney general. And he demanded that Schneiderman step down. Now Schneiderman was violent with those women. Right. He didn't just make suggestive comments and want to meet in people's hotel rooms and things like that. But now there are five women and I don't know how many more will volunteer, but five is quite a few. It's not just he said, she said. It's he said, she said, she said, she said, she said, and she said. Right. And maybe more. Well, he's trying to flatten the curve. It may go down. He is. He is. But I think what has happened is that a lifetime of coercive corruption and domination and domineering gave allowed him to be an abusive boss, screaming and yelling and demeaning people and getting away with it because he had accumulated power. It also allowed someone like him who has nothing in his life but 
ambition to do more politically. He even volunteered if the Democrats really needed, he'd rise to the occasion and run for president, remember? Because mm-hmm. he was riding the high of actually giving good coronavirus talks. And he looked like a leader. It would have looked less great if there were many, many more deaths, thousands and thousands more. So he decided that they would be suppressed, as well as he did a good favor to his donor. Right. But I think it's a culmination It's like somebody building a tower so high that the tower in the world, and of course, it's going to fall down. You know, we've seen this. They're going to shift their weight. We've seen this countless times with sons of successful men. Right. Andrew Cuomo says, I'm the enforcer. I'm going to protect my father, and I'm not going to make the mistakes he made. He was too nice a guy. And George W. Bush was the enforcer for George Herbert Walker Bush. And he said, I'm not going to make the mistakes my father made. I'm going to come in and I'm going to get reelected. And I know how to do this. And it's that entitlement, Mm -hmm. you know, and George W. Bush did get reelected. He's also the worst president this country ever had. And he now spends all his time painting wounded soldiers because he led us into an illegal war that killed two million people in Iraq and uh, destroyed our country. So uh, maybe daddy knew something uh, his sons didn't know. And uh, And maybe they should stop competing with daddy. But whatever it is. And and maybe daddy should say, go into another business. Don't follow. This is my sickness. You go make your own sickness. But they want to extend their power through their sons. And I think it never works. No, it doesn't. But I think there is a personality type that sexually accosts and harasses women for the sake of their own thrill of domination. And I think he is thrilled with his domination. And now, because he has been abusive to so many across the board, they're asking him to resign. Andrew Stewart Cousins asking him to resign. Several other legislators asking him to resign because he has bullied and intimidated them. And now they can get him back. And I'm glad. I'm glad that those bullies are not. uh, How do you account for the stupidity? How do you account? You know, maybe I'm too forgiving, but I think a, a certain generation of men before well, uh, Clarence Thomas, I, I think uh, I think things changed after Clarence Thomas. It was a wake up call to for some men, for some, for some. I think a lot of men didn't had no idea what sexual harassment was until Anita yeah. Hill. It wasn't really familiar, right? For them, uh, but, but but now a, a Democrat, as you say, who told Schneiderman to resign. I mean, a product of the Clinton administration, Andrew Cuomo, certainly he knows what it means to be uh, a predator. Why would he do it out in the open? Well, I think it's because he's, shall we say, cocksure of himself. Uh, Because Clinton is a mentor. Clinton had sex with his congressional page right there in the hall 
right. while the bodyguards walk. And he was an abusive boss. That's the other thing that, that it's important to know that Bill Clinton was an abusive boss to men, that he was giving George Stephanopoulos a nervous breakdown. He was physically violent with George Stephanopoulos. And so when men look the other way because their boss is sleeping with women. Having uh, sex with somebody in the hall. Yeah. You know, I, I also think that. Clinton got through and he's now a statesman getting a million dollars for every speech. So, okay, fine. Trump has 27 sex assault cases against him. He's do, he's got 74 million people who voted for him. And so I think these guys can get cocksure. I'll get away with it too. And they're not, their other people are intimidated by their power and they are, high on their power. They're high to the point where their own reasonableness. This man is nothing but aggressively ambitious. Surely it might occur to him when he comes on to people or grabs their face and kisses them unwanted. Uh Oh, other people have gotten in trouble for this. I might as well, but he has, he has skirted sort of weaved in and out of crime for many, many years committing illegal acts and he got away with it and he became the most powerful person in Albany like Weinstein was the most powerful man in Hollywood and so he felt he could abuse and intimidate at will and he used sexuality as part of that domination which I think emboldened him and when people when People in his office asked him about the nursing home business. He just said, I will destroy you. Right. I will ruin you. Right. Because he had the power and he was high and addled on his own power. And because his crimes are not the most violent or predatory, although they're humiliating to the women around him, he has so many well-earned enemies that these Me Too complaints have resonance with all those people who are bullied, male and female. Right. They say that the men were bullied. It it was like their Vietnam. Working for for Cuomo was their Vietnam. Right. You know, on this show we talk about trans you know, transformative ideas and capitalism has to be replaced by socialism or feudalism, depending on your point of view. So there's <laughs> there's an economic solution. There's a political solution. You're a psychologist. There's there's a, a way of framing things, a way of thinking about things that has to change in this country that that may lead to changing our politics and may lead to changing our economic system. And I think the problem, I I can speak for men, I can't speak for women, but there is a school of thought that I'm quite familiar with. And that is when you get to a certain point in your life, you give up your, your childish pursuits. You, you, that, that wanting to be governor of, New York is a phase that you outgrow. 
that wanting to start a company mm-hmm. and be, you know, Jeff Bezos is a, 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 a season of your life. It should be a short season and then you move on and then you try to get rid of all those things that all the things that got you to be Jeff Bezos. You then go on a spiritual quest like John Lennon, who was a wife beater, but he, you know, to to strip himself of all the values that got him into the Dakota. That's the the spiritual, healthy pursuit that anything different from that you're doomed as a human being. And, and and culturally we have to teach men that that it's all that you know in your 20s it's okay to be competitive. It's okay to want things within reason. But once you get what you think you want, uh you then have to realize that there's something far bigger that you have to let go of. We don't teach that in this country. No, we don't, but we don't teach it early on. I think what you'd have to do is have an end to the kind of hierarchical economic power that allows people to dominate. And I think you'd have to have a cooperative organization of our economy where everyone is evaluated both by the people below them and the people above them, and they're equally powerful and where people elect their leaders who are immediately accountable and can be withdrawn and who can't make more than eight times what the average person makes and that there have to be maximum wages as well as minimum wages and a whole egalitarian shift in the the economic and social life that wouldn't allow a Cuomo. Because if he had to go before the gate of his own people, he would never have been allowed to continue to be the aggressive abuser he is. You have to have that, those values, not only after your 20s, but from the time you're in kindergarten. That's what a reasonable socialist society would do. And both the Cuomos, Chris Cuomo, who's just as disgusting and reprehensible and violent, they... They, in the back of their minds, they know that they're not self-made men, that they that they are where they are because of favors owed to Mario Cuomo. And so it makes them angry and belligerent. They they should have changed their last names and made it on their own. Or there should be a different social organization. So everybody has to make it on their own and be evaluated by the people underneath them and be in a cooperative organization. These are not cooperators. They're dominators. Right. And, and, and as, and as long yeah. as they spew some liberal talking points, they think it indemnifies them against treating exactly. people like crap. So he had that whole policy that, he actually took the course in how to treat women and so on. But he thought he was above it because he was the most powerful man in, the, in New York State. And so he could humiliate and destroy people. And just as Weinstein could have done that in Hollywood and used his power to dominate sexually as well as in other ways. There, that people have to have checks and balances. And the best way to do that is a cooperative economy. That's a great thing about the Constitution. Of course, they didn't have any check on money 
because they had all those nine slaveholders and plantation owners there who might not have signed up for that. But the idea of checks and balances is a great idea. Yeah. No power should be unchecked at any level, yeah. either in parents, in households, dominating and abusing their children or onto the workplace or anywhere else. Right. Right. It's interesting. You know, uh, my experience in the workplace, I was surprised when I was told you don't understand the game. The, the game, there's a different, that your boss is playing a, a game that you're not playing. I, I don't understand. You're, he, usually a he, has more money than he knows what to do with. He's playing, the, the, the things that you do to impress him mean nothing. Showing up on time makes you look weak. Uh, doing a good job, trying to be a good employee, they they don't respect that. They they uh, successful at least in in show business. There's another game being played that has nothing to do with quality. It's about power and control, and surrounding yourself with. It's interesting what you said about how Cuomo surrounded himself with weak men, men yes. with secrets. Yes. Oh, he cultivated them. He found them in criminal activities and didn't expose them because he got them to be psychophants drooling at his every command. Now, does Lindsey Graham think we don't know? He's Trump's sycophant. I mean, Trump surrounds himself with physically abusive drug addicts and alcoholics or people who are ashamed of their sexuality. Does Lindsey Graham think nobody knows? Lindsey Graham fools himself. He's like the child who puts his hand over his eyes or her eyes or their eyes and thinks no one could, he's not visible, she or they are not visible. He is so imbued with being in the in-group, even though he's quite obviously a, a sycophant, and he just doesn't see it that way. He sees that he's loyal to the big boss, so he's good. Right. And because Lindsay is in the closet, Lindsay Graham is in the closet. Right. And the closet door is open as far as we're concerned, but he thinks he's hidden. And and he openly says on Fox News, well, you know, I, I the president has brought me into his world. He's always been on the outside looking in and, and Trump knows that and takes advantage. Trump's a predator. He knows exactly how to manipulate to get somebody to uh, control someone. He married Melania when she had already aged out of modeling. She was a little too stiff to ever make it modeling anyway. The only ads she could be in were alcohol and um, drug ads and things like that, because you have to be older than 25 to be in those ads. And here she's very rich. And he could dominate her. And he can dominate all the people around him. It's you sick. Know, Jeff Sessions, he, he never win. He has Pence, can't even get elected in Indiana. But then he gets this sycophant energy. He gets this adoration that he cultivates. And he gets to dominate. And these people are dominators. And in a cooperative arrangement, they wouldn't last. 
because the people underneath them would withdraw them immediately. Yes. Well, I'm keeping the show on time. We have a special guest. So I'm going to thank you for coming by, as always. Dr. Harriet Frott is the host of Capitalism Hits Home. And it's not just in your head. And uh, how do people contact you if they if they need you for help? Richfraud at gmail.com. Great. And fraud is F-R-A-A-D. Thank you. Okay, well, thank you. You have a great show. Thank you. We're honored to have you. Thank you so much. Let us now go to Queen's University in Kingston, Ontario, where Professor Adnan Hussein has a guest who is in Seattle. <laughs> Thanks so much, David. Yes, I'm really delighted to um, welcome our guest who um, is originally from India before coming to the United States to pursue her PhD in economics from NC State, but is more well known for serving on the City Council of Seattle since 2014 and is the first socialist to do so since 1877. And her campaign was built on a working class agenda that included the Fight for 15, uh, which was passed just months later in 2014 in Seattle. And she and the movement that um, Socialist Alternative has built also passed significant renters' rights provisions in the city. She spearheaded an initially successful effort to charge an employee poll or head tax to fund housing for the unhoused in the city. And she won re-election to her third term in 2019, despite facing an unprecedented corporate-funded challenge. So, Councillor Kshama Sawant, uh, welcome to the David Feldman Show. Thank you so much for having me. Well, you seem perfectly positioned to teach the left nationally some lessons at this moment with those achievements that I just mentioned, at least for a left that intends to win and to gain power and achieve policies on behalf of working people. So it's a delight to speak with you. Earlier in the show, uh, we had uh, some Amazon, we had the great Amazon dissident Christian Smalls on, and he was also joined by Max Alvarez, the Real News uh, Network editor, who had just returned from Alabama, where he interviewed Danny Glover about um, the events taking place in Bessemer, Alabama to unionize uh, Amazon workers. Now, you're no stranger to confrontations with Amazon. So I was wondering if you had been on a little bit earlier, what lessons you might have told them they might be able to learn about your confrontations with Amazon? Well, first of all, might I just say a huge solidarity and congratulations to the workers who are fighting back against, as you said, this behemoth of a corporation with a trillion dollar footprint globally, and not just a corporation that is so big, but a corporation that has used all your classic anti-union methods. We have heard, just heard that Amazon is now spending $10,000 a day on anti-union consultants. This is, this is like a throwback to the early days of formations of unions, the first time formations of unions when uh, at that time, the workers and the movement, labor movement leaders, many of them socialists and um, Marxists, uh, uh, not only engaged in a tremendous self-sacrifice, but really had some 
really important ideas on strategy and tactics. And I think that is what we are seeing unfold in Bessemer as well. Uh, and one of the bedrocks of this kind of struggle is the solidarity that the workers are able to build. And I think that also harkens back to the victories that we have won in Seattle against Amazon, the way we were able to win one of the keys, of course, is some, something that the workers are also doing, which is building a powerful solidarity on the ground. And what I, what I mean by solidarity is what is multiracial working class solidarity, understanding that black workers, white working class people, and people in the immigrant community who are also relying on jobs for their basic income and to put food on the table, we have a common interest in getting together, getting organized and beating back on the bosses. And had we not been able to build that kind of solidarity, we would not have won the $15 minimum wage. We would not have won the Amazon tax. And one of the lessons we learned, as you said, you know, in terms of going up against such a massive corporation, the entire billionaire class, not just of Seattle, but really these are the richest, some of the richest people in the world, including the richest man in the world, mm -hmm. Jeff Bezos. I think uh, one of the key lessons from Seattle is, I mean, there are many lessons, but one of the key lessons is that we cannot have a leadership of this movement that is afraid to go into full combat against big business and the political establishment that represents them. It, regardless of how good the intentions are of movement leaders or elected representatives, if our leaders don't have the courage to go openly clash against big business and build their powers, build their strength on the ground, we don't win victories. Well, it's interesting that you mentioned that because it seems like so many in the elected left uh, besides yourself are afraid to engage in fights that they think they may not win. Uh, that when you have a huge behemoth, as you say, like Amazon, it seems impossible and we defer and delay because we think if we challenge them, we're going to lose and that that will set us back. It seems that you have a very different approach and a different idea. Absolutely. I think, you know, first of all, let me just acknowledge, obviously, the any serious movement, if we want to win and victories are crucial, we are not here for some sort of intellectualizing or navel gazing purpose. We, we, we are here to win concrete victories for the working class and to move the struggle forward indeed for a society that is completely different than capitalism. You know, we have a tall order of tasks to perform. So we are very serious about building movements and no doubt in any serious movement, strategy and tactics matter and sometimes we will democratically decide in a movement that, well, this battle is worth taking on at this moment, but this one isn't. So in that sense, a serious discussion and debate and honest debate on strategy and tactics matters. But as you were uh, alluding to, Adnan, that if we have a leadership of a movement or elected representatives, as I said, however well-meaning, if they are never willing to go into conflict with the ruling class, then the battle is already lost. That's the whole problem. And I think that's what you're seeing unfold in the $15 an hour debate in Washington, D.C. I mean, we won $15 an hour precisely because, not um, despite, but because we used what I would call a socialist strategy, meaning a strategy of class struggle. And that strategy overcame not only the overt, uh, you know, vicious opposition of big business and the overtly corporate politicians that represent them, our socialist class struggle-based strategy also very, uh, this is very critical to understand, overcame the 
cautious instincts of the well-meaning Democrats and the cautious instincts of the well-meaning labor leaders, none of whom actually wanted to have any conflict with big business. There's this whole idea that is also pervasive in what I would call business unionist kind of ideas in throughout uh, many of the labor unions today, where the idea is that, uh, yes, we want to win victories for working people, but let's not get into any kind of battle stance with big business. Let's, let's work with big business. They're, they're our friend. We, 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 they're our ally, big business. Let's That's work the, with yeah, them. It's, it's a flawed idea that, that big business are your ally. because and, and this is the cold, hard truth. We don't create the class struggle. Capitalism as a system poses it as a class struggle. So when you see Joe Manchin uh, saying he's not going to support 15, when you see Christian Cinema uh, doing a whole kind of show in her no vote, which is which was completely disgusting. When mm. you see Biden and Harris, the all powerful president, vice president saying suddenly they have no powers. It's all up to the parliamentarian. When you see all of this. What that means is that they are supporting a class, which is the ruling class, which is big business. So in other words, when you have these powerful opponents who are going to the mat for their own class, then we have to also unabashedly and unapologetically fight for our class. And just to concretely uh, describe, what do I mean by all of this? This is not an abstract idea. For example, in the fight for 15 in Seattle, the way we were able to overcome the cautious instincts of some of the labor leaders and some of the well-meaning Democrats was we built an independent movement 15 now, which they didn't support, uh, although they, you know, ultimately some many of their rank and file really supported. But this 15 now movement was independent of the Democratic Party and it included progressive labor unions. And we organized marches, rallies, action conferences, very importantly, where we brought together hundreds, thousands of ordinary people, union rank and file, and we literally debated and voted on, each person had a vote on how we were going to carry out our major tactic, which was a ballot initiative. That ballot initiative became a credible threat that forced the city establishment and big business to concede on $15 an hour. So that's the seriousness with which we have to approach strategy and tactics. But rule number one is you have to fight the ruling class. Mm -hmm. I see. Excellent. I see Dr. Harriet Fraud actually has her hand up. I think she would like to join the conversation maybe with a question. Is that the case? Oh, we have to unmute. Hang on, hang on. There you go, doctor. I just want to join it with enormous admiration and agreement because the idea of the left is not to be morally correct in some abstraction. It's to win. Obviously, Biden tolerated two Delaware representatives voting against 15. Now he has the power. We know that. He has never served anyone of the working class. That's not his interest. So he'd have to be forced. And so those people who don't want to make trouble want funding from the ruling class and don't really, they're not in touch. You know, there are 65 million poor white working class people or people without assets and struggling who don't vote. But if they knew their class interest, if it was something they could vote for, they would vote. And it would be easier for us to win. But there is a, a cowardice and a basic collusion with capitalism, which is a mistake. Ever since the McCarthy era in the 50s, the left has been intimidated in a bizarre way that has to be changed. And I totally congratulate you 
for doing what you do and saying what you say. Absolutely. Amen. Well, I mean, uh, this just reminds me that um, we've been having these incessant discussions since the election of Joe Biden about like, well, which direction for the left now? Because um, it was easy to mask aspects of the struggle, you know, or where the fault lines were when it was all just focusing against Trump, against a far right extremist movement. But now what... What really would you recommend? What, how do you see the, um, the path forward for the left? There's a lot of people who take a lot of hope in the fact that there are some progressive left members of Congress who have been elected. Um, the squad, their ranks have grown somewhat with the recent round of elections, even as um, centrist Democrats have lost seats. Uh, and so the overall complement in, in Congress has uh, of uh, under Democratic control has contracted somewhat. Um, but, you know, at the same time, we're not seeing action right now on the fight for 15. We didn't see any leveraging, you know, with the speakership for Pelosi. I'm wondering what uh, you I guess what my question is, is in some sense, something you said six years ago, I thought was absolutely brilliant on democracy. Now, I remember very clearly when there were discussions about voting for Hillary Clinton, you know, that summer. And you said, if our movements are tied to Wall Street, they will have in, in, in a party of Wall Street, they will have a graveyard in the Democratic Party. And I thought that was so evocative. And this is what we've been wrestling with. What's the relationship? What? How can we um, engage with the Democratic Party or should we? What do you think is the direction forward to have some effective, uh, you know, effective force? I think you're, you're correctly highlighting that it's not straightforward right now. Uh, but, but let me just start by saying, first of all, as I'm sure we would all agree, that Trump's defeat was a clear repudiation of his reactionary anti-worker and anti-immigrant and just really horrendous ideas really puts paid to this idea that uh, somehow uh, America is moving rightward as a whole. I mean, the point is that it's not an automatic, which, which direction masses of people move into. It's not automatic. And so on the one hand, Trump's defeat is a repudiation of his reactionary ideas. But on the other hand, even though he has been defeated, the threat of right populism remains. And the left has a serious responsibility on our shoulders. And I think doc, Dr. Fraud, uh, you know, re referenced it. And another way of looking at it and looking at what you were saying, Dr. Fraud, is also to notice that over 70 million people, Americans voted for Trump. And if the left is going to be serious about winning a big section of those people over, which I know they're winnable, then we will have to engage in debates in, very, in a very serious way. Right now, I think it's important for the left to, and as Socialist Alternative my Organization has been trying to do, is to point out a concrete way forward on concrete struggles. And even though they may not result in, you know, in, in, in success at this moment, it is important to show what would have, because it's important to build that track record so that people, you know, people are educated by those ideas. And then um, uh, it helps future movements. So the reason I mentioned that is I, I, I believe that the, 
the squad, many of them, especially AOC and Ilhan Omar, I mean, they're very, they're genuine people who genuinely want to do something good. But but at the end of the day, as long as they accept the limitations of the Democratic Party establishment, mm-hmm. and ultimately, I think fundamentally also, as long as they remain themselves ideologically tied to capitalism in the sense that not that they're advancing the interests of Wall Street in the way that Pelosi and Schumer are, which they are not, they're genuine. But on the other hand, if they accept that this is the best we can have and we, we can only you know sort of tinker at the edges or speak boldly about things, but then not do much beyond that, I think that will uh, will be a dead end, not because of their lack of good intentions, but their lack of understanding of how this can go forward. So right now, for example, Socialist Alternative and I have been concretely urging publicly urging the squad to use their numerical balance of power to withhold the vote on this must-pass stimulus bill because that's yes. leverage. Yes. And and at the same and but not just do it as some sort of parliamentary gimmick and mm. you know and, and sort of withhold the vote unless 15 is put in inside the bill, but not do it as a parliamentary gimmick as sort of unserious thing, but do it as a serious thing. And then at the same time call for hundreds of thousands, millions of working people to come out and be like mobilize people. Use your position in Congress to mobilize hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people in key states. And they could have done this weeks ago. They could have mobilized people in Georgia, in West Virginia, in Arizona. These are key states, West Virginia and Arizona, because these are two, you know, Kristen Cinema and, and um uh, and Joe Manchin states, and Georgia is important because the black working class vote was mobilized in Georgia by Biden saying, vote for Democrats. I will, you know, we have your back. We, I will deliver $15 an hour. Well, none of that is happening. Millions mm-hmm. of people will be ready to fight if leaders mobilize them. And that's the approach we used in Seattle. I mean, bottom line is we didn't achieve the success we have achieved because somehow locally Democratic establishment and big business is okay with. No, I have a recall campaign <laughs> directed against me. No, absolutely. Yes. They will fight you tooth and nail, whether it's local or federal level. The point is, we have achieved the successes we have achieved only because we have had the razor sharp clarity that our office is not about me, but to use it as a platform to mobilize tens of thousands of people. And it is that army of ordinary people that has struck fear in the hearts of the ruling class. And that's how we win victories. That's what we need in Congress. But I don't believe that this can happen now inside the Democratic Party. I think we have to raise the question of a new party for the working class that is not associated with big business interests. Well, you've said some very interesting and important things. We could go a lot of directions there because that gets to the heart of it. Uh, but why don't we talk a little bit about what you just mentioned, the, the party issue. Um, people don't want to embrace third parties, you know, on, on the left. They somehow seem to fear uh, that it would take too long, that it's with our system the way it is. Um you know, that it can't achieve results and that what we need to do is try and transform the Democratic Party as if that's something that, you know, wouldn't take a long time as as well. So I'm wondering why you think that um, there's such resistance on the left to abandoning the Democratic Party and challenging it um, with with a third with a third party. Well, I think, first of all, it is important for us if, if uh, you know, if you're serious about building the left, building mass movements, to, to take note of the fact that the consciousness of the mass of working people in America has had a sea change since even you know five, 10 years ago. If you look at the polls, there are huge openings for building a new party for working people. And in fact, you can see that there is a hunger 
for actual way forward. I mean, the Black Lives Matter movement, which became the largest protest movement in U.S. history, bringing out 26 million people within multiracial solidarity against racism, was not only about police violence, it was also about, you know, it sort of captured the frustrations that tens of millions of people, especially millions of young people are feeling at this rotten system, and they're looking for a way forward. So first of all, I think uh, the mistake that many on the left might make is feeling pessimism as a leftover from the from the past, you know, holdover from the past. I think we have to understand, yes, things will be complicated. There will be setbacks. There's no straightforward, rosy path to victories. But it is important to note that millions of young people are open now for a new kind of politics. Otherwise, we would not have won three elections winning as an open mm-hmm. Marxist in Seattle. No, that happens because people are ready for something different. But having said that, it's understandable. I mean, I'm, I'm really compassionate to the feelings that, uh, that of un- uncertainty that genuine people on the left may have. But just two points I'll make. One is when people get worried about rules or, well, the U.S. electoral system is just bad, you know, we, we, we should be like Europe, parliamentary system. All of that is well and good. Fine. You know, let's talk about that. But let me tell you something. My home country, India, has a multitude of parties with a parliamentary system and not one party represents the interests of working people, the marginalized, the lower caste people, women. And so, you know, at the end of the day, regardless of this, my point is that regardless of the electoral system, we cannot eschew, we cannot avoid the question, political question of building a new party for working people. So I would urge people on the left, do not get bogged down in questions about rules and electoral systems and that sort of thing. Focus on the politics. Is there a party today that can attract masses of ordinary people who want to fight back that is not associated with big business that has structures that can hold its elected officials accountable that can bring the voices in a democratic process of young people and workers no there isn't a party which means we do have to build a party and the second point i think again i'm compassionate to the feelings of people who feel who, who think that well you know building a new party is just daunting you know it's it's better if we work inside the democratic party because at least there's a light at the end of the tunnel well actually the truth is exactly on you know put it on its head and that's the truth which is that it is impo- it is going to be impossible to build anything new from the Democratic Party. While the question of a new party feels daunting, that is the only way forward for ordinary people to have a party that is not controlled by Wall Street interests because the Pelosi's and the Schumann's and the Schumer's and the Mansions and all those representatives, you know, outspoken representatives of Wall Street interests, they control the Democratic Party and they will burn it to the ground first before they let us quote unquote control it. Such a thing is not happening. So in other words, I think it is an exercise in futility, not because it's my feeling about the Democratic Party, it's just a fact. And so we have to look at cold hard facts and recognize that there is no way out of building a new party. And I think one way to look at this is not to think of a party as an electoral machine, but as something that is truly rooted in movements. And our movements are going to be the backbone of victories and struggle. It's not going to be a party, it's going to be mass movements that will win victories, but those mass movements need a political organization to cohere around, and that's why we need a new party. We, I want to be respectful of your time. We have some listeners, Professor Hussein, who have questions. Uh, I have a quick question, and that is, uh, Bernie, he caucuses with the Democrats, but what what party does he identify with? 
I mean, I believe he identifies as independent, but I think that you, you know, uh, I'm so glad, David, actually you brought this point up because it also highlights the point that... It just takes whether, one socialist to get elected to Congress to... We have, we have one socialist, I believe, in the House of Rep... In the Senate. <clears throat> Is that correct? Yes. One. No, it's very important that Bernie it just takes, it just and takes, the, and the, It takes one. And the presidential, yes, absolutely. In, in Seattle, we have one socialist, my office, and every other politician in Seattle City Hall is a Democrat. We have no Republicans here. They're all Democrats, and it, there's one And socialist. they can't argue with you. Well, they, they, they use all kinds of excuses. But, but and, the, uh, the point I'm making is, uh, I don't want to be filthy here, but they're full of BS. And all it takes is one socialist Yes. Like you or no, Bernie I, to remind the Democrats that they are completely full of excrement. I think that's that's absolutely that's a very important point, which is that even if working class people are able to win one genuine seat where that representative and alongside the movement and our political organizations is has the courage and the clarity to expose the Democrats, absolutely it is useful. But it's a good contrast with the squad in the sense that they could do the same thing, but they're not willing to expose the Democratic Party in the way we have exposed the Democratic Party. And you could do it inside the Democratic Party or outside, or you might fail at both. So my point is that Yes, it is important to break from the Democratic Party, in my view, and and think about building a new party. At the same time, I don't think that that is by by itself a guarantee. We also need the political clarity about what is the role of this new party. It's not just for the sake of it that we're building a new party. That new party needs to be able to elect representatives who are going to be willing to fight in the way we have fought. I mean, we didn't win the victories we won simply because I am a socialist and the others are Democrats. We won the victories because I was willing to use our position in this kind of way where I'm not looking to the Democrats for friendship or approval. I am looking to ordinary people to get organized so that together we can win win victories, whether the Democrats like it or not. That's not my concern. My concern is what's good for ordinary people and marginalized communities. That's the kind of fighting strategy we need in the new party. Absolutely. Earlier, we were talking uh, about how when North Carolina elected a Democratic governor in a lame duck session, the Republicans stripped him of all his power Again, the Democrats are never going to act that way. I keep asking. It's it's insanity to say, when are the Democrats going to fight as unfairly and with the same vigor as the Republicans? Well, they're never going to do that. They're, they're not because they don't represent working people's interests. They have, they have no interest in uh, fighting uh, because, for example, Biden... Uh, you know, Dr. Fraud mentioned why didn't, you know, could Biden have pressured the two Delaware senators? Of course, absolutely he could have. And he would have if it was something that he wants to advocate for. Biden is no shrinking violet. He's a longtime lieutenant for the ruling class and for Wall Street interests with lots of experience under his belt. So the reason he didn't do anything about it is because he's not interested in fighting for 15. He is interested in showing that he supports 15, but not actually doing anything. And I think we have to recognize, again, this comes down to an analysis of the way capitalism and the state under capitalism works as well. You know, it benefits 
this kind of democ- bourgeois democracy under capitalism to have one party that is overtly for Wall Street like Republicans and then have a party like the Democrats who for decades have generally advocated for the same interests as the Republicans, which is Wall Street. But occasionally they give crumbs of concessions. They have different rhetoric. They have a different style of speaking. As long as people are, uh, you know, till the end of time confused uh, about the role of the Democratic Party, and as long as they think that, okay, you know, at least I can vote Democrat, as long as you're stuck in that hamster wheel of Democrats versus Republican, there is no way out, uh, uh, you know, out of the status quo. And uh, uh, ultimately, we have to talk about independent politics in order to get out of that hamster wheel and really fight for working people. And this is a good opportunity because you know, capitalism is in huge crisis. That one of the reasons the Biden administration has agreed to this unprecedented degree of stimulus that the establishment would not have uh, been caught in doing this that in during the Great Recession is because they are feeling the pressure of they are feeling the pressure to save their own system. At this moment, it is crucial for the left to use this opportunity to bring people together and win victories and put more pressure on the Democrats and raise the sights towards a new party. Before you go, and say, I hope you come back, uh, what, what would be your utopia? We know that utopias don't exist, but I, I think Americans have been so brainwashed uh, into thinking that socialists want some kind of totalitarian rule that we see in China or what we saw under the Soviet Union, what would your end game be? Are we all walking around in um, Mao uh, jumpsuits and uh, (laughs) I have to take in roommates? What what does America look like? Actually, you know what, David, I'm uh, interesting you that you mentioned I have to take in roommates because that's how people are living right now under capitalism. But but the the I I know, I know. But the state saying the state says I'm I'm coming to that. I'm coming to that. I just found that sort of ironic that that's that's the indictment about capitalism right now, that people are not able to keep a roof over their heads. Mm -hmm. And in fact, even in the richest country in the world, in America, people are malnourished and uh, hungry. So I think one thing I would note is, first of all, is that we are in a completely changed period than the Cold War era in the sense that the new generations, especially people in their teens and 20s, are not worried about, oh, what socialism might mean in terms of state and jumpsuits, jumpsuits and all that. What they are preoccupied with correctly is how this current system, capitalism, is not serving their needs. So what is an alternative kind of society? I mean, as a socialist, I would say what we need and what socialism means to me is a global society uh, that harnesses the incredible wealth, natural resources, the technological advancements and the boundless creativity of humanity to deliver high standards of living to all human beings, the billions on the planet, in a sustainable way, meaning dealing with a climate catastrophe. And so now, does this mean again, you'll have to come back because this is a loaded question. Does that mean the state takes over, you know, buys Exxon Mobil and buys Microsoft and Amazon and it's run by the state? What what does this world look like in, in yeah, the United I, States? I was coming to that. Yeah, absolutely. I was coming to that. I mean, the thing is, 
uh, the the vision that I laid out, I don't think very many people disagree with that vision because right now the system is crap for them. You know, their their lives suck under capitalism. They're looking for something different. And when you explain that socialism is actually basically a very sane kind of society that would put all the resources that we have and the technology that we have in order to improve people's lives around the planet and then actually avert climate catastrophe, that appeals to ordinary people. But the only way to achieve that is for ordinary people to democratically control resources. You, you cannot control what you don't own. So there is no way for this vision to be attained and for billionaires and millionaires uh, to remain in existence. The sense that you cannot have all the wealth be siphoned off in the hands of a few people and then for the rest of us to attain high standards of living. That doesn't happen. That's what capitalism is. It's a zero-sum game. And so what we do need, I mean, a necessary step towards socialism, global socialism, will be, will have to be for workers, and this is an answer to your question, uh, for workers to take the top, the com what I would call the commanding heights of the economy, the top energy companies, Amazon, the top, uh, you know, other companies, tech companies, into democratic public ownership by workers run for the community. That is not the state taking control. It's ordinary people taking democratic control and democratically designing, uh, deciding that we don't, if we had control over Amazon, for example, first of all, money would not be spent in anti-union. We would ourselves want the union because we would have control over the company. We would not be developing facial recognition software. In, instead, we will be using the tech energy, uh, tech, uh, you know, tech innovations to improve people's lives so that everybody has the benefit from the, you know, the, the production and so on. Same with fossil fuels. There is no hope of ending climate, uh, climate change and averting the climate catastrophe as long as the energy companies and the natural resources are in the hands of a few energy barons because they have no incentive to move away okay, from Okay, so I, I'm fuel. trying to understand, uh, this is new to me. So are you saying, for example, to bail out American Airlines, which we've done countless times, it would be cheaper for us to just, as the government, buy up all the American Airlines stock instead of bailing it out. No, I'm not. No, I'm, I'm not talking about buying out because how would we? I mean, if you think about tens of millions of ordinary Americans, we don't have the money to buy anything. We're not talking about buying anything. I'm talking about We're the federal about, government. If we have the in other no, words. But no, 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 I'm not. No, that's not what it means at all. Because, see, the, the federal government today, it, it, it is an organ of the capitalist state. So when I'm talking about socialism and democratic public ownership, we're talking about a fundamentally different situation where it's not going to be a state that represents capitalist interests. It will be a democratic workers' government. A you know, Soviet. It will be a completely different thing. Like a Soviet. Yeah, I mean, if you look at it, it's, it's important, actually, you know, today's International Women's Day. Actually, it's important mm -hmm. to look at before Stalinism, uh, degenerated what uh, what were the gains of the Russian Revolution. It is important to look at what the original gains of the Russian Revolution were. Uh, the Russian Revolution was, I, I would say, the single most progressive event in human history. And one of the things that the new government did, because it was not a government representing capitalist interests or any bureaucracy, it was a government formed of workers by workers. It was democratic. So in that sense, when actually millions of people have a say in what should happen in society, what do you think the new workers government did? Uh, the workers democracy in Russia immediately decriminalized homosexuality 
uh, it made sure that women had rights. It socialized uh, food, you know, food production, you know, cooking and childcare. It made sure that women had equal pay. They had a vote. All of these things happened. Some of these things happened in the West later, but some of these things have never happened under capitalism. You know, gender pay gap has never been ended in any country under capitalism. So we are talking about ordinary people together democratically having a say in how society is run, which is fundamentally different than you know what you were saying. Can Soviets compete? When you say Soviets, as I but little I know, that would be a worker controlled business. Is that fair no, or an not, industry? It, it wouldn't it wouldn't be a business in the sense that there's no few people making profits at the expense of other people. That's the whole point. If workers control everything together, then all the resources are uh, harnessed to make sure everybody gains from it. So concretely what it looks like will have to be seen from, you know, well, you know one situation to another. You know, but, I, I so help, a, help me out here. But I'll, I'll give you an example. I'll give you an example. I don't have a blueprint because obviously we cannot. We are not, we are not trying to prescribe what future generations should do. I'm just providing an idea of how this can be done. I'll give you a concrete example, though. In Seattle, we have... Uh, declared, um, you know, the city city establishment has declared a goal of zero carbon emissions by 2030. But how is that going to be achieved? You know, half of the emissions come from vehicular emissions because there is not enough public transportation. Why? Is there not enough money to fund public transit? No, there is lots of money, but it's in the hands of the billionaires. If working people in Seattle had control then we would actually use those resources to increase the network and frequency of buses and light rail stations to make sure that people never have to drive their cars ever again. We don't have to emit carbon uh, emissions. They, they will be run on electricity. All the public transportation will be run on electricity. That's a concrete example. But you. But my point is that this is not um, short. There's. It's not a shortage of technological ideas and innovations. What what we don't have is actual control over those resources. So no matter what problem you're talking about in society, it starts with the political struggle to take the big corporations into democratic public ownership for the simple reason that you cannot control what you don't own. Okay, so even something as simple, I know your time is precious. I'm, but No, I don't, I, I'm fine staying. For so, so GM, for example, we bailed out GM. We bailed out Chrysler. We have a president who says we're going to, we're going to buy GM and make it worker controlled. That would no, not be part of that. That wouldn't work under. No, 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 no. I mean, let, let me just say, first of all, what actually happened during the bailouts was. No, I, not uh, what, I, I'm sorry, just to cut through. That's what I know what happened. I'm just saying yeah, but, to but, but, ease but into a system that. No, but but you you keep saying buying. No, we are not buying anything. That's why it's a political struggle, and that's why it won't happen without an actual revolutionary movement. Because we don't have the money to buy, and we're not going to pay the billionaires for exploiting us. They got their money. You know, capitalism. So is how a do we get it? Where uh, we, we have to build it. a political struggle. We have to we take, take it. it. Yes. So yes. so you, so I'm the president of the United States and we're taking GM from No, the, the president of the United States unless they are a Marxist is not going to be on your side. So in other words, our political struggle, a revolutionary struggle will be not only against the billionaires and the 
people who control these corporations. It will also be against what I call the capitalist state, meaning the government under capitalism, where most of the politicians are not going to be on our side. That's why we need our own party. And then we need to go towards. OK, so the American people, uh, the American people vote for a, a socialist yeah. president. Yes. We have yes, a, a, yes. Okay, no, let, let yes me just no. I, 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 please. We have a, a socialist president. We have a socialist Congress. We have a socialist Senate. So then, then we take what? What do we do? Does, does it involve a military takeover as well? I'm, I'm saying no. I, I, well, it's not. That's not how it's going to happen. No, the capitalist state. And the Wall Street interests and the billionaires who, you know, who have a stake in preserving this system, they are not just going to let us have a socialist president and a socialist Senate and a socialist Congress. Look at how hard they are fighting when one Marxist has been elected in okay. one city. So, but you're, so how States. do we get can I, can, can I finish? Uh, so then, uh, so, they, they, so they're not going to let uh, one, they're not tolerating one Marxist. So they are not going to tolerate more than one. In other words, it is going to be a political battle. It will mean it will require mass struggles on the streets. It will require struggles in the workplace. It will it will require uh, you know strike actions all over the world. That is how. But you know, I, I've just okay. I, I'm not trying to be difficult. I'm trying to understand your vision. I've just jumped. We, you've won. The, the 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 workers took to the streets in America. Ninety nine percent of this country uh, has said the hell with capitalism. It doesn't work. We have a. Do we still have a government? Do we still have the same? We we will we no we will ha- as I said we will have a workers government. So we would get rid democracy. of the constitution. Is that what you're saying? I, I mean, some aspects of the Constitution serve capitalism. So, yes, people at that so, time, I don't know if I'll be alive then. My point is that whoever's there at that time will have to decide what are the aspects of current society that are useful for human existence and what needs to be changed. You know, so it's I'm not I'm not as I said, I'm not providing a blueprint. However, one thing I, I, I'm trying well, to point out repeatedly is that you're, you're going to us. You're going to a point which to reach that point, there will be a lot of struggle, you know. But you have to take me. Here's the thing. Here's that's, the thing. But that's what I'm you, trying to you say. Have to t- here, here's, what, here's my resistance to what you're saying. Uh, I'm ripe for some kind of Danish model, uh, Nordic model. That I understand. Uh, but I don't know where you're taking me. Uh, and I don't think the American people or the world you you have to say we're get on this train we're going here and i'm not quite sure you know to me and i i'm not as you 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 have a phd i'm i'm not i'm the dumbest person in this room uh i i always say that makes me what helps me understand all this is uh there has to be class struggle and maybe class struggle in and of itself is the solution that in, in in this country, the most we can hope for is that we uh, intimidate the wealthiest one percent into 
behaving themselves uh, through law and uh, taking things from them through taxation. Uh, and that the government owns some businesses and competes with the uh, the barons. I, I, I think that when a, a car company goes under and we have tax dollars to bail it out, we should own that car company. And it should compete with the other car companies. But uh, I don't see what the the alternative well, david if if we if we do the kinds of struggle and campaigns and organize at the grassroots the way the counselor has been suggested is suggesting it may push uh you know those uh kind of authorities and powers that exist now to have to make those kinds of adjustments as as but I don't understand what the because I, I did paint a picture. I said, okay. Yeah. Well, well I, I, excuse me for one second. Hang on for one second. Hang on for one second. Hang on for one second. I said, let's jump ahead. The left has won. We, we we have the House, the Senate, the Supreme Court, the President, and and the I think the council member is saying that's not what it looks like. That that winning politically in this in this system that that we're accustomed to you're saying that that doesn't you can't no, get there using I'm our not, our current system yes but i'm also saying another thing which is that you keep saying let's just assume the left has won we have the senate house i'm saying that uh, the whole story of what i'm talking about happens well before that because the 1%, as you said, they're not, they don't, you, you know, I was just, um, just to go back to what you were saying, you know, let's, let's just, what you know is the Danish model, let's just in intimidate the 1% into taxing them. Well, let me tell you, they will launch almighty political war against you, even if you try to tax them. That was our experience last year and for the last three years, actually, against Amazon. So I'm not speaking in the abstract. I'm speaking concretely from experience that big business will fight tooth and nail unrelentingly to force movements to step back. And if we win, it will be despite all of that. And the victory that we won is a rare victory. So my point is that winning reforms and yet keeping capitalism intact itself is going to be an almighty battle. But what we have seen throughout history is that every time workers win reforms, later those reforms are snatched away from us. So in other words, we cannot keep playing this game endlessly where we fight so hard. Every generation fights hard, engages in self-sacrifice just to win a few crumbs here and there, and then only for those crumbs to be taken away, while at the same time that the whole pizza pie is being taken by the billionaires, not to mention, and this is why I keep coming back to climate crisis, because whether we like it or not, and regardless of our political opinions or whatever, the climate, the ecological clock is ticking and reforms are not going to cut it. And climate scientists who are not political like me will tell you reforms are not going to cut it. We, we will need massive shifts, like earth shattering shifts in the way the economy functions. In other words, uh, you know, I heard some us climate scientists say yesterday, actually, that if we move to clean renewable energy 100% globally tomorrow, 
it would not be soon enough. That's the kind of crisis we are facing. So in other words, whether we like it or not, the question of fundamental change in society is posed, but that fundamental change will not come on the basis of capitalism for the simple reason that the, the few billionaires who own the resources will not let you do it. So in, that's why I'm saying that long before the, we reach the point where you, where, where you're, of what you're talking about, of course, we want to do the, the end point you pointed out. Yes, we want to get there. We want to get to a point where the entire government or, you know, worker democracy is a worker's democracy. It's not owned by billionaires. Yes, we want to get to that point. What I'm trying to say, though, is that before we get to that point, a lot is going to happen because if big business is not going to let us even tax them without fighting us tooth and nail. They're not going to let us take their resources and retool them uh, anytime soon. So in other words, we are going to have almighty clashes against the billionaire class if we are to get to that point. And when you describe, okay, so when you describe almighty clashes, these are dog, I mean, what, what are you saying? I mean, I mean that, you know, for I mean, the way I would... Uh, advocate for struggle for working people is for us to organize millions, you know, in the United but, but, States. But, you know, again, I'm trying, I'm thinking of the America, I'm thinking of yeah. the voters. I'm trying to answer, yeah. Yeah, yeah I mean, what is almighty, I mean, you know, we just ran into trouble with Rudy Giuliani on uh, January 6th. Al- al- almighty, almighty means that, uh, it, it means two things. Uh, one, it means that we will need to be absolutely determined. You know, this is not, we're not, we cannot, we cannot mess around. Our climate, I mean, sorry, our planet is in crisis. I, I, you know, we, I, I understand, but, but, so but, that, but, 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 but hang on for one second. We had a problem. David, to- when we march in the streets and look like we're going to win, what happened with the police, you know, over the summer? I mean, we've already seen what starts to happen is in the past when workers organized, they hired the Pinkerton, you know, agency mm-hmm. to come in and break yes. bones and and to sow strife. And so we're surely to you're not suggesting uh, to meet them with equal force. I'm saying that the, it's not going to be our decision entirely about what tactics we will try yes. and create yes. the social movements that are strong enough it's to interesting. be enough to change. And you will see that yes. if we're actually dedicated towards changing the system, that all kinds of violence will be directed at yes. the people yes. for yes. attempting right. to democratize. But it's interesting. It's interesting because this reminds me of January 6th in that. Uh, there, you know, Trump and Rudy never said specifically what to do, but they planted enough uh, dog whistles, and we'll just see how it plays out. I, I think, I think there's a, a bit of dishonesty here. I don't think you're telling us how we, what we're looking at, and where this leads to. Because we saw on January 6th where Trump and Giuliani and Hawley were, you know, the Republicans, they're nibbling around the edges of what, how they're going to get what they want. And all their, and their defenses, we're just, you know, putting it out there. We can't control how people respond. Martin Luther, Dr. King, very specifically, prescribed how to get there 
and uh, it, it's different from what well, I mean. We will. Can I, no, can we I will. Go ahead. Go ahead. I, I, first of all, I don't appreciate you saying that this is dishonest in any way. We, what 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 I'm say, what I was about to say was what Adnan just said, which is that uh, ordinary people, working people, will uh, throughout history. It, it, this is this has been true. Will build peaceful movements, but the capitalist state and the billionaire class, the capitalist class will at some point or another direct violence against those movements because they will run out of options. When millions of people believe in something and lose their fears, you know, break those shackles and not just march on the streets, but also, you know, take over the factories, do sit-in strikes. These are all peaceful tactics. But the capitalist class does not say, oh, these are peaceful tactics. Yes, let's move towards but, socialism. But the leadership... Can I, can, but, I, can, I, can, I, can I finish, please? Yeah. Th that is not how it happens. The capitalist class will and has throughout history of capitalism direct violence and sometimes extreme violence against those who are organizing the labor movement will not would not have come into existence in the first place unless the leader labor la you know leaders at that time the organizers especially the socialists at that time had not had the courage to in literally lay down their lives in order for that movement to build, not because they were being violent, but they were the targets of violence from the capitalist state. So if people are worried about violence like yourself, then the best thing to do is to build as powerful of movements as possible so that it really puts the fear in the hearts of the capitalist state because the violence comes from them, not from the people. Exactly. So the New Deal, so that kind of social democracy was an attempt to figure out the crisis because they needed to save capitalism somehow. So they made extraordinary shifts and changes in U.S. social policy. That's, you know, one possible direction or outcome well, well, of that, mass struggle that it will improve. That, right? That's but, true. That's true, although that's absolutely 100% true what Adnan is saying, that literally FDR said, it's me and, the, you know, it's uh, I'm standing between you and the pitchforks. That's what he told the capitalist class. And they made the New Deal represented massive concessions on the part of the capitalist state led by FDR. It was not FDR's generosity that gave us the new green, the New Deal. The New Deal happened because the capitalist state itself was in crisis because the economy was in crisis right. Again, and because because they were afraid of the militant labor movements that had won successful general strike actions and those concessions were wrested from the hands of the capitalist state because of those successful movements and so yes that can happen however let's not forget that FDR also unleashed the forces of the state against the labor movement at the same time so in other words even for reforms the state will exert violence against ordinary people. We saw the kind of violence in the black. I, I'm aware. Here's, the, here's my question. And I think you, you know what I'm asking. My, my question is, I'm thinking of the Edmund Pettus Bridge. I'm thinking of Gandhi. I'm thinking of the, of the Pinkerton guards who, who killed the, the Ford workers and the, 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 the workers at Flint. When you say a clash, are the workers fighting back? 
physically. Workers have to work. work well, when, first of all, just to clarify, when I say clash, I'm first, you're, you're going straight to the violence. I'm talking about strike actions and ordinary people. But I'm asking you, are there, politically. Do, I think I'm, I'm, okay, in terms I'm of framing, and, and this is yeah, politics. I'm explaining, I'm, explain, I'm explaining what I mean. If you let me explain what I mean, I'll explain what I mean. When I say clash, I mean a political struggle that does not necessarily mean violence, as in the capitalist state is the one that unleashes the violence, but they're going to, it's it's a calculation for them. And what, is the, what do unleash. the workers do? Do they unleash oh, violence? Of course not. Workers, Why well, I think you should say that. Well, I just, I just said that. Well, I, I, I think that's the that lead. The I think state. passive resistance is the lead. Isn't it? Yes, but but no, but no, but you're putting words in my mouth. That's I'm saying that the workers don't initiate the violence, but the capitalist state will initiate the violence because they they will have lost control of their own economy. Right. And at that moment, workers cannot be passive. No, workers have to fight back physically. Yes, absolutely. Okay, so that, that I disagree with you on that, and I don't think that's fine. But but, the, but you say so you're so okay. No choice. I mean, look at what happened in Chile. In Chile, uh, the workers were pleading with Allende to let them actually confront the forces of the CIA and the military because. Otherwise, they were going to lose the entire gains of the revolution. And that's exactly what happened. So, so in other words, in other words, there is a difference between being peaceful and being pacifist. In other words, workers should not and will not initiate violence. But the workers also have the right to defend themselves. That there's a huge difference. There's a night and day difference between those two things. The right. I don't right think to that yourself, I don't think that works. having the right to defend yourself is absolutely going to be necessary if we need successful revolutionary movements. That's yeah, I, I think I think that's you know I think that's going to be a tough sell, and and I disagree with it's you a, on it's that. A, it's a tough sell to you, but we'll, we'll see what happens. <laughs> well, the thing is to focus on is I, I think that work, I think that comes fight back. For fifteen fight for the policy. But, yeah, I know, but I, I think I think you're, you're I think you're going to you're you're stepping across a thousand steps right now those things are not posed right now what is posed concretely for example well i know what the struggle, republicans you need no listen i asked you what your end game was and because, how you saw this and, yeah, and, I, and I, I answered you but right now right now what is posed winning the unionizing struggle in amazon at amazon is crucial there's no question of violence there. It's a question of politically being clear that you have to fight the billionaire class. You know, that's what I'm talking about. Those things are important. You, you're skipping all those thousand steps in, and going to something that workers don't know right now. And yes, right now, nobody will agree with it, but that's not the point. The point is right now, what do we need to do? We need, as Adnan was saying, to fight for $15 an hour. We need to fight to win unions. Yeah, I, but I, I think if you want people to get on a train, I think if you want people to get on, excuse me for one second. If you want people to get on the train, the conductor should tell everybody where it's heading and what we're going to experience. And and so when when you say we're going to, it's a clash between the 99% and the capitalists. And they're gonna be coming at us with everything they've got. And you have to be honest and say, violence meets violence. 
that there's going to be violence. And I'm not so sure. I, I have, excuse I me. I have for, said that. No, David, I don't appreciate you continually using the word honest and dishonest. I, I have say, said I, workers will not initiate the violence, but workers do have the right to defend themselves against violence from the state. I've said that very clearly. I'm not shying away from it. What I am saying, though, and this is where I think it helps to be clear, that's not posed at this second. What is posed but, 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 is unionizing That is a big problem to, to say to... Well, but it's a problem for you. you. How are you going to decide what's a problem for millions of people? If what you were saying is true for millions of people, then we would not have had the Russian Revolution. We would not have had the general strikes in the United States. The labor movement would not have come into existence in America if what you had... If what, if what but I don't think... Are, do you, apply to all the people. No, I don't, look, I don't expect uh, 100% of people to agree with me. What I'm saying is that history proves what I'm saying is true. Okay, I'm asking you understand what it takes. Did did we did the labor movement? Did we get the 40 hour work week? Did we get rid of child labor because labor leaders fought physically fought back, fired back at the Pinkerton guards? They didn't fire back at the Pinkerton guards. But what they did, did we get the minimum wage because the, the workers got weapons and 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 took over like, the factories look, you're, you're you're david i'm sorry look you're all over the place no i'm not i'm asking I, no no yes, no i'm, I'm being very specific i'm being no, very specific you just stated yeah, hang, hang on being, for one second can i can i say just say you're being specific in a very absurd way 15 dollars an hour is not a question of violence okay this is not what is posed 15 dollars an hour is in in this on the scale of reform it's a mild reform and even for those that mild reform the political establishment will fight you tooth and nail will that does that mean that they will bring the state against you no but when you saw the black lives matter movement absolutely the forces of the state were unleashed against people yes and and, is, and was the civil rights act of 60 was the was the civil I, i'm not arguing dishonestly so and you're a guest on my show but but you say that that the the forces of capitalism are going to come after the 99% with everything they've got and the 99% has every right to fight back physically and that yes so what is your what is your plan for them if they don't fight back i mean you keep asking me this question what's your plan for them if they don't fight back uh history well my interpretation of history is to look at what dr king taught us what uh, yeah, John? You're what, looking, you're looking you know, I I let you talk. I let you talk. I, I'm asking you to just let me finish. Okay, John Lewis, Dr. King, and an unfinished labor movement, and uh, an unfinished LGBTQ movement, an unfinished women's movement, has taught us that. Uh, nonviolence beats violence. That we that Absolutely. nothing was except for the Civil War, which was state versus state. Nothing in the twentieth. No, excuse the me. State nothing word. in the twentieth century or the twenty first century in America was ever achieved through violence. It's always set workers no, you're, back. You're, you're looking. Can I respond? You're looking at specific snapshots of history. I mean, I, I can t- I can give you counterexamples. The Russian Revolution itself was an extremely peaceful revolution. It actually, you know, if so if you looked at just the Russian Revolution, 
it proves your theory that ordinary people don't have to use violence ever or, or defend themselves ever against violence. They just have to take it. Because at that point, the state, the, the state in Russia was very weakened. And because of that, they were not able to inflict the kind of violence that they would have otherwise. You know, so a powerful state like America will, capitalist state like America will be, it will, it will be revolution, will be different in America. But what happened a few years after the Russian revolution? The armies of 21 capitalist countries got together that used that got came to be known as the white army. They got together and completely attacked the new workers democracy in Russia. That was called the civil war that came after the Russian revolution. It was bloody and it was inflicted by the ruling class of capitalist countries. And yes, absolutely. At that time, the workers fought back. But, but, here, but, but here, they could, back but here, America, but in America, can you give me an yes, example? But, but, but no, that's what I'm saying. I'm, I'm saying that you cannot use examples that don't pose that situation of violence. I'm using an example that does pose that situation of violence. And I'm telling you that if it comes to that, yes, workers will have to fight back. What I'm trying to clarify is that not everything will come to that. So when you say $15 an hour, I don't think it's a fair example to use $15 an hour and say, well, did the workers uh, do, do get violent? No, of course, we're not going to get violent just for the sake of it. And also, as I said earlier, the ruling class will not be used violence all the time because it doesn't help them. You know, sometimes it backfires because it makes people angry. So they will also be judicious about when they will inflict violence and how. My point is that when they feel they need to, they will do it ruthlessly and without any compassion. And at that time, we will have to be ready to fight back. Not every battle is posed in that way. Most battles are going to be political battles where when I say clash, I mean ordinary people getting organized politically in solidarity, marching on the streets, marching in workplaces, coming to city hall, demanding their rights. That's not that's not violent. That's a political clash. Right. I hope that but when explains. yeah, I, I think you have again we have to be ready to fight back politically, not with. No, but again, no, I not don't physically. Agree, I don't agree with the blanket statement you're making. I, I think I did a. a that's not going to sell. I don't think that sells. I don't think that sells. I'm trying to. It's not selling to you. It's not selling to you. Fine. I, I, I'm not expecting to convince you, but I did try to explain with an example where that could be posed concretely. But I'm also trying to say that I don't agree with your over-focusing on that point because right now that is not posed. You know, right now it's a political battle that we have to engage in. But there is a problem on the streets. We'll wrap it up and uh, thank you for joining us. And uh, uh, I think there's a problem. Uh, there is an, an element uh, on the left that thinks a small element, tiny element, that that I would hate to see unleashed because we would lose the we would lose the argument if 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 our side uh, is throwing uh, garbage cans through the windows and uh, attacking the police. I don't think you win that way. I don't and and I don't want to. If get, you look, if you look at the Black Lives Matter movement last summer, peaceful. It, it was, was it not, was it, the, the people who were throwing bricks through the windows were uh, those were the other side pretending to be part of the BLM. I I 
I, I mean, I, I don't agree with uh, if, if there are any people who are doing that in the movement, I completely disagreed with them. Uh, but I don't think it's appropriate for the left to make a false equivalence between some uh, overheated protester throwing a water bottle at the police and the police who are completely donned in riot gear, unleashing tear gas, rubber bullets, plastic bullets, sonic weapons, ultrasonic weapons, water cannons, blast balls at ordinary protesters. And again, I am not speaking in, a, in the abstract. I was out there on the streets with other Black Lives Matter protests and I got tear gassed and, gassed and blast balled myself. So my point is that the weaponry that is in the hands of the state is so far beyond what ordinary people have. And we should not make the mistake of drawing a false equivalence between the two things. Which makes our side, the, or I don't know if we're on the same side. I think you're, we may not be on the, but uh, I think the streets, if, if you want to get things done, the streets, it is the responsibility of the left to keep things peaceful. It is absolutely the responsibility of the left to keep things peaceful. I 100% agree with you. However, I don't think at the end of the day, again, you, you know, you're, you're combining to today and a revolutionary movement all in one thing. It is not one thing in my view. I mean, the Russian revolution and the civil war is not where we are today. We are talking about winning $15 an hour and forming unions. So those two things are separate. However, having said that, I, I don't think that ultimately this is a question of some sort of moral high ground. This is a question of concretely winning a society that works for the billions of us. And yes, we will have to defend ourselves if it comes to it, because what's at stake is the planet and the lives of billions of people. And I promise you that at that time, there will be millions of people willing to sacrifice themselves, myself included, in order to actually attain that different kind of society. But of course, I 100% agree with you that it should not be some sort of wanton engagement of uh, by the left in terms of violence. We absolutely have an obligation to keep things peaceful so that we can win over, but not to gain some sort of moral high ground, so that we can win over millions of more people to understand that we are engaging in this, in this peacefully. So look at where the violence is coming from. It's coming from the capitalist state. So yes, in that sense, I completely agree with you. To be continued. Thank you. Uh, how do people contact you? Uh, you can uh, Google my name and find my council office, or you can go to socialistalternative.org, which is my political organization. If you, um, you know, send an email to Socialist Alternative, uh, I'm sure I'll, I'll hear about it. And if you, um, if any of uh, your listeners, your viewers, uh, are supportive of our fight against the recall campaign from the big business and the right wing, please go to kshamasolidarity.org, which is kshama, my name, K-S-H-A-M-A, solidarity, one word, dot org and please donate and just so we're clear i may not agree with everything you said but we need uh, a voice we need voices given the the current uh, uh, inequality in this country uh we, we need uh you you are you're, you are as uh jeff bezos gets to speak the way you do, and it's considered uh, patriotic and American, there should be, you are meeting 
Jeff, Be- you're not even one one thousandth of opinionated as as Jeff Bezos, and we we need to hear. Uh, I, anyway. Thank you for being very opinionated. <laughs> Thank you for absolutely, and, and, yeah. and you know, don't 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 mistake my passion for my uh, arguments as some sort of uh, uh, you know um, reluctance to have a debate. I really really appreciated tonight's debate, David. Right, and, and just so I, you we, know, we, on we this not, show, we're 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 not going to win build a movement by talking to an echo chamber. These debates right. are crucial. Right, and just so you know, I believe in uh, the 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 oligarchs uh, being terrified of the 99%. I think that's healthy. Uh, so, so I can't hear you. You can't hear me? I, I, I said I believe that the, the 99%, we should go back to, to a time when the 1% was uh, at least ashamed or terrified <laughs> of the 99%. But I subscribe to... Dr. King, and I don't think we get, and I, I just don't think we win uh, with any, even a remote threat of violence. I think we're smarter than the oligarchs. I think they're mentally ill. I think they're sick. We win by boycotting. We win with boycotts. Well, well, we'll have to have more of this discussion. I think what's great is seeing how many victories Kshama has had with Socialist Alternative in Seattle. And I think there's a lot for us to learn from that. And can, we t- to- can, I got to hear from Texas Tom Weber. Can we, we have Professor Marianne. If I don't hear from Texas Tom Weber, uh, please, I need to, my Texas Tom. Hello, Texas Tom Weber. Well, uh, hello, David. Uh, thank you, Kishana. We're running Kishana. a little behind. I just want to alert the affiliates, <laughs> oh, but I, I, as they used to say. I wanna, but I need to hear Texas, Tom. I, I want to thank you for being on here. You uh, really have opened up uh, a really great conversation that's really, really important. Uh, I, I appreciated the exchange both ways. And I'm, I'm coming from the standpoint of strict nonviolence and everything, and I understand all the different sides in terms of argumentation and everything. And I, I think that uh, your presentation tonight was excellent. And uh, if I was in Seattle, I would be supporting you. So thank Me you. too. I would too. Well, please, please support us from afar uh, because we need help from everyone on the left to defeat this recall campaign. Absolutely. These honest and frank discussions and debates have to continue, but we also have to stand in solidarity with one another when we are being attacked by the ruling class. So I hope you will all support our solidarity campaign. Sure, sure. Well, anyway, I, there, there's so much I would like to say and uh, talk about and everything, but I, you know. Uh, just, just let me introduce Texas Tom, and I, he should be part of the, the podcast. Uh, he teaches... Uh, passive resistance, nonviolence on uh, on office hours, and he should be doing it uh, on, on our show as well. And and uh, it might be, I have a feeling uh, what I would like to do is invite Texas Tom to interview you, and I will stay out of it and have a conversation. I think it would be an interesting con- for you to come back and and... Uh, have Texas Tom talk to you, and I would, 
I promise you I would keep my mouth shut. Oh, you you don't have to, David. It's okay for us to debate and for the debate to get heated. That's totally fine. But I think Happy I think to talk to you both, <laughs> Professor Hussein. Wouldn't that be uh, uh, it, right, Texas Tom, talking with the council member? I'm not, I'm not nearly as smart as anybody here, so I, I don't know that that would. All right, I don't know, be a great idea. F- finish your <laughs> finish your thought, sir. My okay. thought. About you not being as smart as anybody. No, I'm <laughs> no you were gonna, you were going to say something, and then no, there isn't anything else I was going to say. Okay, thank you, thank no, you thank so you. much. I, could, I, I I wanted to say thank you. There, earlier on, there was something I wanted to say, but uh, it's kind of disconnected from where we landed. So okay, anyway. we really yeah, appreciate you so your time. Thank you. You spent uh, a generous amount of time discussing with us. We hope you'll still come back some other time to continue the conversation. We learned so much and we really appreciate it. And we will be in solidarity with you. KashamaSolidarity.org. Support her against this disgusting corporate attempt to derail democracy and a real working people's agenda in Seattle. Yeah. When is the recall? When is that? Attempt. No, it's it's. Uh, they, they've already uh, uh, filed the recall petition, but the way the law works is it goes to the state Supreme Court and the Supreme Court hasn't ruled yet. So depending on the timing of when they rule, which we expect to, that they will support the recall and not us because the courts are not on our side. So depending on that, the election will be sometime this summer. So, but we're, we're not we're not waiting for that ruling. We're already building a campaign. So that's why we need everybody's support already. Right. You've just, you know, again, uh, we've never heard Jeff Bezos speak the way you speak, but that's how he speaks. Uh, we need to hear your voice. Thank you so much. Thank you, Professor Adnan Hussein. Let us now go to Aurora, Illinois, where Professor Marianne Cummings is standing by. She is a physicist as well as Parks Commissioner of uh, Aurora, Illinois, how are you? You have to unmute yourself, please. I'm doing fine, thank you. Um, uh, and I, I'm all pumped up from what I just Go heard. ahead. And it's, <laughs> Go ahead. You don't need a goddamn party behind you. You need one person acting fearlessly sometimes because you realize that in most congregations of people, be it city council or the house or the senate you know you're in with a bunch of betas and there's maybe one or two people who are alphas and then there are those who are willing to actually step out and you know and and go against the grain and you will stand out like a sore thumb if you do that in most of these uh in most of these types of situations because everybody you know it's almost like you get into a club and that works on people, even people who come into the Democratic Party with all kinds of ideals and want to, and, and, and hopes to make things better. They are confronted with real people who explain to them how hard things are for them. And, oh, if you do this, it'll be hard for me. And you sympathize because you're lefty or whatever. And, you know, we have to screw that. This is all about power. And, uh, you know, there, our, our guest understood like one person in a sea of 
corporate to, of course it doesn't mean it doesn't matter if you're all dems okay does it does it matter that city council is all dems in chicago no they're as reactionary as anybody else i mean we don't have republicans to first order because we just don't traditionally have a republican party so the dems divide into the republicans the republican whites the Republican may be a little bit centrist. And then there's a few real uh, Democratic socialists. There's actually five on city council now. And they are pushing. I mean, the five of them are pushing because the rest of the Dems, you know, zero times any arbitrarily large number is still zero. And people are not going to stick their heads out. And when somebody is fighting, it actually encourages other people to like, oh, my God, they're saying that she's standing up. It gives other people courage. Um, I was thinking about what she was saying because I did find a tweet from Ilan Omar from the beginning of December. And she explicitly said, it will only take six brave progressives to set policy in the House. She said that in December of last year. And, you know, it is all about power. And I mean, yeah, I think... I think you got a little sidetracked talking about violence. It's about power. I mean, Nancy Pelosi had all the power to bring down the entire capitalist structure if we didn't bail them out last year. Well, she did that way back in 2009. Okay, she so so uh, getting tied up in violence. This is a uh, we just had- violence is a side. It's it's such a side. It, it, it's it's such a distraction. It's a sideline. There are very few times when you have actual violence will get you out of a situation. Like the guy that tried to kill me back when I was 19 years old. You know, that kind of thing. That rarely happens. Um, but you can use your power. Right. You but, can but, but, absolutely but, but, use your power. But I, I preach nonviolence here. That's, and and this, I'm in agreement with you. Uh, using your power isn't is the same as using violence. Okay. We have we, we have a representative democracy as imperfect as it is. Six, I mean, whether you agree that we should or not, six progressives in the House right now can force the COVID bill back to the negotiating table. If they had the guts, if they said, hey, you guys crossed a line. This is what we were running on. This is what you, Mr. President, were promising people down in Georgia like just a month and a half ago. We are going to like restore the minimum wage because it doesn't get done now in a must pass bill. It will never get done. Right. And, you know, they just are reluctant to do that. It's it's a it's a psychological. But there would be nothing violent about that. No more violent than Joe Manchin just saying, hmm, no, I won't vote for this if we have the minimum wage in there. He gets to the negotiating table. The White House negotiates with him. They, the White House ignores the progressives. I mean, we're talking the opposite of violence. We're talking about engaging in the game on within the system set up. There is nothing that's anti-democratic about it. Use your leverage as a voting bloc. Right. I, I, I right? yeah, I, I, I don't speak for Ralph Nader, uh, but I Who does Ralph Nader speaks for Ralph Nader. I worship at the altar of Ralph Nader. And I believe that he got more done by learning the law and then working the levers of power than uh, 
I mean, this is a man who gave us the Clean Water Act, the Clean, right. the EPA, OSHA, seatbelts. Uh, he never, without he a gun, without willing, a gun, without without yeah. without the threat of violence. Because he was willing to effectively give up his life, you know, like biking into work, living like a monk, you know, like having no giving and no one any handle or which to he lived on in two according to an article i read he lived on twenty thousand dollars a year yeah and when he was was willing to do that he was willing to do that he he didn't have the perks of any kind of of any uh privileged position because he was willing to fight and if any of the squad did the same thing you know, they would lose favor with the, a lot of the mainstream media. There were may, there may not be any more, you know, spreads and Glamour magazine or Rolling Stones or Vanity Fair. I mean, they may actually, you know, become outsiders and outcasts. Ralph Nader was willing to be an outsider and an outcast. There, there was something interesting that Chris Hedges said. Um, I used to listen to him on RT, you know, years ago, um, more than I do now, but... Uh, he actually claimed he talked with Bernie Sanders and Bernie said, and he asked them, you know, why don't you go third party? Now, Bernie Sanders told him, this is what Bridge Hedges said, that he just did not want to be like Ralph Nader, like an outsider. Now, I don't blame him. Bernie is probably has more of a positive effect being an insider than, uh, than, than he would have gone the Ralph Nader route. But, some people need to go that route, like Ralph Nader did. Bernie's a unique story. And people have to be willing to give up their career, give up, you know, the, the good graces of their colleagues around them to stand on principle. And that is very, very tough. I don't diminish how tough that is. You know, when I do that in my very, very lowly position here, it's a position I'm not getting paid for. You know, none of my career trajectories are along have, have anything to do with, you know, standing up and speaking out to the local officials. I got a very, I got a very charming moment last night where I was able to, like, bitch out police officers. Because they've had the gall to tell me, well, some of your compadres said defund the police because, you know, they were telling, I was, we have a rising crime. I said, I watched you assholes. Like, um, <laughs> was this, oh, was, was this an official it. duty? No, this was outside of the board meeting. Mm-hmm. This was just kind of like, because they were there. We have an issue with the parks right now. The uh, Apparently a lot of my constituents have been calling me saying that police uh, aren't coming when they call, when there's, uh, you know, people gathering in parks at night making a lot of noise. And so these guys had the gall to like be in front of me saying, well, you wanted to defund us and blah, blah, blah. It's like, I said, hey, I saw you assholes surrounding a bunch of people, peaceful, lawful protesters downtown Aurora at the Black Lives Matter. Two blocks away, there were looters smashing storefronts, stealing. Two blocks away, you weren't doing your jobs. So, you know, you want... Do you want me to form a militia? Because I don't think you want me to form a militia. <laughs> we, we don't. We don't want people to own guns. We don't want the police to have guns. We we, we want, want the peace. police to do their jobs. And I, you know, see, this is what it helps when you're sitting alone watching Netflix. I remember one piece of advice that in watching The Crown, where one of uh, Elizabeth's tutors told her, you know, 
you have everything you need to know to deal with these guys. They just need a strict dressing down from the nanny. So right. I just gave them a dressing down. And since I'm an old lady, you know, what are they going to do? Yeah. No. <laughs> yeah. No, yeah. Overnight. no, but the thing is, is that um, I don't think it's going to be as hard as people think it is because it only takes a few defiance of uh, a few instances of defying conventional wisdom to have the floodgates open because there's an enormous advantage that the squad have over like, you know, a, a group of recalcitrant moderates or conservative Dems is that what they want is overwhelmingly popular. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's, I, I, I was, I was saying the other day that I saw Marion Williams, uh, interviewing uh, Pramila Jayapal, who I like. I really like a lot. Mm-hmm. But Marianne Williams was calling her out. I mean, she was saying, hey, I, we don't want to hear any talk of procedure and getting on committees. We want results. And, you know, because she did bring up voting as a block. And uh, Jayapal said, well, you know, maybe the uh, the other Democrats, the conservatives, will vote as a block, too. Uh, but, you know, and Marianne Williams looked at her and go. But what you stand for is popular. You can't figure out how to leverage that. You know, she did it in a nice way, but she did it in a very insistent way. I was good for Marianne Williams, uh, Williamson. But, um, you know, I think that people are just, we, we're coward. We're a little afraid. People are exhausted. And it just, people are just, people just don't want to be bold. And leverage, and I think people, particularly activists, are very uncomfortable wielding power. And I think that's the difference between us and, like, the Tea Party. Apart from the fact that we're on the side of truth, justice, the American way, I mean, <laughs> the, the Tea Party, not, not shy at all about leveraging their numbers and their power and asking for outrageous demands. And not, and not being afraid of uh, failing. Not- and not being afraid of failing or not being afraid of failing let alone just, you know, not being liked by the leadership. <laughs> that's ass about that. And that's, I think we need to see a little bit more of that. It, look, you know, one person on a city, one Marxist, one democratic socialist, whatever she wants to be labeled, could change the whole, could change the whole dynamics of a city council. One person. Right, right. That's all we're asking. It, it, it's hard, uh, as I said earlier, look at Bernie. I, I can't mm-hmm. think of any socialists other than Bernie who are serving as senators, let alone when he was a congressperson. Were there any socialists? There was one socialist serving. Maybe I'm wrong. I don't remember any socialists. So or, w- know, one socialist, Bernie. Mm-hmm changed the democratic party and he wasn't right. imagine if well he didn't really change it but he certainly rattled it and he basically uh upset it to the extent that you know um there's a real division which always was there but and i think it's just a matter of a lot of people thinking through what they think is reasonable um but you know uh, it's certainly a beginning it's certainly not uh you know, we haven't accomplished anything substantial, but we have certainly set it up. And uh, but I think that 
the, these kind of windows closed quickly unless you use the power that you have. And I don't doubt that there are other people coming up. Well, AOC is, I believe AOC is de- de- Democratic Socialist. So I think that and, uh, Rashida Tlaib is Democratic Socialist, is Illinois Mar. Um, I don't know how many other left, I think uh, uh, Pamela Jayapal, I think she describes herself as a Democratic Socialist. I don't know who else does. But you don't even have to say the words. I, I think you, you just need some action. And 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 that's when, so I, you know, I think uh, you were a little hard on our guest tonight because I think, I think the conversation was going too much into the direction of, um, of violence. I mean, I've confronted well, uh, the reason, I, excuse me for one second. Uh, you know, I'm a little raw from uh, January 6th and the words that were used before they stormed the Capitol. And I, so I, I wasn't trying to be rude, but I was, I was hearing what, what the other side would construe as vague dog whistles. And, and you know, I, I, so I wanted clarity. I don't think I was being hard. I, there, there, there is this thing where it, it reminded me a little of, I'm going to throw out some terms that are just nebulous enough and let people do with them what they want. And, I, and I, you know, I, I have some responsibility to ask what you mean by that. Don't I? Oh, certainly, certainly you do. I just think that, you know, we were, I, I didn't want the focus to be so much about it. That will happen, by the way. You know, nothing is, nothing worthwhile is ever without risk. I mean, I had my father's law firm on speed dial every single, you know, protest I was at in the Chicago area because the Chicago police were on occasion getting out of line. So I was always putting myself in the place where I was most likely to be the person arrested. But I think the cops sort of have a spidey sense of who they can fuck with in those situations. But, right, but know. I mean, if you're if you're an African if you're an African American, yes, and you're pulled over by the cop, and they you are meeting face to face the the full force of the United States government, as I understand it, mm-hmm. you're not supposed to you you I, I from what I understand the talk to be is you'll. You'll, there'll be a time for you to fight back, but uh, not here. Not well, now. I'm getting pulled over. I'm usually really nice to cops. I, yeah. that, cops. That you, I wasn't talking about being pulled over. I'm talking about being in a lawful demonstration where the cops were uh, oftentimes, you know, overstepping their legal authority. Let's put it right. This way. And, and I again, I think when the cops are overstepping their legal authority, uh, walk away if you can. Fight, you know, uh, photograph it. Don't. Uh, oh, there's plenty of there's plenty of photographs of me standing right in front of the cops. Really nice. I love the one where I'm standing in front of a bunch of mounted right out for the Chicago police right outside the Chicago Tribune building. <laughs> okay, so 
I would say so, to you, I would say to you, because I care for you, uh, yeah. walk away. Why, well, I mean, what, why? Why should I walk away? Well, I mean, I'm, if they're swinging a bit, if they're, if they, if they have a truncheon. Yeah, if they swing and hit me, there's going to be consequences for that. Unlike for, for you hitting a lot of, who cares? I'm the most. I'm the most disposable person on planet Earth. Well, but, you know, but, my, but I could get my father's law firm on, on that case and then get the whole law firm a bit of free publicity. Plus, you know, give, you know, give a little pushback. But, you know, you won't be able to pronounce the letter P for the rest of your life. <clears throat> if they hit you in the head, you know, that's Professor Mar- That's Professor Marianne Cummings. She got in the head and she can't use the letter no, P. No, I'm just ruling. <laughs> I'm just like doing, doing strand, sand drawings, you know. That'll probably be a much happier life. I, um, I tell people to walk away from violence. That's my... Sometimes that's right. Sometimes that's right. But sometimes, especially when it means you're walking away will allow violence to continue on other people who are more vulnerable than I am or who can't walk away. I mean, and this, you know, look, there's no formula to this. I mean, you kind of have to decide. But um, but I think that stepping back, I don't think you know, there, there will be demonstrations in the streets and there is some risk to that. But I but I'm saying that apart from that, you need to leverage your power. The, the uh, teachers unions leveraging their power with a statewide strike in Kansas and West Virginia. I mean, that wasn't violence, although there was an enormous risk to themselves, to their livelihoods and everything else. But it takes courage. And well, you know, I don't I don't think we win. I, I, again, you're going to people are going to accuse me. I know I'm going to be accused of fixating on violence, but I'm a boomer. And and I know how people like me think, and they're terrified of our side being misconstrued as as violent as the right. Because I'm old enough to remember when our side was equated with the weather underground. And, uh, you know, uh, it doesn't help. When, when our but, side but, is seen as uh, dangerous, physically dangerous. But, but, not, but it, we're, not, we're not seen as the ones doing violence if we stand up to police brutality. But there are... And yes, you know, get our head clubbed in, some of us, but some of us with, you know... I spent a lot yeah. of money on my hair transplants. They're bad enough as it is now. I... I spent 40 years growing my fright wig since I was a teenager. I mean, you know, I, I understand, but, you know, sometimes a little sacrifice. Is necessary. I'm, I'm going to say something that's way, I, I don't know, but uh, Derek Chauvin is on trial. Mm-hmm. I suspect, unfortunately, we're looking at uh, rioting uh, in the next couple of months, but... Uh, I suspect, well, I'll keep my mouth shut, but uh, um, yeah, that might just end up happening. And you would hope that there would be some wisdom 
among the elected officials and among the judiciary that, uh, you know, justice sooner or later needs to be done. Uh, do you think do you think he's going to be charged with murder? Do you think he'll be convicted of? You know, what's I don't he, know any. What's I, it second I, degree? I Is he up on second degree? Yeah, I, I don't know. I know very little about that that whole case up there or the people who, who are in part of the judiciary up there. Um, you know, but it, they, they face, there's overwhelming institutional uh, resistance to being able to uh, convict cops because, um, you know, we, we had ended up being a discussion tonight, but, you know, people were telling me, hey, cops are walking off the job now because life is too hard, being, you know, becoming tougher being a cop. It's, it's, I confronted it's, them on that a little bit, especially in Aurora, Illinois. But, uh, you know, there's a lot of institutional problems. I mean, there's the laws that exempt the cops from a lot of things. And if they're, if, if uh, judges have to follow the law, but at least people, some a case like that will make people aware that there, there is a law that gives these guys protection. And maybe we need to change that. You know, so um, uh, in, in, in that case, I don't know. But I mean, there are people that in, in positions of power up there that can make a difference, knowing that they are sitting on a power ke- powder keg of, you know, a pent-up frustration among the citizenry. And, yeah, you know, pressure from the citizenry, even the possible threat of violence, can be a goad to at least don't do the worst thing you could possibly do in this situation. Right. Well, more importantly, when do you, are you going to just win? You're running for re-election, but are you? Yes, are you- I apparently, uh, since no one qualified, else qualified, I will just win. That's why I'm spending all of my time uh, campaigning, that I campaign, campaigning for John Lash. And are we thinking of higher office or? Uh, am I thinking of higher office? I got to get through this year to pay my bills. But once, uh, you know, I want to get John. I think I actually think it is critically important to get John Lash elected because that could change things in Illinois dramatically. I mean, in the entire state of Illinois. And uh, we'll have to see. It's one of these. You know, last time we had a mayoral election and there was a competitive election, there was only 9% voter turnout. However, I asked John why he thought he could win. And he said, so that's easy. I can walk this entire city. You know, it's, it's hard to walk an entire congressional district, particularly when, you know, there are millions and millions of bucks being spent against you. But city of Aurora, quarter of a million people, you can do that. I mean, him and the local Bernie squad, you can do that. So that's uh, what, that's our, our strategy. I hope to hell it works. Okay. Because uh, we need something, I mean, something absolutely needs to happen. We either solve these problems that uh, she was so passionate about earlier, Kashama was so passionate about earlier, democratically, or they get solved undemocratically, and that will... That will be brutal. I'm about to read uh, a book and watch a documentary about carbon capture. Mm-hmm. Waste of my time? 
No, I don't think it's a waste of time. And by the way, I think these technologies will need to be developed because it's already too late. I mean, it's already too late to just passively get ourselves off the car, uh, the uh, fossil fuel. I think the damage is already being done that's kind of irreparable unless we actively do something apart from just getting off all fossil fuel. We need to put a lot of energy into repairing the environment. I mean, there are certain technologies for carbon capture that are immensely expensive right now. They're just... We'll need to do that. Uh, solar panels, we need a revolution, in, uh, which I think is like a, about to happen. If we just put money into it, the, uh, the, new car, the new nanotechnology for solar panels could be revolutionary and would be truly sustainable. The current technologies are not, but, you know, they're a nice interim step. And now, Bill Gates, Bill Gates has bought up all the farmland in the United States. He's, he's the largest owner of farmland. And he has a new book about oh, here. has a new book on climate change. Suppose he plants that that grass that collects carbon. Good. Now, somebody said just plant billions of fucking trees. Why not? I mean, we can do that. I mean, I have a program, a thousand trees in the uh, the Fox Valley Park District alone these next couple of years. So, um, look, why, the idea that, you know, it's one billionaire knucklehead that we're like putting all our hopes on. I know he's not he's not democratically elected. It's. Uh, you know, anyway, Professor Marianne oh. Cummings, it, well, I'll see you Thursday, I hope. Sure, yeah. Okay. The professors professor, and Marianne. Oh, the professors and, I like that. The professors, that's a great, did you just come up with that? Yeah. No, I came up with it last week. The professors <laughs> and Marianne. That's a great, I like that. That's what we'll call it. I'll see okay. you on Thursday, Thursday night. Professor Marianne, thank you. And right. let us now go to Denton, Texas where Professor Mike Steinel has been kept waiting. Sorry to keep you waiting. It got a little uh, interesting. I folded my laundry. <laughs> I'll send you. Do you take other people's laundry? Sure, man. I'll do, I'll, I'll do your laundry. I have. It's piling up. <laughs> you know what the problem with laundry is? <clears throat> Once you start doing it, it's okay. Well, what does that mean? Well, it, it, the <laughs> issue is, you know, getting around to it. That's that's the problem. <clears throat> well, I go through the house and I, I'm, I, I exclaim to the occupants, bring out your darks. Bring out your darks. <laughs> and I do the darks. My wife does everything else. But it's, yeah. I just all I have is are darks. My yeah. father-in-law once pointed out, you 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 dark you wear dark clothes all the time. I said, it's it's, it's slimming. It's slimming. <laughs> yes. How are today, things in Denton? Oh, it was a beautiful day today. I'm, uh, I went to, I went to hit some golf balls. I got all the way to the driving range and then I realized <laughs> I hadn't put my clubs in the trunk. <laughs> I've been there. <laughs> so, uh, <clears throat> Hey, I got a little, my blood pressure got going. I'm glad that, uh, that, uh, Professor Marianne was, Kind of the buffer that last hour was uh, as a little uh, little rough. I, I had to, I did start my 
you know, I had to, I, I was kind of delayed. I think we got off a little bit. So I started my drinking a little, uh, a, a little earlier. So. Have one for me. Cause I could, I, I could do. use a drink. <laughs> hey, do you, what do you think of time travel? I, uh, I think it's possible. I'm, uh, I'm writing, I, I did, uh, about 5,000 words on my third novel today. Wow. Which is going to be about a retired jazz professor who, through a series of events, is able to go back and talk and hang out with Charlie Parker. And, uh, yeah, I mean, like, if you, if you were able to go back and hang out with Lenny Bruce, you know, you ever thought about, like, if you said something to him, Positive or negative, it could change his whole... It would alter the time-space continuum. Yeah, yeah. We That's... did a sketch on uh, this show where... <laughs> I've told this story. No, no, I've never heard it. Where Jim Earl and Eddie and I uh, got into my time machine to get Hitler to like <laughs> Jews. And I had my time machine. We traveled based on the price of milk. Not by the year. So it was like if I wanted to go to a, oh, to a certain year, of the, you know, 40,000 Deutschmarks for a glass of milk. And that was supposed to take us to Vienna when uh, Hitler was trying to sell paintings. And the idea was that I would walk up to Adolf Hitler as a Jew, buy one of his watercolors, and then he would, you know, not do what he did. And I and Rick Overton was Hitler. And I said, how much for this watercolor? And he goes, uh, 500,000 Deutschmarks. Are you fucking kidding me? This isn't a, and David, go back and buy. I can't. The print, it's the principle. Anyway, uh, I, I would, so if, if I'd like to go back with- to high school. I'd like to go back. I'd like to be. I'd like to go back to high school. I'd like to go back to college. Uh, no, you'd and, have to. You can't do that. You'd have to. See that would that would you if you were to go back and meet yourself. Yes, I'd like I mean, to have sex go- with myself <laughs> in my twenties. There's a there's a movie. I loved your discussion last week about uh, porn with uh, the good Reverend. That was interesting. Yes, <laughs> I listened to that on my way to the driving range. Today yes, <laughs> without my clubs, yeah. maybe that's what what got me going. Hey, it's good to see Dave Cyrus on the show. Yes, he's very busy. Very and busy. Joe, DeVito, what, what, what's up with Joe Devito? When's he going to be? Back you know, now? I've I keep asking, and people keep asking, and and I I have He's and funny. I have to and I have to get Doctor Jen back, mm-hmm. and uh, yes. Well, one of the problems you have, you get somebody new on, hey, and you go immediately. Can you come back? Right next week. Right, and then if everybody said yes and actually did it, we would be like five days a like, week. 18, you know. yeah, we'd be, we'd be here. Oh, hey, worst things could happen if we did this five days a week. <laughs> Seven days a week, hey, that know. would be the worst thing. That so you you office hours, we screwed up on office. I screwed up on office hours. Did you? So yeah. I couldn't get in. I couldn't get in for my slot. Yeah, we, we had a, uh, a, a... I was knocking at the office hour door and going, Dave. And people were going, Dave's not here. Dave's not here. <laughs> Let me in. What happened is... We set up an ongoing meeting yeah. every Friday night at right. 8 p.m. where your link would let you in. Right. And I programmed it six months ago thinking that March 
fifth would never come around. Ah, eh, just you know, March fifth, we'll be done with office hours by then. And I forgot to reset the the deadline. If you could time travel, I would go you could back. Go back today, yes, and you could fix that on Friday, right? And then I wouldn't have. I, I wouldn't have. You know, I. You ever pulled an all nighter? Yes. Doesn't go well, does it? Well, we just had office hours, which went, I think it went 30 hours. Oh, my goodness. That's yeah. right. Yeah. Hey, um, so this this filibuster thing. So Harry Reid did away with it for judges. Was for it for uh, not the Supreme Court judges, but for the federal judges that McConnell was blocking. Right. McConnell did it for the Supreme Court justices. You got right. Oh man, like that's like the one thing you might where a filibuster would really. I agree. You want agree. judges who everybody could yes who were non-part that would get the most non. It's like it's it's totally flipped on its head. You know what what the um, how that's worked out. It's really horrible, really horrible. Let me ask you something, and I didn't. I don't know. I should know this for them to take the filibuster out. Do they need two thirds for that? No, I think it's a simple majority. Oh, why don't they do it? Because Joe Manchin is a piece of human excrement. Oh man! And Kristen Cinema. And this goes back to what Howie Klein has always talked about: is uh-huh. the the Democrats need to run better candidates. You know, Joe Manchin, Bernie won. In 2016, he won the West Virginia primary. He beat Hillary by a landslide, which means we could elect a real liberal, a lefty in in West Virginia. But you think, but come in. Is that me or you or two others? Hang on. That's not me. Oh, that's me that's you know i i would take uh, i would take that call if it was a uh if it was you know one of those a free oh, oh uh, uh, an, an offer but like a, yeah a yeah yeah this is marriott vacations do you get yeah. marriott vacations oh yeah i don't do them i mean i get the call i, I keep getting all i get are, are marriott vacations yeah i know they must have trouble Hey, by the way, it, that shirt's fantastic. This shirt? Is that, a, is that an $8,000 shirt? We talked about that last time. This is my $8,000 shirt. Yeah. It looks great. You look really good. Well, so do you. Nah, I'll be, I'll nah, be nah, in nah. Denton by tomorrow. I'm driving down. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I thought you were kind of uh, um, blasting uh, poetry pretty hard with Bert Ross, though. You know, I did like your Ferlinghetti poem. There was a man oh. named Furman Getty who ate like, too much spaghetti. <laughs> I don't. And now he's deady. I don't know what the. Uh... Yeah. So the filibuster. Yes, sir. We need to get rid of it, don't we? Well, I would think that would, you know, it's, it's just what did Obama say? It's a relic of Jim Crow. You know, it was used to uh, the history is pretty. uh but unfortunately, so are the Republicans. Yeah, I know, I know. Um, I guess, yeah, I don't see where it would, would hurt. Um, it, it's not helping us for judges now. 
So um, I was wondering if they could, if they can take it out, can they put it back? Yes. They can do whatever they want. They have the majority. It's it's almost like they don't really want to do anything, you know, although this new, this, um, you ran down all the things, the good things about the, the, uh, the latest bill. They could say it could cut child poverty in half. They're saying in in America. And uh, that'd be pretty good. Assuming they keep that, the tax credit, I think it's just for a year. Yeah, I'm worried about some of the children, like uh, you know Archie, Megan, and Harry's kid. Man, yeah, gonna have a tough time. Can you imagine <laughs> being Prince Charles? <laughs> oh man, <clears throat> and and not being uh, not being able to help your son because your mother has. I mean, I I think it's beyond their control. I think. Yeah, I, I think the palace is this thing that. If you that that you're born into and it, it really is a prison sentence and, and they're powerless. Yeah, it was fascinating. You know, uh, I, re- I liked her. I liked everything about her. I liked her demeanor. Beverly, I turned to Beverly and said, I love her. And she said, she's a very good actress. Don't believe a word. I, I think women see, yes, I think women see something that we don't see. That's, I, I think Harry, I think he's a good guy. I do. I do think he's a good guy. I, and I, I think, think he's doing think the he best married he up. I think he married up. Yeah. He's, not the, he's not the most handsome guy, you know. Right. But he, yeah. you know, he's, he served in Afghanistan. He saw action. He wanted to, not the thing, you know, but, it, you know, he came back and the Invictus games and injured warriors and they, they've they stripped him of his medals and his, his military titles. And uh, they are bizarre. They are. I think they made a big uh, coup for their brand on Sunday night. You know? oh, oh, yeah, not the royals, but they no, did. No, 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 yeah. no, Megan and Harry. Yeah. I think, you know, with the, with the chicken ranch and rescued chickens. You, yeah, I mean, you're certainly going to root for <laughs> Megan uh, over uh, Kate Middleton. Yeah, yeah, I would think so. I mean, how do you, how do you, you have hundreds of millions of dollars and you, you won't provide security for your, your son, your grandson, your great, I mean, it just makes no sense. What if something happens to them and, you know, to the kid, like a, you know, like a Lindbergh, <laughs> the Lindbergh baby. <laughs> yeah. You know, that, that playwright who writes, uh, not Tom Stoppard, who's the other guy? Oh, David, oh, I can't remember. He he's, does one act plays. We went and saw some in New York. They're fantastic. But there's one with this construction workers working there and he announces to his friend. He's a, like a Brooklyn guy. He goes, I am the Lindbergh baby. <laughs> <laughs> and that's the premise. And he's trying to convince his friend that he's the Lindbergh baby. Yeah. And uh, there's another one. Who's the guy? Oh, David, uh, David Ives, David Ives. You ought to just to read those plays. It's just fantastic. There's one where there's four chimps in a room and, <clears throat> and uh, kind of like this know, show. <laughs> yes, and with typewriters. And then, right. you know, like the, the premise is if you give 
four chimps typewriters and you have 10,000 years, they will eventually produce Shakespeare, you know? So they're <laughs> typing on these things and jumping around. Well, you and, could uh, give a hundred chimps a, a million pianos. They could never come up with this song. You you have a song for us, right? About the filibuster? Yes, I do. I you I do have a song for you. You want to play it now? Yes, I do. This yeah. is the latest from Professor Mike. It's a blues. Filibuster Good. the filibuster blues. The filibuster blues. Here's Professor Mike Steinell. some luster but I still got some style I'm not in the constitution I was birthed by rule 22 if you want to slow things down I'm just a guy for you I'm getting kind of tired I'm really past my pride Man, I think I should be fired But Schumer won't get off a dime Please, Mr. Schumer Mr. Schumer, please Put me out of my misery I'm getting down on my knees You can shoot me in the head You can drown me in the back if you think I'm not quite dead You can hit me with a big club In the chamber of the Senate When nothing's happening at all Just roll me in a carpet And throw me in the hall
some folks say I'm part of history That I'll always be around Let's do away with the mystery Let's run me out of town I'm ready to go I think I've done my time Just put me out to pasture just fine Please Mr. Schumer Mr. Schumer Please Put me out of my Misery I'm getting down on My knees That's right Uh-huh It's time For me to go That's all there is, there ain't no more to this show. So kick me out, roll me in the carpet, and throw me in the hall. I'm no use anymore to nobody at all. That's right. It's time, you know it. Yes, you did. It's time, I'm going. <laughs> That is, I love you. You're the best. You're the best. You are the best. Thank uh, you. Hey, you know that one line about roll me in a carpet? One I of thought the of, funniest. I thought of Vince Foster when you said that. <laughs> did they, is that what they did with him? I think so. And <laughs> they moved him, supposedly. That uh, former Republican Mike Murphy, who's on MSNBC, mm-hmm. he's pretty funny. He's pretty We've had him on this show. Have you really? Yeah. He's a funny guy, but he said the funniest thing when they asked him, like in, the, in December, like, is, is Trump really going to leave the White House? And he goes, well, they might have to put a falcon head or a hood over him and roll him in a carpet, but he's leaving. <laughs> I screwed it up. They might have to put a falcon hood over him and roll him in a carpet, but he's leaving. Yeah, he's I thought leaving. that was a funny image. You know, the falcon head. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Hey. Uh, last week, 420,000 infections for COVID. Uh, That's not good. Actually, it's the slowest spread since the pandemic began. Is it really? Yeah. Okay. I thought it was kind of plateaued. It's. It seems to be the vaccines seem to be uh, bringing it down. 90 million shots. So far, 2.6 million vaccine doses per day, 2.16 million. You know, the statistic I saw today in the New York Times, right on the cover, they did a thing. uh, It says one third of America has had a close friend or relative die of COVID. One third. I don't think that ever happens in like war anymore, you know? Yeah. We have casualties in war, but it, it, it doesn't affect that much. And it seems like people don't even, I don't, how do we, how did we get immune to that tragedy? You know, it's really. More Americans died in the past year from COVID than yeah. World War II, Korea, and Vietnam combined in one year. Yeah, and the fact that the Republican Party is still viable speaks volumes to how broken the american brain is 
Yeah, I, I would agree. The party of accountability, the Republicans, who see things black and white, lock them up, are responsible for all these deaths. And somehow the American people, there are enough American people to make Republicans uh, a viable alternative. Yeah. Speaks volumes to uh, how broken the Democrats are. Yeah. Would be so easy for the Democrats to just win with huge landslides by giving the American people what they deserve. But that's not. Why aren't the, why aren't the airways screaming with commercials? Just pounding it. You know, they got the money. I gave the Democrat when Obama ran, I started giving him money. I gave a little bit of money to one of the, I guess, I don't know, the national conference and then I got a, a letter from Nancy Pelosi every day. Asking for, for more money. Year. Every day for a year. I mean, they spent my money on postage. That's all they did. Did you, you know? read hey, the, the way, article in the Times about the Lincoln Project? About yes, those grifters? Yeah. How they skim like 30% of donations and pay themselves these exorbitant salaries? Yeah. We'll talk about that on uh, Friday show. Hey, do you miss Trump at all? No. Nah. No? You know, I think it's weird, the, the uh, silence. I, I, I read a thing that they think maybe the staff was writing some of those tweets. That they weren't all his ideas. I doubt he can type, right? I mean, there were so many, and they were, and f even though they were horrible, they were tactically... Yes. Uh, brilliant. Yes. They they were timely. They came out like they would uh, jump on any little thing that was to their advantage, even if it was a lie, you know, and it was so consistent that you wonder if, uh, you know, that uh, maybe uh, he had something to do with that. But anyway, I think I think he might have more power even being I think in some way he has more power now that he's uh, stifled. You know, like he's in exile. You know, he's in digital exile. Digital Maybe. exile. That's my new indie band. I think. <laughs> I like that, huh? <laughs> I was trying to figure out when you laughed harder in the last couple of weeks. I think it might have been uh, who's the uh, the gal from Texas, the baby mama, Kelly Scott. Uh, Kelly Stone. Kelly Stone, when she was talking about her dog's <laughs> uh, male, you know, uh, enhancement, you know, he is hung. <laughs> you remember that one? <laughs> yeah. We have to have that her back. She's very funny. She's good. She's, and she's, she's, uh, you know, uh, she's got some stuff. And then the, the other one was when uh, Rick Overton talked about being, everybody being courageous these days. Mm -hmm. <laughs> courageous. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, those are the hits. I'm seeing, I'm seeing dueling. I like your, I like your, what do you call this program that allows you to do this? Uh, After Effects. After Effects. Yeah. I need to get some of those. No, you don't. You go down a rabbit hole and you'll never come up. Let's, I'm working, uh, on my, working on my book. I'll give you another report next week. Number three. I love you. Professor Mike Steinell, thank you so much. Dan my Frankenberger, pleasure. are you still with us? Yep. I don't believe it. Why, look, it's a pretentious douchebag. Is it cold in your right. place, man? Don't you have heat? 
<laughs> yeah, it's cold here. Is it really? <laughs> it's an addition to the house and it's got a cement floor and no oh. insulation. You know, I don't think I can I don't think I can name the show today. Because there I, I, I I'm gonna pass. I really don't think I can do it. How about I read it off? Okay. Let me let me try because I'm gonna have trouble with pronunciation. I was thinking about that an hour ago. Okay, so uh show started at 4:20 marijuana time with yeah. Dan Frankenberger in the yep. in the newsroom. That's right. And then 4:30 we had Ricky Hutchinson. We had Maximilian Alvarez and Jacob yep. uh, Mor- Morris- Morrison. That's correct. And then Christian Smalls. Mm-hmm. Then we had Grace Jackson, Henry Huckamaki. And the gentleman who wrote the book about Myanmar. Carlos Sardinia Galache. Yes. And then we had, uh, that would take us to, that would be 5.30 to... Canada. Canada, Mark Breslin. Then then we had uh, uh, Shervin. Running for thirty, the thirtieth congressional district in California. Then we had Howie Klein, and he, we had—I I forgot Senator Erica, Erica Smith. Yep. Erica Smith. And then we had was it Dave Cyrus? Yep. And then blanking the schedule, so that must have been a last minute edition or something. Doctor Harriet Fraud, then. Professor Adnan Hussein and the council member from Seattle. Yep. Shama Sawant. That's right. And then we had Professor Marianne Cummings, then Professor Mike Steinel, and That's Dan right. Frankenberger. Hey, what time did office hours end? I'm not sure. I, I fell asleep during, uh, towards the end of Reverend Barry's segment, and I woke up at quarter after one and people were still talking i think hannah and frankie and yeah maybe and we closed it down like after midnight so that made Central office time. hours what 30 hours so that was probably 30 hours yeah i guess somebody made me co-host at some late hour and we and dan had to leave and uh who else was there what time did my daughter stay until oh she stayed until fairly late i think she was checking out like when i woke up for 15 minutes and that was at like quarter after one she's very shy (laughs) as you you can tell (laughs) growing up i did all the talking and she just listened you can tell yeah i did very (laughs) shy afraid to speak uh yeah she's amazing all right fantastic show i will so it's it's uh the professors and Marianne, genius, and Ken Mann, straight, straight from, from the, the closet. closet. How great was he? <laughs> yeah, it's awesome. all great. All right, thank you so much. Please follow me on Twitter, friend me on Facebook, and what else do I have to tell you? If you'd like to sit in our virtual studio audience, please go to davidfeldmanshow.com. Hit attend a live taping. You'll get an invite. If you would like to come to office hours, the link will work. I promise you. Go to David Feldman show. I think what we're going to try is I think 
Dan, the link will take you right into the meeting. I think that's what we're going to do. No registration. Well, no, we, we, we now we have because we have terms and conditions. Okay, yeah. we're having a meeting tomorrow, correct? Yep. yep. Okay. Thank you very much. Remember to stay strong and protect the weak. It's time right now for the David Feldman Show. He's talking politics and comedy too. He'll tell a dirty joke if you want him to. He's just a lefty from way back. He's a union man with an Emmy for writing. Someday he's mad and he feels like fighting. It's time right now for the David Feldman Show. So get your ears on right, buckle in real tight. He's got a lot to say and he's coming your way. He's got a lot to say and he's coming your way. He's got a lot to say and he's coming your way. He's got a lot to say and he's coming your way. He's got a lot to say and he's coming your way. He's got a lot to say and he's coming your way. He's got a lot to say and he's coming your way. He's got a